everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 320. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix of Span and Bix. It's me and you again this week, and we have quite the Between the Sheets-centric show. On brand Between the Sheets. Yes, and um, I picked this week because it lined up with previous shows, and I wasn't expecting everything to fall into place like it did on this show. <laughs> now, we did um, the week before this in show 60. We did September the 7th to the 13th. So we got an extra day here. So it's be the 14th to the 21st of 1990, September 14th, 21st, 1990. So 260 shows ago, we did the week before this. So if you wanted to... Uh, Go back and check that out. Go back to show 60 to get the lead up to what we're going to talk about here. As we got a major story that doesn't involve any of the top two promotions in the wrestling world, but in one of the biggest wrestling towns in the history of wrestling. Well, it does involve the number three promotion in a way. In the world? In the country. (laughs) I said the world, not the country. Well... All right, so let's go to Dallas, Texas. No, not USWA. World-class championship wrestling. And we begin with Steve Beverly and Matt Watch. You have found more to the story than meets the headline. Well, wait, what was the headline? You didn't include it. Well, here's the headline. Avoiding the prolonged court case, USWA majority owner Jerry Jarrett agreed Thursday to turn over control of the Texas-based promotion to minority owner Kevin Van Eric, which is on uh, September 13th in Dallas. Now, we did talk about this on the previous show, this happening, but we didn't go as in-depth, and we didn't use any of the Steve stuff about this on that show. Was that before we had the Matt watches? No, we just didn't use that much. Okay. Because Steve had a lot of stuff that took, that was... It was um, in subsequent weeks. It was the last day of our week. So the, sh- the show that he ran wasn't in our week. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. Jarrett retains control over Andrews Entertainment, Syndicate TV Networks, and ESPN time slots. Von Eric had filed an injunction of more than two weeks ago against Jarrett, contending the Memphis-Dallas promoter had illegally taken control of the old world-class promotion nearly two years ago. The injunction temporarily barred Jared from using a Von Eric name or likeness on any USWA shows. Von Eric, who was denied an attempt to take over booking of the Dallas USWA group four weeks ago, charged Jared was only brought in as a chief operating officer and was never meant to gain 60% stock control. Jared produced a 12-page contract for Von Eric's lawyers, which his attorneys contend, adequ- contend adequately support his position of majority control. The question number of observers have been asking is, is Jarrett's position, if Jarrett's position was sound, why did he cede the group to Von Eric? Several key reasons are evident. All right, real quick before we get into the key reasons, it's funny that all this shit starts up at the carry ladies, isn't it? It is, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Isn't that something? Also, I don't know if Kevin and Carrie could allegedly they were the other owners at the time or whatever, were reading the newsletters, but did, if even before we get into the rest, did they not, re- did no one realize that everyone thought that Jared had gotten 60% control? I don't, I mean, I thought it was pretty obvious. <laughs> I, 
let I guess let's keep going, but because uh, I'm curious to see what this all says. But what the yeah yeah, right, and here... that never gets brought up either, though. That this uh, this happens once Carrie's gone. No, it doesn't. All right, so if Jared's position was sound, why do you see the group binary? Well, here's the key: several key reasons, according to Steve. One, control the syndication network. Without the massive 105 station television network, which just lost outlets in Baltimore, Tampa, but added one in Boston, handled by syndicator Andrews Entertainment, the best Von Eric and apparent partner Gary Hart can hope to put together, like the old world class name, is a Texas roster of stations. Jarrett, for an interim period, has been either take the USWA show in Memphis or show a number of recent Mid South Coliseum matches for his A show challenge. Plus, AWA officials acknowledged last week and Matt Walsh reported three weeks ago that they're losing their weekly Monday slot on ESPN to Jarrett, who also retains his three-day-a-week, 4 p.m. Eastern Time Legends slot. Uh, the show that would air would be a show that Craig Johnson did in-house in Memphis, but it wasn't Men's Off Coliseum shows. Well, initially. So what happens once they run out of Sportatorium tapings is they do for... How long was it? About a month or so? Something like that, yeah. That they, Yeah, they have Craig Johnson in a studio throwing two matches that had aired on championship sports that had not aired nationally. Yes. Which, you know, worse ways to do that, at least while you're just killing time. And it's all pretty much the same crew anyway. Right. So, made sense. And throughout... Craig Johnson's promoting, you know, the all new, the season, the new season of USWA Challenge, promoting the upcoming Unified Title Tournament, and of course, these are the shows that give us the Snowman is injured and can't defend the title for thirty days. Which you you told me recently, you found a challenge. Was it a challenge show or was it a KTVT show where they did acknowledge? KTVT. So yeah, so hey, on, got a problem. What so about this, this? Was what the last KTVT show or? No. Um, hold on. Let me try and find the date on that. Um, so had he been in syndication, though, before the split? Uh, let's see. Uh, I, this, it aired on July 21st. And KTV shows him, ended him up running to, through late August, right? Yeah, him coming to Dallas. He's coming to Dallas to defend the title. Okay, and that's the only time they ever acknowledged a Memphis title change in Dallas, right? Uh, as far as I can remember, I with mean, with the unified title, certainly. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, I I gotta watch all those shows to to clarify. You know, but as far as I know, that was the only time. It because I mean, you and I remember. Like, it's been a long time ago. I mean, well, you, know? you had the Memphis TV though. You had all the TV. We didn't. So all of a sudden, it's here's this guy, the snowman, who we hadn't seen anyway, and now the title, he's being stripped of the title. Um, and of yeah. course, also, if you're watching in Memphis or one of those markets, you're probably confused because on TV, you had Eddie Marlin ranting about snowman no-showing and maybe pawning the belt for crack. Well, yeah, I mean, the, they showed snowman stuff, but again, it was the Memphis show, but it was edited in Atlanta down to a 60 minute show. So it was a, like a special type of show. Well, by this, t by this time of the year, though, the loop show had gone back to being an, a 60 minute WMC show. Mm, I'm no. pretty sure you, no. you think it's still I, the Michael I, St. I, John show by September? 
Uh, oh, I know that the Michael St. John show was definitely running in like July and August. Hold on, let me look because, because I, I have some, I have some on DVD from Evansville. I feel like I was talking to someone about this recently, and we agreed that they were done with the Michael St. John hybrid show by like June. I think it went in July. I think it definitely went in July. Uh, okay, wait. So I think there's one that's July the seventh. I know. I think that's a uh, Michael St. John show from Evansville. But- it definitely went into it, it went into the snowman rain for sure. Uh, da, 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 wait, USWA. Oh wait, this is showing other stuff first. Does does Trader Jack have the stuff labeled as Evansville if I put that word in? He doesn't have 90 shows on his YouTube channel. Oh, he doesn't? Does anyone have those up? They're scattered. Different people uh, have it. Okay. He, he he goes to 89. That's when he ends it. Okay. I did not realize that, but I'm fairly, yeah, okay, the stuff, I'm trying to see what the latest Evansville show I can find in this playlist is, okay, I'm only seeing Challenge and Championship Sports. Anyway, we're belaboring this anyway, the point, it was just, it was a little weird to watch at the time, Um, you know, especially as a kid, but they end up going into the you know, the unified title tournament, they get six weeks of TV out of that, and it's really good TV, and they keep taping around the territory. They try to get a lot of TV out of individual house shows, and after, because they, I want to say they taped, like, 12 or more weeks, like, in back-to-back nights. That's the one where you can hear Craig Johnson losing his voice. And then I think they did one or two more tapings after that, and then they ended up back in Dallas at the end of the year. Yeah, they did the best they could in the situation they were in. And then the time came, and they got back in Dallas. So as in January, so there you go. And for me, who wasn't getting the Memphis stuff, it was particularly fun because we're see- I'm seeing the Memphis guys and, you know, Dave Brown being brought in for one of the tapings and all that. You know, yeah. it was a different flavor from the Dallas shows. Yeah. All right. Uh, number two, availability of wrestlers. Insiders Matt Watch has spoken with believe few existing USWA wrestlers will go over to the Von Air Cart camp, and lead announcer Craig Johnson is firmly committed to Jared. One source very close to the group told Matt Watch, anyone, anyone who goes to work for Kevin will probably come running back in a month. And the first part ends up not being the case because it ends up mostly being the same Dallas crew that works for Kevin. Well, we'll talk about that in a second because we got the results of the show. Yes. But uh, let's just be honest here. Uh, the source talking to Matt Watch is Craig Johnson. <laughs> I mean, really. Come on. Let's be honest. Well, I'm sure Pettacino's <laughs> in the mix, too. But... Well, yeah, we'll have more on him throughout this show. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And uh, number three, USBA tournament. As far as TV coverage, Jared appears to be well in the driver's seat as during his IS for Dallas. He'll probably run the key match for the USWA Heavyweight Championship Tournament on his syndicated shows, which could include some major names. Now, there is something that ends up being an issue from that, which is, was it WMC that cried foul when we covered this previously? Uh, yes. Okay, I yes. I think it was last year that we did a 1990 show from several uh, weeks later. Mm, we did. We did 1990, uh, yeah, no, not last year, it was like two years ago. That we did a fall so, 90 show. 224 we did November. Okay. Six. And it came up, I think, in Matt Watch that 
the according to the contract between WMC and the promotion, WMC had exclusive rights to Mid-South Coliseum matches in the Memphis market. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they cried foul over the Challenge affiliate running the title tournament shows. So I want to say it was after the first week or so they ran reruns until they cycled into the Louisville and Nashville tapings. Very confusing. Which you is know, also but... just weird because why would that be in the contract when they didn't show full Mid-South Coliseum matches? Yeah. There's weirdness to that. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? But but it's also this is there's also heat in this era with Jarrett and the Memphis station because there was the thought that he was going to drop the Saturday morning slot. You know that was a, that was a big rumor. Well, that they no, were, it wasn't that he was going to drop the time slot. That he was going to drop the studio well, he wrestling. Was, he dropped the studio wrestling. Yes. So Jarrett, yeah, yeah, you're right. So Jarrett wasn't exactly on the greatest returns to WMC at this time. That's what that right? Because I, I think the idea was he wanted to do a live feed of the Saturday morning Dallas tapings. Yeah, I think so. And he wanted to replace the studio show with that. Because also, people compare what was airing on WMC to what was airing everywhere else at different times of the year, because there are times where Memphis is like the B show. And it's very clear, you know, Lawler feuding with rookie Mike Awesome type stuff. It's different. And, 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 and to, it's different, you know, until the snowman deal happened. That gave it a little uh, little juice. I mean, well, don't forget, I mean, you got Lawler and JYD having a feud. Well, that's across, both, that's across both halves of the territory. Yeah. Lawler and Jimmy Valiant flip-flopping the belt. Yes. Um, I mean, there's there's stuff going on. There Southern Rock, Southern Rockers in the in uh, the stud stable for the USWA tag belt feud. I mean, there's stuff going on in Memphis, and then Gilbert comes in, and that's when the time where everything shifts. Yes, but clearly, Jarrett is trying to make a play towards something bigger from having control of a major market wrestling show. He definitely wanted to to have the Fort Worth show be the show on WMC. Absolutely. Well, he wanted to syndicate it nationally as a live show. Yeah. Well, and, the big and there was seven. just no interest in Acme, so they didn't end up doing it. Yeah. All right, but all these factors aside, there remains one more underlying key. Jared Shrew- Jarrett's shrewdness as a businessman. A lot of people are asking why Jarrett just let Kevin have it when he probably could have won the thing a quarter, Key Insider told us. Fact is, even if a short court fight would have been expensive, here's the real key. Until now, Jarrett only owns 6% of the USWA. But if Kevin goes in there and without strong TV bombs out in a month or two, Jarrett would be probably going to go right back into the Sportatorium. And this time he'll go in as a 100% owner. Plus, he has his indication and ESPN all locked up. So he'd be hard put to lose. And, and that's exactly what fucking happened. Yes, that's about, that's exactly what I was about to say. Jared Jared promotions are always lean operations. Most of wrestlers do not make big bucks, ex- except when outside talent's brought in for special shows, such as the upcoming tournament. He does not spend big money on travel costs. Virtually all the Memphis series shows women driving distance each night. And the exception of Mississippi Coliseum, with which he has a special deal for his weekly Monday bookings, he does not have expensive rent for big arenas. Same thing in Dallas. When they run house shows in Dallas, it's all real close to Dallas. So, yeah, nothing to it. Well, the 
the spot shows in Dallas were all Chris Adams shows anyway. Yeah, but still, for the talent, they're all still driving, you know. Yeah. Man. So, a source in a position to know recently told Steve that Jarrett's books look as good as you can imagine for an operation his size, and he continues to turn a profit when it's the leanest of times for independent groups. Most insiders are predicting Jarrett will win whatever fight there is here because of his savvy in business. Regardless, the consistency is giving Dallas back to Kevin may, in time, reap one of the biggest victories ever. And it was. I mean, he, he let Kevin go in there and let Kevin flame out. And, it, and just went right back in and, like, here we, I'm back. <laughs> you know? Yep. All right, so let's talk about the show. With the departure of Jerry Jerry from Dallas, now we're going to Dave Meltzer. With the departure of Jerry Jerry from Dallas, Kevin Vineric has renamed the promotion World Class Championship Wrestling. And his first card on September 14th, which was promoted off the final airing of USWA on Channel 11, before Titan got the slot, drew 375 fans. And what Dave means is they promoted there was a sportatorium show on Friday night, but the show aired before all this happened, so the fans knew there was a show, and basically what they did was they went with what was booked on that show. So what Jared had using a, the local talent that was well, on that the show. talent that yeah. well using the people that was still that was still there yes yeah. so, so but they drew 375 Titan got the slot yeah the, the, that's another thing too this and all this that was the last airing of USWA on KTVT the Saturday before this so, so that's Jerry, why Jared, Jared being Jerry Jared, Jared is like well wait a second I'm not gonna have good local TV for the time being anyway yeah. <laughs> so why not? Yeah, exactly. Let this motherfucker do it. He want, he's been bitching. He want he wants control. All right, here you go. You got it. Let's see you let's see you take this promotion with no television and see what you can do with it. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, uh it drew three seventy five, which is well below what the group been averaging of late, even with a Tony Adams Genie Clark no DQ match on the card. Kevin hired a camera crew to film the car, and it was the same crew that had worked at Sportatorium previously, but they were using different equipment. Apparently, Kevin is going to try and shut the tape around town and come up with a new TV outlet. In addition, Kevin fired announcer Craig Johnson. That's a different story. And had three new announcers doing the show with Bill Mercer overseeing them. This is Dave or Steve? This is Dave. Okay. Uh, Kevin apparently wants to bring back Mercer and Mark Lawrence to the announcement if he's to have his way. Wrestlers who worked the car were saying it was the most disorganized show anyone can remember. Well, there were midweek rumors that Grizzly Smith would come in as the booker, which followed what everyone thought with Gary Hart as the booker. It appeared Kevin was running the whole shebang by himself. As in the glory days, quote-unquote, the promotion of the car itself started 25 minutes late, and there are 20 to 25-minute breaks between each and every match. Almost nobody was left in the building when a final match of the car took place. While World Class got away with long breaks between matches back in the early 80s, few believe fans will put up with that today. And with no television, at least temporarily, it's going to be next to impossible to draw new fans. The only advertising outlet right now is the World Class Hotline at Swordatorio. And they still hadn't changed the tape, which gave the lineup for this past Friday as a Monday afternoon. WCCW, everybody. My goodness. All right, here are the results of this show. The rock, rock and Roll RPMs, Mike Davis and Kevin Dillinger over Rock and Randy and Jimmy James. John Tatum over Stephen Dane using the trunks. So John Tatum had his hand on Stephen Dane's 
Uh, you got to Okay, you said it yourself. Good. Yeah. Angel of Death with a double count out with Billy Joe Travis. Kevin Von Erich and the Boss Wannabe beat Gary Young and Katniss Jack Manson by disqualification in a weird match. Beast would tag him, but whenever Scandal Atmar was sitting up for him not to attack the heels, he'd stand dead in his tracks. So it's basically Kevin against both of them. Beast had a guy in his corner named Baboose. But the story was that Atmar's power over him was stronger than Baboose, who's a babyface. Um, that match was supposed to be Jeff Jarrett and Kamala versus Gary Young and Jack. Yes, yes. So you're see, so, they're using so obviously mixed flight because he's not a regular was already purchased, etc. So they're using Kevin to replace Jeff and Boss Wanna Beast replace Kamala. I, that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Also, and, I, I'm surprised by Billy Joe Travis being there though. Yeah. Any, anyway, Tatum and all right. Anyway, Tatum and from DQ to set next week's main event, but at far Young Beast and Manson all just walked off when Tatum was attacking Kevin, which made little sense. And Tony Adams beat Jeannie Clark in a no-DQ match where Chris Adams and Steve Austin interfered freely with Tony clipping trunks of Jeannie's hair. Actually, hair extensions with scissors. And in the main event saw Iceman King Parsons against Skip Young, but nobody stayed. The only no-shows were Jeff Jarrett, Kamala, and Bill Dundee. They also didn't sell any Jarrett, Dundee, or Lawler gimmicks, which is how most of the fans realized things had changed. Kevin got publicity for the show in the Dallas newspaper when he visited some local gangs and tried to talk them out of being gangs. <laughs> and said all the revenue show would go to the gangs to fund activities to keep them straight. Dave said, somehow I find that hard to believe since this new company doesn't appear to have any source of new capital and this is the first of its incoming revenue and things only get tougher promoting without television. <laughs> Kevin and the gangs! <sighs> I would, I would love yeah, this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, for some reason I was logged out of newspapers.com, but I'm heading there and then to Genealogy Bank after if I'm not getting any good results. What the hell? <laughs> you think Kevin asked him where he could get the good stuff at? That's for them when he was uh, Okay, so we don't have any hits for Kevin Von Erich from September 1990 on newspapers.com. Because um, they have Fort Worth Star Telegram, right? And then yeah, they, yeah, they got Fort Worth Star Telegram and Geology. I think has Dallas Morning News. That's what I thought. No Dallas Observer though. No. Okay, so that's oh nine oh one slash nineteen ninety to yeah. Let's do through the end of the month. Thirty. Let's see. We better get a result here. I need to hear more about this. No. No hits for Kevin Von Erich in September nineteen ninety on Geology Bank. Oh well. Does Archives have anything from the Metroplex? No. No. No, they don't. Uh, so, no. by process of elimination, if this story is true, it's the Dallas Observer? Probably. Okay. Well, that sucks. The, the Texas Roundup we have is not during our week. No. Um. I mean, I could look on... Uh, I could see if there's anything on... ProQuest or whatever, but a lot of their stuff overlaps with newspapers.com. So, I'd love to know more about that, especially... Oh, wait, Dallas Observer is a weekly. It's an alt-weekly. So what would no. this even be? I don't know. Who knows with Dave? <laughs> he just says well, Dallas... Well, yes, yes. And also, it's Kevin in the newspaper, too, so who even knows? You know, there's the story we love about him in St. Louis and ranting about the homosexuals. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of Kevin, this is a great Kevin story. 
Before the car, they take the segment outside for the TV where a limo came in and fans were told to gather around the limo because one of the biggest stars in the country was inside. He was making a surprise return. When it turned out to be Kevin, about 60 of the 80 people just groaned and walked away. (laughs) Also, he's only been gone for a few months. And he'd been working Gary Hart's TV at the same time, so... One of the biggest stars in the country, Banks. Kevin. You mean Kevin? <laughs> oh my god. What a, what a fascinating creature he is. <laughs> He's changed. But man, he was something else back then. Good lord uh... of mercy. <laughs> Alright, back to Matt Watch. Matt Watch has learned that Chris Adams has been a catalyst in forging the split between Von Eric and Jerry Jarrett. But Skandar, I bought a number of wrestlers called Jarrett. That's permission to work the show. Jarrett reportedly agreed in order to allow the performers to maintain an income. Well, there you go. Chris Adams, huh? <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why Chris Adams is stirring the shit between Kevin and Jeff and, and uh, Jerry. Um, hmm. I wonder if it has to do with worrying that his program will get blamed for the KTVT thing and he's trying to keep his options open or what? Either that or he's trying to politic his way into getting more power. Since he's, he, you know, he right now is just a spot show promoter that maybe Kevin would give him more power than he already has. Hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Possible. But, yeah, but... You know, Chris Adams doesn't come back when they go back to Dallas, does he? Mm, no, he does not. Mm-hmm. Austin does. Mm-hmm. Let me yep. see real quick if the... The only hit I got on ProQuest was Norm DaCosta's Toronto uh, wrestling column, and it looked... That wouldn't have anything on Yeah, this so. is just about the... Uh, this is just a brief blurb about what we're talking about here. Yeah. All right, so... Um... Staying with Matt Watch, Reverend Bob Holly, not the wrestler, not Bob was, Howard, no, was the play-by-play announcer for the broadcast, but details were sketchy at deadline as to when or if the program would air. It doesn't. Reverend Bob Holly, who is Reverend Bob Holly? Was he the guy that would join Craig at times as an announcer in 1990? I don't remember that. Gary or was, Holder that- was the old world-class chaplain. Yeah, I was thinking, because uh, there was a preacher that would announce with Craig ever so often. And was he a friend of Lawrence? He wasn't with Lawrence. He, was, he would announce with Craig. Well, I said, is he a friend of Lawrence? I'm just trying to figure out how he ended up. Hmm. I have no idea. But, but yeah, there was uh, Reverend Bob Holly or whatever he is. So there's the guy who was announcing. Um Supposedly Bill Mercer was producing. Okay. So, Dave said he was surprised Jarrett stayed since Jarrett, Travis stayed since Jarrett pretty much was the, the impression that me and the guys would pull out and wait for him to return. But then I pulled out that so Dundee and Jeff really were full-time Memphis anyway. I think we got what we got from from Steve saying that Jarrett gave his blessing. So Yes. Which I'm guessing with Travis, it's just that he happened to be spending more time in Dallas at the time. Yeah, because... So it was already there or whatever. 
Yeah, so, and we go, since this is uh, the 14th to the 21st, we have the next show. So Kevin's first week without any television saw uh, the crowd drop to 246 fans on September 21st. As Texas Tom Fowler went to a draw with Kevin Dillinger, Rockin' Randy Ricci over Mike Davis, Ice Man over Skip Young, California Stud Rob Price and Gary Young over Billy Joe Travis and Stephen Dane. When Young pinned Travis at Scandar, Scandar, Scandar used the whip on Travis. And then Chris and Tony Adams beat Percy Pringle Steve Austin by DQ when Gene Clark interfered. In the main event, saw Kevin over John Tatum by DQ when Atbar interfered. Mmm. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, back to Steve Everly. One offshoot of Kevin Von Erich, Gary Hart promotion in Dallas is reporting negotiations for Akeem to the WF to return as the one-man gang. At least that's what's being discussed. Yeah, real quick, Gary Hart's still running his group. Yes, TWF. TWF. They're just, you know, they're aligned with Kevin. Yes. So. Part of the idea was, at least according to Gary Hart's book, was that he was there to show Jarrett that if what if um if Jared pulled everyone out, Kevin still had a card. Yeah, which didn't end up mattering anyway because most guys didn't pull out with Jared, and Jared gave them permission. Yeah, and all right. As, as at least as Gary explained it in his book, which it's not, which it doesn't look like it's in the. Uh, earlier draft that's online. This is something that was in the published book that I don't think is in here. Um, Kevin said he had stopped getting dividend checks, and that's what set everything off. Well, funny you say that. Kevin Aaron told the Japanese press that Jarrett stole, quote-unquote, one to two million dollars during the period he was in control of the Dallas office, and he still wants to press criminal charges, even though he's got the promotion under control. <laughs> stole! One or two million dollars. If he just wasn't paying him, though, why wouldn't Kevin be pursuing this? Again, why is this all a problem all of a sudden now? It wasn't a problem when Carrie was there. Hmm? <sighs> and Kevin was working there! We just played the, the, well, the, I think the, the last 1990 show we did. What, wasn't that the whole birthday party angle where Kevin and Carrie are there with the cake and all that stuff? We just did 1990 uh, a, a, a couple months ago. Plus, he had done the Tessa thing before the Dundee feud, too. I'm looking to see when the last 1990 show we did was. Oh, May 17th to 25th. So in May, he's there. Working. No problems. Funny. Funny, funny, funny. Uh, but what do you think that means, then? Do you think it was just simply a matter of Carrie being someone who got along with Jared, so he was the peacemaker? I think the no, I think the final straw of the whole thing was that Kevin knew that Jarrett was going too far with the the Jeannie Clark stuff and they were losing the KTV slot and Kevin and Kevin's like we got I got we got to get control back because it's makes like sense because it's, it's like you you just cost us KTVT. We've had that slot for decades and decades. Yes. That's probably that that's probably the big thing really now that I think about it. They went over the line. Okay, Kev- I, I just pulled up Kevin's cage match. When yeah. do you think Kevin actually last worked for Jarrett, at least based on results we have? Uh, Probably July. August 3rd. August 3rd, yeah. So it's the KTV thing. KTVT thing. It and has the back- to be. And the backlash over Tony. When does the cancellation news come in, actually? Let's see. I think that's in the Observer Index. 
I think it's in August because the last show is yeah, on. Yeah, replaces USW. Well, if they knew they were canceled for several weeks before the last show, but yeah. the Observer with the headline about replacing USWA with WWF, which is the only entry for KTVT in the Observer Index, is the August 13th issue. So, yeah, there's what happened, clearly. <laughs> they lose the KTVT slot within a couple days of his last booking. He's like, fuck that, and gets the ball rolling on this. Makes perfect sense. Now we put that together, doesn't it? How did no one notice that at the time, though? Funny how that works on this show when we, we, we come up with these things and they're sitting there, you know, and it takes us a minute to do it. But, but this it, one doesn't even require, like, the aggregate information of a Patreon show. No, we just did figure that out. And we're minutes, looking but, at dates. I mean, we, we, we went from our original theory, which nobody had even mentioned, to now this theory, which is probably the truth, and still nobody mentioned. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but that's very obvious if you know that he just worked there. Well, look at the timing. You know? The timing says it right there. Pretty clear, yeah. Now, do you do you think Jarrett was embezzling at all? <sighs> I just feel like we don't have any evidence of it. I'm not going to say he was. I don't want to get in that, that well, shit. No, 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 no. But I'm saying, is there anything we have? What, let me rephrase. There's nothing we have here other than Kevin's claim. Right, that's, that's that's it. I don't think there was anything going on like that. I'm definitely gonna say it, and if I thought that, I definitely gonna say it on the air. So no, but also it's like, who knows what state Kevin is in? Jared was basically brought in to keep the adult brothers from ruining everything. Yes, you know, and I don't say that like as a slide on Kevin, since obviously well, he cleaned we know up and stuff. Well, back then, yeah, but back then, it's different times. We know the situation; it's well known. That's nothing. That's not. That's that's something that you can't allege. That's something you know. Yes. So, all right. Interesting to note that uh, both Gary Young and John Tana's names on the SW tournament show in Memphis, which shows Jarrett doesn't appear to be holding a grudge against those who work for Kevin. Has turned out most of Dallas-based talent with the work for Kevin, although until a television deal is struck, it's going to be an uphill battle. And I don't believe either guy ends up working the show. No. And let's clean up all the way together as we go to the Texas Wrestling Federation, which is uh, interesting stuff here. At the Metroplex on September the 16th, they, they drew 175 at the arena in Dallas. California stud Rob Price over the great Bolo, Tom Ernesto Jr. Tom Branch. Tom Branch. Action Jackson over Johnny Mantel by DQ. Chris Von Eric over Mr. Black. A guy in all black, which was Tony Falk. Match looks stupid because of the huge size difference. Yes, Tony Falk was a big man. But also, Tony Falk being with Gary Hart at this time is interesting. I know they had a good relationship, but interesting that he's on these, uh, this side of the battle lines at this time. Well, he's local at this time. That's why. Yeah. That's right, because he had been working as a ref for a while. Mm-hmm. He'd been in Dallas since 87. Consecutively? Mm-hmm. Continuously? Yeah, I guess he had. Yeah, he, I mean, he had a, a little... He would go to Puerto Rico here and there, but yeah, he was a Dallas guy. He went down there He went down there right before Embry, and they and they were there together for the yes. whole run. Uh, Gary Hart claimed that originally he was going to be coming in as boy Tony. I don't know if I buy that. 
but that Gary didn't want to do that, so that's how he became Cowboy Tony. I'm trying to remember if he did do Cowboy Tony. Let me see. Because I think they may have done that gimmick once. Like one match in Dallas. Yeah, I'm checking like right. again. Yeah, I'm checking right now. My Cowboy Tony. Because it would probably be his last match as Boy Tony, right? Yeah, I'm checking. Uh, he's Cowboy Tony in June 87. Yep, Boy Tony, May 29th, 1987, team with Eric Embry against the Fantastics. Boy Tony against Tony Atlas, May 15th. Yep, so he did do Boy Tony gimmick on two Sportorium tapings. Oh, wait, this includes, yeah, this includes Cowboy Tony, too, but yeah. Um, so there you go. I'm looking through my TV TV results. Yeah, okay, have. I'm looking at Cage Match. Cage Match has him as Boy Tony in Dallas from... Let's well, but let, me tell me, let me tell you. I know. I've, I've got all the TV charter from World Class. Everybody. I'm not just talking about TV, though. Uh, yeah, but I'm saying on TV, he's on those two tapings. He's boy, he's boy Tony, and in the first taping in June, which would have been the 12th, he's Cowboy Tony. Okay. So, yeah. All right, uh, back to TWF. So is that stuff on the network? Yes. Okay. Terry Gordy beat Iceman Key Parsons by DQ when the California Stud interfered. Man, this supposed to be a women's mud match with Terrence Garvin as the referee. Iceman and Stud beat up Garvin before the match he was starting. Gordy made the save to set up Gordy and Garvin versus Iceman and Stud next Sunday. No news on the women's mud match if it took place or not. The entire car was held in the steel cage. So every match was a steel cage match, although that the door unlocked to allow for run-ins. <sighs> Why? Why? Gary Hart's remaining as the booker here, even though meanings figure he went up in world class. Well, we know why. A correction from last week, though. Lee Campbell wasn't fired as a promoter. In fact, he's still promoting these shows. Campbell quit two weeks ago over a dispute with the building owner, but it was resolved the next day. We reported, the Observer, that Campbell was fired over a women's training mishap, which resulted in legal action. Actually, Campbell had nothing to do with it. Rod Price was training the girl who did smash her toe and broke her ankle, landed wrong on a suplex, and the surgery, but there's no litigation involved at all. Thoughts? I forget who Lee Campbell was, though. Like, and why do you need a promoter? Why? Why is it just not not just the Metroplex Arena guy who's the promoter? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? But uh, wild times in the Metroplex for sure. My goodness. So now to that foolishness, now let's go to the World Wrestling Federation. You mean the promotion that is usurping KTVT, the Super Ones? <laughs> yeah, but they got more TV uh, things going on with them. It's a bigger bigger fish to fry. And we start with Matt Watch. World Wrestling Federation has reached an agreement for a February primetime special on the Fox Network. Though apparently was not given a fourth annual primetime slot on NBC, Titan will retain their Saturday Night's main event specials on NBC. And this ends up not happening. No, it does not. But, as we continue with Matt Watch, Kongi Sports, headed by Joe Pedicino, which had been negotiating with Fox, was told of the decision on September 14th. Pedicino was told by a Fox executive the network would continue to talk with Kongi if this proposed promotion gets off the ground early next year. But Fox chairman Barry Diller said the network went with WWF for what has been described as a two-hour, one-time special 
because of their track record. And we'll, we'll have more on the Kongi Fox Network deal later on in the show. But uh, but is it me or is this clearly something that Steve got from Joe that is just mired in Kongi bullshit? Well, let's continue as now we go to Dave. The word that World's Federation signed for a primetime Fox Network special this coming February may turn out to be more significant than it sounds on the surface. While Fox is paying the WF more for production of the show than the NBC does for their specials, there's still greater prestige in it being on NBC than Fox. At the same time, with the two as competitors, one wonders whether or not NBC will think highly of Titan doing a special on Fox when much of Titan's prestige has come from his association with NBC over the five, past five-plus years. Even more intriguing is that the, at the Saturday Night Main Event taping in Toledo on September 18th, an angle was run where Teddy DiBiase and Virgil attacked Dustin Rhodes, who was sitting in the audience, while Dusty Rhodes-Randy Savage match was taking place. And as part of the angle, Dustin juiced a gusher. Titan ran into trouble in 1989 when he aired Blood by a Blade wound, which was expressly against NBC standards, and in violation of Titan's contract with the network. While some are saying the juice was hard way or an accident, if that's the case, it'll be edited out the show. Dave's guess is far too coincidental than anything be but part of an angle, and if that's the case, then either the WF got an exemption for whatever reason from the network, or that maybe relations aren't as so good between the two, and Titan's ready to go to Fox. One would think Titan could negotiate better time slots with Fox and NBC, and run more specials at times when kids could watch. More than MCI bigs. But the word that means Dave is not reporting this himself, necessarily. But Dave has... But he has extra details that Steve doesn't have. <laughs> and, he, and he supposedly knows what the production costs are going to be. What do you think is going on here? I'm not really sure. I'm trying to parse this. <laughs> Me too. I don't. I I, I don't know. Um, I really don't know what to say. Something missing here. And and yes, isn't it interesting that uh, the guy in charge of Fox at this time is Barry Diller? Yes. <laughs> Flirting with wrestling companies as well. Well, his mind would change on that. <laughs> but yeah, that is uh, that's something else. Um, I mean, it's still 1990. Fox, uh, WF is still doing great ratings on NBC. Fox, you know, definitely could use that to help out what they got going on. So... Why not? No, and they haven't used it to piss off. I mean, haven't used the war stuff. That hasn't happened yet to piss off NBC. But, I don't know, this is weird, though. Like, like if they could get good specials and good times, it makes sense, but this doesn't happen, and it's not clear why, and does anyone even report why it doesn't happen? Um, no. Not that I know of. I don't remember it. How, how often does the word Fox come up in the Observer Index in the earlier years? Let's see. Well, Fox have flirted with wrestling for a long time. You know? Yeah. So this is the October 1st Observer where this is first reported. Um, Let's see. Yeah, there's no follow-up about this in the, uh, whatchamacallit, in the Index at least. So, I mean, who knows? 
I mean, it's it's one that we've we've seen those we've seen these stories on on the show where we we had this news prom, you know put out there and treat it as a big deal and then it's never talked about again. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, we forgot about that. <laughs> we're wrong. We had it wrong. We're, we're we forgot about that. But how much do you think is is just Pentacino stuff? I think I think there's a lot to it. I think he's I got to think he and his people are the main sources for this, right? Yes. They're putting it out there because they have been supposedly talking to Fox and they need an excuse why they were not getting on Fox. Yeah. Um, I'm in Matt watch now and I've been skipped ahead a full month and there's nothing else in there. Well, there you go. So, yeah, not surprised by that. Not surprised by that at all. All right. So anyway, let's talk about something else that's going on. In addition, WF filed suit against the New Jersey State Athletic Commission for its tax on television revenue. Titan admitted to the state legislature in 1989 that Russell was predetermined that the participants worked together to put on a show as a way to rid itself of the commission's regulation. The move garnered a lot of publicity and did result eventually in a few states, most notably California, dropping regulation. However, in New Jersey, the governor pocket vetoed the bill. In other words, he simply didn't sign the bill until his time expired, thus the bill was killed. So Titan lost that fight. Titan is both getting the bill reintroduced in the legislature and is also attacking the commission through the courts, claiming that pro wrestling isn't a sport, but it's an art form. Thus, it's protected from athletic tax. State commission has counterfiled a suit against Titan Sports, and a judge denied the motion from both sides, so it appears the case will be decided by a jury. Okay. So if I'm looking at things right, so there's actually two uh, rulings from this case that are online on case text. One is from August 90, which I guess is what's being talked about here. And then the other is February 92, and I'm trying to remember which is um, which is the one I've read before. Here's something interesting, though. I don't know if the spelling is correct, but you know what the name of one of uh, Titan's lawyers is here? What? Mark Ratner. Yeah, well. Is is that Mark Ratner a lawyer? It's either that or the... Uh, the, the okay, no, it's a different guy. It's just a coincidence. And then there's a character named Mark Ratner in the uh, uh, movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> That's a whole other story. But this, okay, this Mark S. Ratner with two T's guy is a different guy, and it looks like he's still at the same firm. But uh, then Ted Dinsmore, who's another name we've seen in WWF stuff, is also... Well, uh, yes. He's he's like their main pre K and L Gates guy, I guess, right? Yeah, and it's spelled differently than Nick Densmore. No, D I N S M O O R. All right, so let's see. So this is so okay. So the ruling that is presumably, um, the one that's being talked about here. All right, so this is them in tax court. This is once they couldn't get wrestling deregulated by the commission in. 89 because it only passed one house that's the thing everyone always forgets even though some people remember the christy whitman thing from 97 when it's finally deregulated their move with exposing the business to the commission or in the hearings or whatever in 89 it didn't work 
So they filed this lawsuit in New Jersey tax court to try to get around it that way. Like, okay, fine, we're we're okay with being regulated if we don't have to pay the stupid sport tax. Okay. So let's read some of this. So this is from the background, or as what Titan puts it in their complaint, the statutory scheme. The tax in issue was imposed as part of legislation regulating boxing, wrestling, kick, boxing, and combative sports. The stated purposes of this legislation are protect the safety and well-being, blah, 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 and promote the public confidence and trust in the regulatory process and the conduct of boxing, wrestling, kickboxing, and combative sports and exhibitions. Um, so blah, 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 what, does, what do they do? So graduated tax on ticket sales. So here is what WWF doesn't like as far as the media rights tax. Because remember, that it's not just the regular, it's not the regular taxes that they're especially concerned with. They'd obviously wouldn't like the regular commission taxes, or they don't like them, they'd rather they be gone, but it's this extra tax on TV and pay-per-view that is keeping them from running TV and pay-per-view in Jersey. So here's the tax. So it's a declining basis. 5% on the first 50,000, 3% on the next 100,000, 2% on the next 100,000 after that, and 1% on amounts in ex excess of 250,000 with a cap of $100,000 taxes paid. And they must be paid within seven days of the conclusion of the event. <laughs> Which, if it's a pay-per-view, how are they even supposed to do that? It's also, I don't know, I mean... Uh, and it's it's New Jersey trying to get trying to get their chunk, you know. And I don't blame WF for doing for doing what they did because they try, hey, they're a business, you know. They're and business. Also, obviously, it's better to have someone overseeing the health and safety or whatever and other stuff with the wrestlers. But most commissions are bullshit. So it ain't about that. It's about the money. No, no, Bo, no, no, no. Bo, I'm Bo saying Jane, from our perspective. From our perspective. I know. But Bo James, Bo James could tell you immediately what the commission's about. You know. Well, that's what I was saying. Most commissions are bullshit anyway. Exactly. So, so it, 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 you don't give a fuck. So they talk about the <laughs> they, background. With their money. Yeah, you know, pro wrestling exhibitions throughout the world. So then we get this. Titan has submitted affidavits of Linda McMahon, its executive vice president. And Gerald Morton, an expert on modern professional wrestling. Yes, to help their case, I guess they paid as an expert witness Gerald W. Morton, one of the authors of the book From Wrestling to Wrestling, <laughs> which is like the first of the academic wrestling books. So, interesting, I did not realize that. These affidavits state that the struggle between the wrestlers is actually simulated. And that there is no real competition to win. Also, according to the affidavits, the wrestlers play distinct characters or personas and act out moral sagas in a form of drama that includes, quote, plots, subplots, characterization, theme improvisation, spectacle, acrobatic expression, critical expression, moral expression, and political <laughs> expression. End quote. I'm guessing that's Morton and not Linda. Uh, Yeah. The board has not submitted any certification to the contrary. The board being the Athletic Control Board, because that's what it is in New Jersey. The New Jersey State Athletic Control Board It is not called the Athletic Commission, officially. So then we get this. On March 27, 1988, Titan held a wrestling exhibition known as WrestleMania IV in Atlantic City, New Jersey. 
Prior to the event, Titan ob obtained an appropriate license from the board. Subsequent to the event, a tax on the sale of tickets to the event was duly paid to the board. During the exhibition, a video program was made, which was distributed through various cable television operators, closed-circuit television theaters, and television broadcasting networks around the world. All contractual <laughs> arrangements for the distribution were made by mail from Titan's corporate headquarters in Connecticut. Titan entered license agreements with 615 cable television operators to cable cast the program to pay-per-view customers throughout the country. God, do you think about what a mess pay-per-view as a business used to be. Horrible. Mine, and I, like I said, I couldn't even get it. You know, oh, I mean, you didn't you, have pay-per-view. I told you. I mean, I, no, because I didn't have I didn't have any type of box or anything. Oh, okay. And your cable company oh, didn't store? even have boxes yet. Not that I know of. <laughs> okay. Um, twenty-two of these operators were located in New Jersey. Titan received approximately. $5,973,358 on these transactions, of which $461,890 was from the New Jersey operators. WrestleMania 4 was also shown almost simultaneously, almost, on closed circuit TV, blah, 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 129 theaters, nine of which were in New Jersey, and received uh, over $5.5 million in ticket sales of that amount. Wow. Over 1.5 million in closed circuit ticket sales in Jersey alone for Mania 4. Mm -hmm. that, that's impressive. Well, yeah. Um, Titan paid $15,545.29 in media rights tax. And via International Television Network, this part's interesting. It doesn't say how many deals this was. They, made, they only made $83,496 for that. And also, you know, video replay rights for the uh, cable companies. So the board imposed a media rights tax on WrestleMania 4 in the amount of $61,639. Titan did not voluntarily pay the entire amount of the tax assessed despite requests by the board. Therefore, on July 25th, 1988, the board notified Titan that it would not be licensed to conduct further wrestling exhibitions in New Jersey until the tax was paid. The board also rescinded approval pending payment of the tax for two other live events scheduled to take place in New Jersey. Thereafter, Titan paid the paid the money. So then, WrestleMania five, um, and then they also they talk about a little. They I don't know if they give all the details on it, but then also they talk about how. So remember, MSG was being renovated in eighty nine. So they showed some shows from um, Meadowlands. Meadowlands and Nassau. How much do you think Titan received just for that one Meadowlands show in eighty nine? No idea. Thirty-two grand. Okay. From MSG Network, and then on August twenty-eighth was SummerSlam. You know, same basic way as Mania four and five. Um, they talked about independent contractors, blah blah blah. The board has submitted affidavits that several wrestlers have been injured while participating in events promoted by Titan and other wrestling promoters. In some cases, hospitalization was required while the risks have been challenged. The risks of this activity have been challenged in this patient's brief. They have not submitted affidavits or depositions regarding the safety of the wrestlers. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all. The money, as Vince would say. Yeah, and this goes to something we talked about last week when we were talking about Charles Austin and with regards to the Jesse case being at the same time. What did I tell everyone that Charles Austin's lawyer said won, it, won them the case? 
that in all this lobbying and stuff, WWF tried to push that wrestling was completely safe and had no real danger. And here we go, right here in court records from one of those efforts that Titan had downplayed it in trying to get wrestling deregulated or tax less or whatever. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So this is what they're trying to fight, but that's, you know, the gist of it. Yeah. There's more here, obviously, but we're not going to read it, but this is what we're talking about as far as money and everything. And I don't think they win anything here. I think they just stick with it until finally the right people get in power and then they're deregulated in 97. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the wrestling. And real so, quick, though, it is just funny that the lawyers named Mark Ratner. Even if it's about different. Okay. Superstars of Wrestling, a Saturday Night event was taped on September 18th in Toledo, Ohio. Matches that they believe was taped for Saturday Night event saw Sardner Slaughter beat Coco Beware with the Noogies. And that's what it says. And during the well, match, that's what Vol it was. Yeah. And during the match, Volkov shows up waving the American flag. Um, Texas Tornado used the Tornado Punch to keep the IC title, beating Haku in 310. Legion of Doom Ultimate Warrior beat Demolition, all three members of a brawl which saw lots of missed moves. Randy Savage over Dusty by Countout in 930 in the big angle of the show. Dusty was sitting at ringside, came up a few minutes earlier. When Ted and Virgil came out and gave $100 bills to the fans sitting around Dustin, told this wasn't a work. They actually passed out several hundred dollars to get the fans leave for the match. Anyway, they argued throughout the match until Dustin, Ted, DiBiase, and Ted and Virgil beat up on him. Dustin came out for the save. Savage tapped from behind and beat him on the countout. After the match, DiBiase, Virgil, and Savage destroyed the Rhodes clan using chairs, and Dustin played the major gusher. I think we've done that. We did that show when it aired. And, I mean, yeah, that's a hardcore angle for WWF 1990, folks. Very hardcore angle. Yeah, and I think, uh, did we do that when it aired? I'm trying to remember when we yeah. talked about Because I know we talked about it, but I can't remember how we much did, it was uh, that and how much was the Dustin show. Okay, we maybe we didn't do uh, that week. Because we, the, uh, the last week after this week, it's October 20th to 26th. Sorry, this aired before then. So. Okay, yeah. We I remember talking about the end. blood and stuff. So it was the Dustin show that we talked Dustin about. Dustin show. Yeah. Uh, finally, Hogan and Tugboat beat Rhythm and Blues by DQ when Honky hit Tugboat with a guitar. Earthquake gave Hogan a splash, but Tugboat got the guitar, saved Hogan from the second splash. Hogan slammed the quake, chasing the heels away at 730. Okay, wait a minute. I had completely forgot that this was a Saturday Night's Main Event match. And it was. much less at this time. Mm -hmm. So what the hell is the deal with Tugboat? How do we still not know what happened? <laughs> Especially now that he is linked back with Hogan. They haven't gone back on that completely. He's back in his spot after SummerSlam. Like, what is going on here? Um... I think he explained it, but I don't remember. I know he explained it on uh, his RFU, but I don't remember what he said because it's been too long since I've seen it. The only thing we've ever heard was just a vague thing about being immature, right? Something, just something. I don't remember what he said. Because, I mean, all that's on YouTube is a three-minute uh, preview. Mm. And you'd have to go find the whole shoot, and it's deep in the shoot. So that, that would take time. All right. So, but I, I don't think Bruce Pritchard really said anything about it, right? On his show, I remember listening to something where they talked about him. They, you know, they talked about the whole chic tugboat plan. Oh, was that it? The 
they decided to pull him. Was that what Bruce said, at least, that they decided to pull him when they decided they weren't turning him heel to feud with Hogan yet? I guess, yeah. That they were just calming down the program or something? That still sounds weird, though. Yeah, I mean, it does. But, again, I... Um, I mean, I'm just looking. There's, uh, there's Bruce Richard shoots on how hard it was to take Tugboat seriously. <laughs> Bruce Richard, which, by the way, I love, I, I remember noticing this years ago, and I love that it's still true to the point that Conrad does it on all, well, Conrad's people do it on all their YouTube channels, that for some reason shoots on helps so much with YouTube views. Just having that in the title. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I. Like I said, I, th- I think he said, I don't, I don't, and I don't think he actually said what the deal was. I think he just he just talked about how disappointing he was. Hmm. So who knows? But anyway, all right. Uh, for superstars, the angles occurred during the Brother Love segment as Rip Martell sprayed arrogance into Jake Roberts' eyes. Set the feud with Martell's back in action. Jake's on time feud with Bad News history. Warrior put on dress and wig on Brother Love, called him Sister Love. So it was another dress for Savage to hide behind. Another match that's never superstar or tornado over Paul Diamond, Duggan over Diamond, Ronnie Garvey used a jobber against the Orient Express, Saba Sim over Black Bart, Earthquake over Boss Man when Dino Bravo interfered, Shane Douglas over Pistol Pez Watley, and Battle Cat debuted on TV, Brady Boone. Now, a day later, they did the Wrestle Josh tapings in Flint, Michigan. Daryl Carolette, Nitron, had a tryout match, did the job for Tito Santana in a dark match. Also, Ronnie Garvin beat Black Bart, Gennady over Diamond, Tubbo over Bart, Bravo over Nikolai by DQ when Tubbo ran in, Mr. Perfect over t- uh, Tornado by Countout, Barbarian over Brunzel, Slaughter made Volkov submit, Bossman over Haku, LOD and Warrior over Demolition, Snook over Black Bart, and Hogan over Earthquake by disqualification. In a Mean Gene interview, they referred to Tornado as Carrie Von Eric, and he talked about God and his family. For both sets of the tapings, they had a giant egg near the interview platforms. They kept taking shots of with camera lights on, so apparently there's going to be some mystery about something inside the egg. <laughs> there we go. The birth of the gobbledygooker angle. Now, you know what McAdams says was the word at the time, though, right? Uh, refresh my memory. It was going to be Mark Calloway, and I think even as The Undertaker violently kicking his way out of the egg and then someone was like um no that's way too scary for our audience that would have been so damn hokey they they, they would what they did end up working out just fine just so. use it for a comedy thing and the undertaker's the undertaker yeah what's well, about what undertaker you know yeah the way they introduce him oh god that he wouldn't live that down no you know just coming down the aisle looking scary yeah, he he wouldn't have lived that down. That would have been always there. So, mm-hmm. uh, all right, uh, jobber Ross Lindsay on the last set of tapings was in fact Ross Hart, younger brother of Brett, older brother of Owen. So there's that. I completely that. forgot he did TV chubs. Mm-hmm. Let me hold on. Let me. I'm not gonna play it, but I want to just you know play it in our thing. That I want to just see it. Uh, let's see. So he wrestles DiBiase in one of these. Yep, that's Ross. So, interesting. That's the name he used in Stampede. Is he the only heart to wrestle as a non-heart in Stampede? Yeah. All of them worked as hearts. He's the only one. 
someone's got to ask him why that is why that was anyway i don't know that's weird and also wait so the last set of tapings was where uh not to go look that up i'm gonna look real quick let's see uh maybe i just clicked the wrong page let's see uh providence rhode island and uh springfield massachusetts so that's interesting. Why New England? Why is he Wait, being flown no, in? I'm sorry. Uh, it, was even, it gets even better. It's it was Hershey, Pennsylvania, and Wheeling, West Virginia. Huh. <laughs> what do you make of that? Uh, maybe This has to be a tryout or something, right? Yeah, it had to be. They see him, Brett and Owen, I don't know. Yeah, well, also Bruce's well, thing Owen's is not a few there, months but after. Brett. Yeah, but also Bruce's little meeting that's supposed to happen with Vince is, uh, you know, is a few months after this. Yeah. All right. The first Massacre Garden show in several months took place on September 21st and drew just 12, under 12,000 pay in a $185,000 house for basically a poor show. While me and New York were talking about how poor the crowd was compared to the MSG standards and because there hadn't been a show in the place for several months, plus it was on a Friday, one shouldn't be aghast about it. In reality, it's the fourth largest gate since WrestleMania. So by the standards of the industry today, 12,000 people pay for any show is a big deal. Which, that's a thing. We've talked about it before. People forget. I guess because it, it rebounded a little and before really crashing. How show business in the U.S. was terrible in 1990 compared oh, we're to the last some, several years. We're going to have some house shows coming up. We'll talk about that. All right. So the results saw Dustin Rose pin Paul Diamond. Dud. Sardis Slaughter over Nikolai Volkov with the Atomic Noogie, negative one star. Barbarian over Tito Santana, dud. There is no way that those two at MSG in 1990 is a dud. Paul Romo over two stars. Ronnie Garvin over Bob Bradley, negative star and a half. Duggan over Rude by DQ. Duggan was awful, but Rude took great buffs to make it okay, two stars. And Ultra Warrior and Legion of Doom over Demolition, two stars. They return October 19th for the Cardinals to have a four main events for the first time in MSG history. But in reality, it doesn't have a main event. As the Hart Foundation faces Brendan and Blues, DBIC against Dusty, Perfect over Tornado, and Tubbud against Tino Bravo. Yeah, there's no main event. <laughs> no anchor match. So Why didn't they run MSG for months? Was this another... Were they doing a multi-year renovation like they did several years ago? Probably. It's after the Knicks season. So yeah, there's nothing there. There's no permanent tenant over the summer, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, at the time, it makes sense that it would be September when they'd be back. So, mm -hmm. I don't know, because I mean, we know they had the renovation 89, but if it was anything like the the last renovation, then yeah, it was every summer for a few years. Yeah. All right, let's look, let's look at some of these attendances on some of these shows going on during our week. Lakeland, Florida, drew 2100. Yeah. September 14th, as Bob Bradley beat Jim Powers, one star. Battle Cat over Brooklyn Brawler, one star. Snuck over Warlord by DQ, negative two stars. DiBiase over Dusty, two and a half stars. Saba Simba over Playboy Buddy Rose, half a star. Orin Espresso over the Bushwhackers, one star. And Jake over Akeem in a horrible cage match, negative one star. Why is Jake wrestling Akeem in a cage match? Lots of problems here, because a great man in the small crowd thought the main event was going to be the six-man, Warrior and LD against Demolition. And we're furious when it didn't take place. Apparently, there was some sort of screw-up on the Tampa TV promos, which led the people to believe that bout was taking place here, and a great meeting attended for that reason. 
Oh my God. So obviously somebody fucked up in the tape they sent to the Tampa station, put that put that uh group of promos in when it wasn't even on the show. Everybody. So wait a second, where were they working? They inserted the gene. They were they were in the Capitol Center. They were in Landover. Do they come anywhere near Florida with that tour? No, we're about we're about to talk about them. What the? Where they're going and what and what a trek they're on too, by the way. So, yeah, exactly. They fucked it up. And also that they have. I'm looking at you know just the history of WWE results that we have three crews that are all major arena crews. Yeah. Which is so this also this has to be the era where they have the D ships, right? Because if you have three arena crews, they were still doing spot shows at the time, right? Very rarely. Very but that's right, because the thing where they start to let guys take outside dates is around this time. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I don't think there were many times where they had three arena crews, right? No. So that's interesting. But anyway. Let's continue. Boston Garden on the 15th drew 6,000 fans as Dustin Rose beat Black Bar at one star. Ronnie Garvin and Pez Watley, one star. ICW offer match. Yeah. Doug and Conquistador, Jose Luis Rivera, dud. Paul Romo and Marty Gennady were Hercules in a figure. Three stars. Genius lover SD Jones, dud. The, I like how the OCR turned it into DUI. Yeah, you had to be drunk to enjoy that one. Sarno Slaughter over Hulikai Volkov, dud. And Warrior and LOD over Demolition, three stars. Wow. Yay. Now, th- this was the same results of this show took place at the Capitol Center on the 14th in front of 6,500 fans, while the same crew went to Chicago. So they went to Landover, Boston, and Chicago. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, they drew 6,400, with Rick Rue replacing Rivera against Duggan, and Shane Douglas replacing Jones against the Genius. Rue missed a few shows because of a death in his family. No announcement made live because of an announcement like that would generate sympathy for a heel. And Douglas was because of family illness. And Rude's about to get hurt anyway. Exactly. So where do they go from here? They go to Indianapolis, some of them. Uh, 4,200 on 17th as Douglas pinned the genius. Garvin over Wiley. Dustin over Black Bart. Duggan over Rude by DQ. Rome over Gennady when Hurt interfered. Slaughter over Volkov. LOD over Demolition. Well, LOD and Warrior over Demolition. LOD and Warrior over Demolition. Sorry. Louisville on that night drew a thousand fans. This is at the Gardens or Freedom Hall? Freedom Hall. Okay. As Brawler pinned Dale Wolf, Bob Bradley over Jim Powers, Orients over Bushwhackers, Snook over Warlord by DQ, Saba Simba over Buddy Rose, DBOC over Dusty, and Jake over Akeem in the cage match. Why? Is Akeem subbing for someone? No. No. Then what? I, what guess, is... I, guess, oh, I guess bad news, probably. Right? Yeah. It has to be. Yeah. Because Akeem's barely been pushed all year. And then the third crew is in Rochester, New York, on September 17th. Coco over Boris Zukov, Tubbutt over Bravo, Barbarian over Tito, Earthquake over Bossman, Brunzel over Diamond, Tornado Double Count over Perfect, and Heart Foundation over Rhythm and Blues by DQ. No attendance listed for that or for this. Pensacola, Florida on the 21st. Saw Battle Cat over Brooklyn Brawler. Bob Bradley over Jim Powers, Orient Express over the Bushwhackers, Saba Simba over Dusty Rhodes, Saba Simba over Buddy Rose, excuse me, 
Jimmy Snook over Warlord by DQ, Teddy Biasi over Dusty Rose, and Jake over Akeem in the cage match. Same crew worked in Charlotte and Augusta over the weekend, and the show's all drew poorly. So there's that. Can you imagine just how bad a Jimmy Snuka Warlord house show match would be in 1990? And they're doing it around the loop, too, all the house shows. That sounds like, like the type of bad I'd like to see, though. And then we have this. You know, we just read the house shows. Steve Beverly puts this in Matt Watch. WS still trying to freshen their roster, has reportedly had a form of contact with three of the four NWA contract performers, uh, three or four NWA contract performers, but with the Steiners reportedly agreeing to an extension, it won't be them. Hmm. Yeah, you can see they need they need some influx of, of new blood here. Yeah. And they get in 91. They get them at the end of 90 and 91. Undertaker, Nasty Boys, and, uh, you know, some more new additions. LOD get more pushed and become yeah. more of part of the roster. Um, yeah. Paul Diamond gets put into Orient Express and they get freshened up a little. But main, but mainly Undertaker and you know Nasty Boys coming in definitely, and and Mounty, Mounty's part of that. Mounty gimmick, yeah. Bulldog, Bulldog, Bulldog comes back in a couple months, yeah. So they they get they get some more people in there. Yes. Mountwatch also had this Gorilla Monsoon still pulling in weak help after returning from his two week absence on prime time. His recent illness was related to a diabetic condition. Hmm. All right, clip time. Let's go to uh, superstars. Where Brother Love has a uh, block here, basically. We have two different things on Brother Love. First, we have Rip Martell, as we're setting up the whole thing with Jake. And then uh, LOD joins Brother Love after that. So uh, let's go to the clip. Are these from separate Saturdays, or are these one Superstars, one Challenge? We only have one Saturday. We have two Fridays. Okay, so this is from Superstars and Challenge. Well, the challenge is the last clip. I no, 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 but I mean, it's not from the same. It's You get what I'm saying. Anyway. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. And anyway. All right. I don't understand what you're talking about. I just wanted to make, I, I was trying to remember, and then I remembered hearing, like, the stuff about Brother Love being overexposed, which he was, because. Well, he, they, they, they went played every week. I mean, it, sometimes they would play it on challenge, but I don't think they played it every week. But it, it, he was mainly on Superstars. He was, but... And the interview podium was on challenge. In that era. Okay. The Gene, the Gene. Set. When he's the main gimmick interviewer. Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah. Another one. What is this? I don't want... I love how often it is that we'll watch the Brother Love show, and one of the first things you hear is Vince going, Ugh, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time when we play Brother Love Show clips. And Piper's here, so you know you're going to get some Piper humor on this. Oh. Blubber Love. Well, especially since, you know, Brother Love's gimmick is doing Piper. So. Mm. <laughs> what is it, homie? I use it to kill mosquitoes. What? What's Tell the bottle thing? thing? What's the bottle doing out there? Brothers and sisters. What's that stuff? Smell that. He's killing bugs. How close are they supposed to be? Thank you, brother My pleasure, brother love. You know, arrogance, it's not a right, it's a privilege. And you too, brother love, deserve the best. Thank you. Back in this week. That's making him smell better. Oh, 
I just realized I didn't remember this. So they just have Martell hanging out on Brother Love for a few weeks to set up the Jake angle. Exactly, yes. Yeah. That's the type of thing they were good with with attention to detail. Those times are gone. Yes. And like, in a way, it looks contrived, but it also, you know. Well, you don't know what it's leading up to. And also, at the time, heels did ha- were friends with other heels. Well, yeah. So. For the loss of the Tag Team Championship by Demolition! That's got a little lip, huh? Demolition never would have lost the Tag Team title had it not been for my guest at this time! Why is he laughing? All they just needed is a right. Whenever you have these guys around, that animal on the right, Hawk on the left, the Legion of Doom. Just a minute, brothers, Legion. Do you deny the fact that you caused devil? The tag team titles! Number one, somebody sprayed something out here that smells like something I did. Number two, <laughs> we ain't your stinking brother, and if you were, you wouldn't be here. Number three, we did exactly what we wanted to do. We did what we intentionally wanted to do when we tried. They're using way too much of the summer slam all the way here. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. 
I don't find brother love segments remotely entertaining most of the time. Well, I mean, they had their purpose. But they a lot of the time they go way too long. Well, that one wasn't too long, at least. It wasn't, but the... There have been some that have been too long. And I think it's also, I feel like... But there are a lot of angles that took place on there this. There are. Show. When they when they do actual angles, it's fine. But the... And, and, the, and the main reason why I put this in here is, A, the Martell thing. And B, this was the Rogue Warriors, like, first big promo in the company, so to speak. And it's interesting to watch, you know, watch them, well, Legion of Doom, watch them in the, at this point in time, and they still come across, you know, as the same type of guys. They haven't been, you know, tampered just yet. They're cutting Road Warrior promos. Yeah. yeah. They haven't changed their gear completely. They have the red shoulder pads, but they have still have a, a variation on the old Road Warrior gear with the tights. Yeah. Yeah, so just interesting to look at. Now, this next clip we're going to play, though. <laughs> yes, there is a new uh, gimmick in the World Wrestling Federation for a man who uh, has returned to his roots, so to speak. So let's go to the debut of one Saba Simba and Roddy Piper. Well, doing Roddy Piper things. So let's go to the clip. Out away from the knee surgery, which was a result of the attack of the power and glory at SummerSlam. Hopefully he's going to be all right. Hopefully he'll return back in action very shortly with his tag team partner, Marty Jannetty. He's the tough one. He's a tough competitor. It's going to take more than that to keep him down. And now, wait a What have we got here? 67 pounds. Samba Simba. Take a look at this, would you? Samba Simba. Making his initial appearance right here on the Superstars of Wrestling. Hold oh, the fuck, hold oh, the fuck. That's Tony Atlas. That ain't no Savasta, but that's Tony Atlas with walking around, look like some bird's real cold the way he's walking around. All them feathers, who's he trying to fool? Proud of his heritage, indeed. Proud we have not seen this man for years and legally changing his name to Saba Simba. Well, that's ridiculous. Can you imagine why Tony Atlas is a great competitor? Now, well, excuse me, Saba Simba. Why walk around looking like that? You look like a fool. Man is proud of his heritage. I mean, after all, Hot Rod, you walk around in a kilt. Never mind. I see. Yeah, Saba Simba. And looking very good, Saba Simba. <laughs> this will be most interesting to see what Saba Simba has here. In his debut, well, there's a lot of entrance here. He does here. that, why his feet move like it's from walking on hot coals. He's used to doing that, and he can't stop that happening. I see. Oh, wait a minute. From behind here, Duffy attacking right. Saba Simba. Thoughts? Okay. It had been a while since I'd last seen this. And I could never figure out where exactly they meant to go with it. Obviously, this is planned. It wouldn't well, yeah. be on TV otherwise. Exactly, yes. But it's also clearly not just to establish that this is Tony Atlas going back to find his heritage. Because if it was that, they would have just done some vignettes or something. There weren't any vignettes, were they? I don't or we think so. I don't think so. I so, think there may have been one. Okay, I now could... I'm curious. But watching it now, it feels like it was almost just an excuse to have a setup for the kill trick. Pretty much. You know, while acknowledging that it was Tony Atlas. 
and because he's not really going to be a push star to yeah but that's not the reason why they did the thing though i guess you know also it's a very wwf thing that you're signing tony atlas in 1990 and you're bringing him in as a mute babyface when the one thing he really brings to the table at the time is his promos as a heel yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, I mean, it's weird, it's a weird deal, I mean, it's a different angle, I mean, it makes you wonder why they even did it, you know? Yeah, and uh, just a weird idea in general, just everything about it. So. <laughs> How long is he even there? Wasn't he in the 91 Royal Rumble? He's announced for it, I think, I'm not sure. He's in it. Let me look real quick. Because the debut was a Hershey on the 28th. Uh, he rushed into December 28th MSG show. Mm-hmm. Um, he's working the January house shows beginning of January. Um, uh, he's he's a, in through the rumble, basically. Yeah, he's doing TV jobs on the first tapings in January. Then he's doing jobs at house shows. He's in the Rumble. Yes. I thought I knew he was in the Rumble. That's his last match. Saba Simba. Yeah. The Warlord. The yeah. All right. So there's that. And, it, you know, it kind of sounds like Piper's like, well, you know, why are we doing this in a way? Yes. In his own way. And Vince is like, <laughs> he's found his roots. So. Let's be glad Jesse wasn't comment- on commentary when he said the word roots. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So uh, next we get from Challenge now. Mean Gene is interviewing Dusty Rhodes, who uh, has a new modified look. Let's go to uh, the American Dream. Is this the top hat, etc.? Yeah, you'll see. Guess the American Dream, Dusty yep. Rhodes. Nice looking uh, garb. Jealous. Dusty, I'm sad to say that recently at SummerSlam, what the million dollar man Ted DiBiase has been saying all along is true. That saying that everybody has a price. And I know that doesn't bode well with you. On that hot August night in Philadelphia at SummerSlam 1990. <laughs> I felt humiliation. I felt rejection. And I felt betrayed. When I looked out and seen Sapphire standing with Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man, and I seen what dirty money can buy you, baby. <laughs> and confusion reigned in the mind of Dusty Rhodes, the American dream. But now I'm steady in my mind I know what has to be done 
so strange because it's a great promo and it's completely wrong for that setting it it shouldn't it should have been backstage it should have been a pre-tape it should have been dusty by himself um but that but you know what that's just that's probably the first time you got dusty rose in the world federation that run Mm -hmm. right there he's just cutting a straight up dusty promo with the hat and yeah he's wearing the red polka dots with the the poncho too. The poncho, though, yeah. So, yeah, that, that is a great Dusty promo. Absolutely. But it was weird how, through no fault of his own, it came off kind of toothless. Yeah. Alright. Now let's talk about <laughs> one of our favorite things to talk about in this era. Vincent Man's entry into the bodybuilding world was with a splash on September the 15th. At Joe Wiener's Mr. Olympia contest, which is the premier pro bodybuilding contest, won for the seventh year in a row by Lee Haney, by the way. He was the man, Atlanta's own. This man bought a sponsorship booth to promote his Bodybuilding Lifestyles magazine. That'll be introduced in the fall. Tom Plotz, who was a popular competitor in Mr. Olympia several years back, never won, but always a strong contender, noted for his amazing legs, was in McMahon's booth all day. After the show, a team of attractive models in black evening gowns showed up and handed out leaflets announcing the formation of the World Bodybuilding Federation of subsidiary Titan Sports. One Dove official said that within the office, officials are saying they believe the company could make more money in the future in the bodybuilding business than in the wrestling business. One of the mottos of the WBF is bodybuilding the way it was meant to be. I wonder if that's where Cornette got uh, his attack for Smoky Mountain. Also, at the time, people took that to mean with steroids. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, which most of them in the bodybuilding world took the means bodybuilding without steroid test. Uh, we the organization, which is the strongest and basically for all real purposes the controlling organization is Suedo Sport, actually does test competitors for steroids at certain events. While these tests are considered beatable, they're sophisticated enough to where they aren't easily beatable. For example, at the Olympia, several competitors were disqualified because of steroid usage, but many weren't, even though obviously all have been taking heavy doses for years. Some charges, similar to charges that man's drug policy, and the NFL's for that matter as well, are politically enforced and that some are punished. Guys, the office or league is after, or even fired, but others go unpunished for the same offenses. The bodybuilders themselves don't want steroid testing. However, the weed organization has very slowly tried to at least give lip service to the problem partially, because both Joe Weider and his brother Ben, who heads up the IB, IFBB, the WF of bodybuilding, have been obsessed for years with the idea of bodybuilding becoming a sport in the Olympic Games, which seems unlikely to ever happen, but their IFBB is recognized now by the International Olympic Committee. 
The testing is to make it seem like they're trying to promote a clean sport with all the images of pro bodybuilding as being nothing but a sport of heavy druggies. Of course, competition ain't business healthy for the workers, and in some ways, bodybuilding in 1990 had similarities for wrestling in 1983. For wrestling, had more grassroots appeal, but bodybuilders were more hardcore about their so-called sport. Well, they would get 90,000 fans to attend a bodybuilding show, even without any real television promotion. It's hard to get $100 a ticket for major shows. The business of food supplements and lifting equipment is huge, big enough to where Joe Weider's company is larger than man's, Titan Sports, and worth more money. So he isn't dealing with a group of Bob Geigles here. Bodybuilding also offers a potential future talent pipeline for his wrestling promotion. With the smaller groups drying up and a nationwide search of talent, with the current talent being mainly stale, only turning up guys whose glory dates were in the early 80s, and current crowd figures in the WF Live shows, you know the group wants new talent. And with it, has turned out pro wrestling into, if let demands have been lessened in favor of a certain look, and the world of bodybuilding offers a large group of people who are genetically predisposed to not only have their look, but be more willing to take the drugs necessary to achieve and maintain it. According to one source in the bodybuilding world, tradition and organizations like the women man's forming would not be profitable, but can be used as a lost leader in selling mail order exercise equipment and food supplements. However, man has a huge television network and the ability to sell garbage and have people willingly buy it. Bodybuilding, if marketed correctly, probably has little chance for mainstream appeal, but it probably has enough hardcore fans to promote profitable pay-per-view shows at a big contest. Um. Well, what are your thoughts on what Dave's saying there before we move on to the more stuff here? Which part of it? I mean, Dave's assessment of what could happen here. There was no way this would be successful. <laughs> My, I love how there's people in the offices that believe they could make more money than the wrestling. You know who those people are? Vince. <laughs> God, look at them. You don't think people want to see them? Look how good they look. Yeah. It, well, as I say every time we talk about this, the thing we need to acknowledge is that in 1990... It's not a good idea, but it's not nearly as ridiculous as it sounds now. We're just a few years removed from Mr. Olympia being on Wide World of Sports every year. It's, you know, you have your ESPN stuff. There's stuff out there. It's not like now. Oh, it was on network television, mate. Uh, NBC would have their deal. ABC would air stuff. Yeah, it was because you had Sports World and CBS Sports Saturday and Wild World of Sports where they're trying to fill in those blocks so they would show bodybuilding. Way more of a television presence in the in the uh, 80s and early 90s. Absolutely. Yes. Now, this never could have been successful, and Vince's ideas were ridiculous, especially since the first competition, you know, we talked about this when we covered the second one a few months ago. It's just, you know, there's a little skit they show beforehand or whatever, or profile. No, it was actually, I think, a legitimate profile. And then he does, like, there's a costume, but otherwise it's just bodybuilding. Yeah. Also, Where's something. The juice? Other than in the guy's well, veins. Something interesting I just found there's, like, zero media coverage of any of this until they get towards that first event. Like, I pulled up there was something in Variety, like, in November, but it was just a generic little blurb. I mean, I can read it, because, okay, this is from the, no, excuse me, November 12th Variety. And this is weekly Variety, but so the week of November 12th. 
Flex fests for tube? Except for Hans and Franz of Saturday Night Live, sweaty flexing guys have failed to become TV staples. But wrestling honcho Vince McMahon, who turned pro wrestling into a multi-million dollar arena, TV and pay-per-view empire, uh, plans to do the same thing with bodybuilding. McMahon has started the World Bodybuilding Federation and is about to sign a batch of bodybuilding kingpin Joe Weider's top muscle men. A WFB spokesman said tube plans are premature, but said first flex event will take place in late spring. So that's the only thing I could really find before, like, spring 91, and it's just that, and it's two months after the announcement. Which kind of proves, I think, the point of what we were just talking about, right? Yeah, exactly. And on top of everything else, and it's one of the dumbest, like, things, and I can't believe I never thought of this, and or really that anyone ever talked about this before Sean Ray mentioned it in the interview I did with him for my Fighting Spirit article. How the hell are they supposed to attract bodybuilding fans when most of the magazines are controlled by the weeders? Exactly. You know, they're not going to give me any press. If you're just a person who, who's not a wrestling fan and following bodybuilding through the weeder magazines, you have no idea that the WBF exists, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, they would have what they would have to do is they have to go in and and you know get the big names. They would have to get got a Lee Haney or somebody like that, you know. Well, they tried to, but it didn't. Yeah. Work. Um. Also, some other details. I'm re- looking over my Fighting Spirit article. I don't remember where all of this came from, but. So the 5000 they spent for their boot, booth, excuse me, it also got them some time on the stage, too. And then there was the Tom Platt's announcement, which was, I have a very important announcement to make. We at Titan Sports are proud to announce the formation of the World Bodybuilding Federation. And we are going to kick the IFBB's ass. <laughs> on the stage at Olympia. <laughs> oh, that's classic. It's a very Vince move. <laughs> it's a boss move absolutely but you gotta back it up yes and also you know with the talk about steroids sean ray um i forget if it was going into this one because he ended up yeah yeah i think it was the previous year he was suspended for a failed drug test for steroids and ended up getting back in so he was disillusioned so he was willing to listen to vince and hitting tom platt's um but didn't go with it. Let me let me read the quotes. Here's what he's told me. And he had finished... He had just finished third at the Olympia when they made the announcement, okay? Behind Lee Labrada and Lee Haney. Maybe his name should have been Lee and he would have done better. That's when I heard the... So, uh, so he had been suspended for a year. Um, oh, no, he, that was about an injury, maybe. But he was disillusioned with IFBB politics. That kept him out of the first Arnold Classic, which was a qualifier for the Olympia. That's when I heard the rumblings that there would potentially be a new federation, that Vince McMahon was heading it, and that Tom Platz was recruiting athletes. This was all on the down low. The suspension didn't sit well with me, which was the first, which was the time that Vince was constructing this new federation. I was 24 years old. It sounded very good at the time, and here I was being offered a potential opportunity that would give me a guaranteed salary, but they would get back to me. They were playing the seeds in my head that in 1990, some things were going to happen, and I was at the top of their list. Now, being at the top of the list of a Vince McMahon, who's well-funded, sounded really good to me. Yeah, and that's something else, too. They were contacting people in 89. I'm pretty sure it all started. I'm pretty sure that they that they got confident from No Holds Bar 
Vince got confident that maybe I can do something outside of wrestling. Yeah, because as we talked about in the No Holds Barred show, like it, it seems like between home video and stuff that it almost surely made money. Well, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a huge moneymaker, but still did well enough. And, you know, once they had something of a hit, they would be able to get outside financing and stuff. At least for that. But anyway, so they get back to him. So, the, uh, so wait, wait, I read that already. So this, this is me writing here. At the time, Ray was making about $40,000 annually from weed or publications, as well as additional income from prize money and appearances. So he decided he would jump if the money was right. And that feeling got stronger when he was stripped of the 1990 Arnold Classic Championship for failing the drug test, though he wasn't suspended by the IFBB. It did solidify to me at the time that if the WBF called me back, I would be all ears. So he meets with Joe Weeder and basically offers to give them first right of refusal. Weeder says if he passed a drug test and did well, he'd be, quote unquote, substantially rewarded and he could use it as a bargaining chip anyway. Um, and after he came in third at Olympia, he was like, OK, I'm probably good either way. You know, he'd say, you know, he just won $18,000 with the third place finish. But as his meeting with McMahon and Platts kept going, he didn't like his, what he was hearing. They explained to me that it was going to be, quote unquote, entertainment bodybuilding. They only had one show on the calendar, and it sounded like the pecking order was going to be based on what you were being paid. The highest paid guy was going to be the winner, and I wasn't the highest paid guy. And they didn't realize they were talking to a close-knit community, so everyone was talking money with each other, and Titan didn't realize that. And then the thing that really kept him from making the switch was that Troy Zuccolato, who had never competed as a professional and was Sean's tr training partner was offered more money than him. Yeah. Which makes you wonder, because at the time, you know, there's the whole idea of having, you know, great white hope at, in winning Olympia and stuff if he's being offered less money because he's black. Yeah. So anyway, so let's go on now with Dave. Speaking of money, Vince signed Tom Pelosi to be his front man in the Federation, and the story goes, and please don't take these figures too seriously, he gave Plots $100,000 sign-in bonus and $200,000 a year. Even if these figures are triple normal, that's still a hefty price by the standards of the industry. Titans Media Kit for the magazine also lists Bev Francis as a contributor. That one's supposed to be leaked out until after November, because Francis' goal was to win Mrs. Olympia in November. And by becoming public knowledge, she's leaving the Weeder camp from McMahon would politically hurt her chances. Jeff Everson denied reports that Corey Everson was interested in working with McMahon. Corey Everson has been rumored within bodybuilding. She's the girl in ESPN's body shapers, body shaping, whatever, to be in McMahon's camp. So from the start, since she's close friends with Hulk Hogan, legit, and wears Hogan shirts and publicity photos, and Hogan often mentions her name in interviews. Everson's photos in the media kit, but her husband said the photo was strictly a favor it wasn't supposed to be used for publicity. And while they were unhappy, Titan used it. They didn't think it was worth getting confrontational about it. And everything was smoothed over with Weeder. And Everson claimed that Vince couldn't afford to pay them, but Weeder's paying them. Geez, no wonder that Linda thought Hogan was having an affair with Corey Everson. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Tom Plotz, there's no way that, that, that that's legitimate, right? What the money was. As an executive? Two hundred grand a year. 
I think it's highly possible he's being paid something like that. I, granted, with inflation, that's probably closer to 500, but... Good lord. Um, so at this time, because we're talking Corey Everson, I think Beth Francis is like that too, we're at the tail end of female bodybuilding being what would become fitness modeling and figure modeling. Or not figure modeling, figure competition or whatever, right? Yes. So they are not the big jacked female bodybuilders. No. And then Corey Everson's sister, Cameo Newer, ends up being involved with the WBF. There you go. Yeah. They can't get Corey, they get her sister. <laughs> Vince's Bodybuilding Lifestyles Magazine publishing date keeps getting pushed back. Now it should be at around the end of this year. Someone in the muscle world was telling Dave that Vince will have an easier time conquering bodybuilding than he did wrestling because the bodybuilders themselves see Vince as the white knight is going to put them on television and make them big money. Well, about that. <laughs> I get it, though. Yeah, I mean, this is a WF guy. Look what he's doing with wrestling. He has a vision. He's promising us this guaranteed money. And he loved bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. So... You know what's also funny about that, though? When you consider when he really started with working out and steroids and probably when his interest in this would have come, he has not been into bodybuilding long, I would think. No. No. No, that that started probably in the late 80s, you know? Probably around 88, yeah. I mean, you can tell by, you know, Vince's size, how it would morph when he was in... the whole thing, when he's on Letterman in 89. yeah. You know, it looks like someone got some weights for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because Vince definitely, uh, his suits definitely got bigger. All right, let's close this section out with two great Matt Watch stories. ABC's affiliate relations chief Warren Danker was in Columbus, Georgia on September 19th and told Steve Beverly that the Roddy Piper District Third Tag Team Series was pulled because it was a creative disaster. Danker said that none of it was going the way we had initially envisioned it. You don't say. Yeah, I mean, the other thing this makes me wonder, though, does Warren Decker know he's talking to Matt Watches Steve Beverly, or does he think he's just talking to local he's affiliate the- representative Steve Beverly? Yeah, he doesn't know he's talking to a guy doing a wrestling newsletter. Oh, no. He, no, 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 no. I don't think he says that if he knows this could be in print, does he? <laughs> no, he does not. That's not the most journalistic thing of Steve. No, it was not. Speaking of things that are not necessarily journalistic of Steve, let's see who we close out this section with. Andy Gilbert's in a dilemma many wrestling performers would envy. Gilbert's reportedly mulling an offer from the WAF from senior producer Bruce Pritchard to become a producer of one of their TV series. Matt Watch has not been told which series Gilbert would be assigned or a specific salary offer. However, Gilbert has two more weeks to consider the offer. The offer comes amid speculation. The former UWF NWA star may become the booker for the SW Memphis promotion. Gilbert's also being sought by at least one other group. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Well, let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. One week later, in Matt Watch, Eddie Gilbert's announces the booker for the USWA. Go ahead. I didn't realize that he wasn't even officially announced as the booker yet because everyone, I thought everyone knew by this point that he faked the injury or overstated its severity or whatever to become because of the booking job well that was t- i mean from what from re- you know thinking about it and rather to doing this i wonder if they were like we're gonna we'll give you this job but we're gonna run out the string of what we got 
And Eddie maybe was th- was maybe thinking, okay, you know, I know how these guys are. Maybe they won't give it to me. Let me call Bruce. Yeah, they were friends, so I I buy yeah. that Bruce might would have tried to get him a job as a producer at this time. Yeah, not as a wrestler, but producer. Yeah, this does actually see like it seems like it's a legitimate story. I think it's totally legit. I do, but it's uh, funny that. This, you know, that Steve and Eddie and all that stuff. Well, yeah. and also the thing that we don't talk about this enough. I hate how much Dave and Steve, I don't think Wade did it as much in this era, will say reportedly about something that's never been reported until they reported it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reportedly doesn't really work when you're the first person to report it. Mm-hmm. That's not how that works. It's reportedly being said in the circles, not in the newsletters. Yes. Also, notice how uh, he and Missy have split up, and now he's not wanted as talent anymore? Yeah, isn't that something? Interesting. But do you think this is leverage? Do you think this is Eddie and Steve, or you know, or just Eddie by himself, you know, saying, hey... I got this job offer. I could be leaving you right now for WF. You mean in terms of if he was actually considering it or in terms of making sure it was in Matwash? Well, I'm just saying, no, I'm I'm saying using as leverage with Jarrett Hmm. to fortify his shot, his, his booking job. Maybe. Listen, I could be, I could leave you right now. (laughs) Well, also it's Eddie Gilbert. He's never been the, the booker in Memphis. No. So, obviously, because it's Eddie Gilbert, that's what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. So, I can see it. I can see that he's using it as a lever. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, but if, as Eddie Gilbert stories that are only being reported in Matwatch go, this, this one does seem fairly legitimate. Yes. So, there you go. We'll have more on Eddie Gilbert later in the show. Well, we'll be talking about his friend Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. as well. <laughs> Well, just have more on Eddie Gilbert and his trials and tribulations in Memphis later on. All right, let's go international now, and we'll begin with All Japan Pro Wrestling. The TV special on Giant Bob on September 16th drew a phenomenal 9.5 rating. The one where they showed his Mexican story, Paul Jr., Bruno San Martino, Fritz Von Air, Bubba Brazil, Stan Hansen, etc., in 1967, match against Gene Kaniski was voted the best match of Baba's career. And for some reason, Dave does not mention it here, but the occasion is the 30th anniversary of Baba's debut. Yeah. Which coincidentally, you know, Baba and Anoki's they, the anniversary the same day. Yes. And they ran anniversary shows, I believe, the same day, too. Yes. So, which Tiger G. Singh was able to work Anoki's show. In the deal with All Japan. That's right. Because it's 1990. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a damn rating. Yes. <laughs> better than the better than the, the regular TV shows are getting at the time. Yes. And also, since it's not something we've talked about much on this show, because it's not like we're covering that era with newsletters and stuff. If you have not watched Giant Baba from before... When would you say he fell off? His last great matches were that or the first Dan Hansen matches. So eighty two. Yeah. Eighty three. 
You mean as singles, at least, because he has yes. great tag matches on and off for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as far as like a singles thing, yeah, it's about 82, 83 is the last of like great Baba matches. But yeah, if you haven't seen his stuff from before like 83, and that's probably the right mark to pick too, because it's a, like 83, 84 is when Jumbo takes over as the top guy. Yes. Uh, he was phenomenal before his body started breaking down. Oh, yeah, great match in the 70s. Yeah, and in the late 60s, too, from what we've seen. But, yeah, great psychology, could move, you know, had a great, like, top rope knee drop and stuff. You know, watch the Jumbo match, the Destroyer, you know, the early Jumbo matches, the Destroyer matches, um, the Dory stuff that's out there, the Bruno stuff that's out there. He was really, really good. Yep, so this is like a, you know, tribute show, and, yeah, they did hell of a rating, so there you go. All right, New Japan Pro Wrestling. The last one-week tour ended on September 14th at Hiroshima Sun Plaza for 48-60. To see the second of three matches of Keiji Muto in Japan is the Great Muta. Muta, wrestling as the U.S. Ninja Heel, was disqualified in 1837 in the main event against Hiroshi Hase in a bloodbath that ended with Muta blue mist in Hase's eyes. After the match, Muta destroyed Hase, who was dimping on the stretcher, and Muda gave him a moonsault press while Hase laid on the stretcher. Her man in the car saw Shinyashimoto beat Big Van Vader by countout in 942. Riki Choshu and Kensuke Sasaki beat Shiroko Shinaka and Takuki Azuka. Masayuno and Masahiro Chono beat Samu and Kokina. And Chono made, Chono made Samu submit. And about former amateur stars, Dr. Jesse Williams and Brad Rangans defeated Soviet world champ Salman Hashmikov and Victor Zangiev at 10.32 when Rangan spins Zangiev. That is definitely a match I would not like to run into in a dark alley. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And Amamaguchi over Masakurisu. And a 10-man tag saw Kuda Kobayashi, Kataro Hoshino, Samakido, King of Kamura, and Jushin Riger. Still? <laughs> yes. Over the blonde outlaws, Norionaga, Hirasaido, Taisashigoto, and Super Strong Machine and Pegasus Kid. Chris Benoit. Plus, uh, King Okamura pinned Gun on a handicap match, and Osamu Kometsuda over Black Cat. Blonde Outlaws are Saito and Goto. Blood Outlaws is the state, right? Yes. And Strong Machine's part of the group at this time, is it? Isn't he? Yeah. Yes. So he should be included there. And Benoit is not a member, but he's linked to them, right? <clears throat> Like, when he's teaming with heavyweights, it's Super Strong Machine, generally. Yes. I would have liked to see that go on longer, too, because I thought they had good chemistry. <laughs> Riger. Oh, God. Yes. So, okay, so our main event here, though, is the big thing. And kids, before people talked about the Muda Blade job, they talked about the Hase Blade job. When Hase would bleed in this era, he got, like, Tommy Rich color. And I'm not exaggerating. Massive juice. He had you know? a skill for getting it all over himself. Yes. Yeah. He was like Carlos Cologne in ways with that type of talent. Yeah. So, okay. So what are the other big bloody Hase matches? There's this, as far as him bleeding. There's the uh, Island Death match with Singh. Tarty Singh, Yes. There's the tag title match with Mudo against Bigelow and Vader. Yeah. Is that it? Um, one of the junior matches. Oh, earlier. Um, 
That's Ooh, right. You, well, you, say, you say it, and I remember seeing him in the black trunks with a bandage, but I don't remember what it's from. I don't know if it was Takata or Koshinaka. But, um, yeah, he, he definitely would bleed and bleed in that, bled one of those, too. Yeah. I remember uh, LNS Comics on Long Island, their tape list, they had a thing where they decided to denote in heavy juice matches they would use the abbreviation blh for both bleeds like hell and bleeds like hase <laughs> yeah <clears throat> these two definitely knew how to uh to get the juice against each other so yes honestly i always thought that the hase one was a lot more gruesome i never understood how the muda scale thing happened I guess because it's the face paint and all the other stuff mm. going on there. Yeah, I guess so. Too, so. All right, uh, Anoki spent his past week in Jordan, having met with the government there. Anoki's trying to put on a car in the Middle East at some point. Of course he is. Oh, yeah, he's always trying to figure out somewhere to run a show with some shady governments. Speaking of shady, Super World Sports. Weird thing on the SWS debut car on September 29th. Sponsors... I put up a legit $35,000 winner-take-all for the first tournament. No doubt there would be a basic agreement to split the money up as a bonus for all the boys, but some feel it would be hard to get people to do jobs under those circumstances. Okay. Sponsors. So knowing what we know about what Yakuza tend to enjoy at Japanese wrestling shows, this is just a bunch of Yakuza being huge marks and thinking it's a shoot, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I'm laundering money. Hey, we we just want to see a bunch of guys in the ring throw each other out. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and and you, I mean, think about. It. I mean, well, it's a tournament, so I don't know. Would that be considered a battle royal or not? What it ends it, up being a battle royal? I can't. Let me see. SWS. SWS straight and strong as the debut, right? No, it was a singles tournament. Singles tournament. Uh, tournament matches were Kino Nagasaki and Shinichi Nakano. Shinichi Nakano. Nokisano against Kud Kitahara. George Takano against Shunji Takano. And then George Takano against Nokisano. That was the tournament. Hmm. It was a uh, five man tournament. Interesting that there's five men and $35,000. Because that either five or seven would be the only way to split that money e equally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there you go. Isn't that something? So each guy got seven grand, basically. I'm trying to figure out how the bracket works on this. Well, I'll tell you how it works. There's a guy got to got to buy. Okay, no, wait a second. No, you're wrong. The on cage match, it has it as ten men in the first round. No, uh, twelve. Well, what I'm just looking at... Oh, no, 10, excuse me. I misread it. Well, well, unless it... I mean, this is what aired on TV. Well, there's a... So. Okay, here's, here's what Cage Match has for the tournament. In the first round, Sano, Kitahara, 15-minute draw, so they're both eliminated. Yeah. Shinji Takano over Fumihiro Nakura. Okay. Ken, Ken Nagasaki over Shinichi Nakano. George yes. Takano over Goro Surumi. Okay. And Samson Fuyukio over Great Kabuki by DQ. That's your first round. Only second round match, I somehow, I'm assuming some of these are really the second round and they're just getting it jumbled. So the only one listed as second round is 
Shunji over Kendo by DQ. Then it says semifinal Naoki Sano over Samson Fuyuki by knockout, and George Takano over Shunji Takano. And the final is George Takano over Naoki Sano. So how many guys? At eight? The whole field is ten. So thirty five hundred each if they're splitting it equally. Alright. See, they they didn't want to do too much math there, so they just went with ten. Well, all that aired was the ones I just said, so <laughs> there you go. Alright, um Kazu Sakurada and Ichimasa Wakamatsu are trying to put together a booking deal with foreign talent with auto bonds in Europe. SWS has been pretty well locked out of foreign talent, and it's mainly used some prelim and inexperienced guys from Western Canada, along with Bob Orton on their debut shows in October. Sakurada figured they would be able to line up a deal with the World Wrestling Council, or if FMW seems they've gotten access to their talent. Um, I'm guessing prelim and inexperienced guys from Western Canada means Fred Jung is booking the foreign talent? Well, and the WF deal's coming soon, though, so they, well, they, yes. would, they, they would be, be fine. fine with that, yes, but I'm guessing Fred Jung... Because Tokyo Joe's with New Japan, right? So, yeah, I got to think Fred Jung is booking guys there like he is in FMW. Yeah, so they they end up being okay, like we say. Yeah. In an interview, Tinder said that the wrestling style in SWS would be the same as All Japan and New Japan. Well, yes and no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be like All Japan and New Japan if people, but with everyone trying to rupture each other's eardrums, legitimately. <laughs> Yeah. All right, let's go to FMW. FMW opened their new tour on September 20th in Nara before 2257 in a strange show. The crowd was especially impressive because of a typhoon the day of the show, which caused the ring truck not to make it to the building. The wrestlers arrived and ended up wrestling on gym mats without ropes. In the main event, saw Mr. Pogo and the Masked Gladiator from Florida. Dave Lynch is Mike Awesome, but not certain, beating Asushi Nina and Jimmy Backlund. When Pogo pinned Onita, who did a rare job in a bloodbath, and Tarzan Goto beat Ricky Fuji. All right, results. The Shooter, Kastosh Niyama over at Yukihiro Ueno, Miwasato over Yoshika Maradamari, Kim Yun-Han yeah. yes. over Akihito Ichihara, Raven Amada and Combat Toyota over Megumi Kudo and Yuki Muramatsu, Samba Osaka over Yang Jong Mao. Chain Deathmatch, Stars and Goto, Ricky Fuji, and then Pogo and Gladiator over Onita and Jimmy Backlund in your main event. Okay. So, so we still have some of the Korean uh, guys on this show at this point in time, too. Yeah, we've kind of filtered out the karate guys for the most part. Jean Young what a name. Yes, but we still, well, or at least the Japanese karate guys. But we have, yeah, we still have some of the Korean talent. Um, okay, so as far as who else? Uh, okay, so. Yoshika Minamori obviously is Crusher Minamori. Uh, I forget, is Yuki Morimatsu Drake Morimatsu? Absolutely. Yes, okay. And who was the other one? And Akihito Ishihara is Flying Kid Ishihara? Correct. Okay. And this gladiator is, of course, my cause, right? Uh, yep. So this is his yep. debut. Okay. Um, yeah. I believe, according to, you know, Bahu slash Brit of FMWWrestling.us, you know, the premier English language, FMW historian, authority, etc. This was a publicity stunt to get cool photos in the magazines from a spot show. <laughs> so, there you go. So, yes, it was all the, all the work from the beginning. Yes, which, clever idea. Well, 
they were doing all kinds of things to try to get media. Yes, especially in the magazines. No word as of yet on Jose Gonzalez. I mean, and now she is coming in. There's been a lot of debate on whether or not this group would use Gonzalez, but at least one point it was planned for Gonzalez to work this tour, and that was canceled. The big show on November 5th in Tokyo with tickets range from 27 to 70, but Anita is scheduled against a kickboxer, not Jose Gonzalez, on that show. Well, what just happened? They did the deal where Onita flew to Puerto Rico, uh, shot an angle where he was attacked by uh, Invader. And according to photographer Scott Romer, who took the photos that appeared in the magazines, and this seems legitimate, none of the Double Double C guys had any idea what was about to happen. It was after they all left the room that Onita started gigging his chest and stomach to try to make it look like Invader stabbed him and to do the Brody-related angle, which whatever anyone wants to think of Jose Gonzalez, and obviously he would do angles later that played off the Brody murder, he had no idea this was happening. And that's something people need to understand. Yeah, He was included in. Um, What do you make of the whole... Did Onita do this out of desperation as a drawing tactic versus did Onita do this because he knew there were Yakuza who wanted to kill Jose Gonzalez there? I mean, who knows what the real truth is? It's Onita. Could we never both. know. I mean, it's also could be getting in the press. I mean, there's so much there. You, who knows what the real story is? You know? Yeah. So it's just like, it's one of those things that happen. We don't know the full gist of it. Pogo was one of the four men involved in Gonzalez and Anita. In an apparent effort to downplay rather than add heat to the angle, Pogo came back to Japan before the tour began and apologized for the incident. Onita can't apologize because he was being many gets of work. A lot of media has gotten down on this group because of the angle. Yeah, you think? That backfired on him. Yeah, and Scott Romer, I believe, also got some heat for his involvement, which he did not appreciate because... I think as he explained it, he wasn't really thinking about what was going on in the moment and then just sent the film over. And then when he got, I forget if it was Gong or Weekly Pro, but he gets the magazine and he flips it open and he sees the angle and photos by Scott Romer. And he's like, eh, I don't know if that was a good idea. Yeah, he's just doing his told. Apparently, Lee Gaksu is done with the promotion. Gaksu was a sensational taekwondo guy from Korea. Hell, what was both the AWA World Heavyweight title, which he won for Jimmy Backler. Yeah, home tournament this week in support of the German new champion. Hmm. So there's that. Isn't it strange that they have the AWA World Light Heavyweight title, and yet when Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller were on that radio show with the Ganyas, or I forget, was it the, I forget it was both or just Greg and Bischoff, that the AWA guys all had no idea what FMW was? <laughs> they just trying to cash a check. That's all that was. For more on that, listen to the Death of AWA series on our Patreon at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Yeah. FMW made another deal when Onina went to the Soviet Union as a surprise and signed seven Soviets who will probably debut on the November 5th card. One of the guys competing in the Seoul Olympus in judo who will be pushed as a star. Most of the guys are aging former wrestlers or judo champs. They are now retired in their late 30s and early 40s. Does this happen? Gregory Verachev, wasn't it? Wasn't there we go. Okay. I was trying to remember which Russians that, came later. Yeah, that crew. Okay. So let's see. Verachev. I um let's see, let me go to the 90s shows. I have Boris 
Gojevivi and Gregor Berachev. Uh, I think those may have been the two main ones. Um, Boris stayed stayed long time, so he was definitely one of them. All right, let me see here. All right, so look at the first anniversary show. All right, um, yeah, Verachev's on that one by himself. Um, I go to the the house show time. Uh, it, yeah, it's just Boris and Gregory. Okay. So it's just those two. So was he dealing with the Soviet government like uh, uh, Noki was? I guess so. I would think so, unless they're considered retired, and that's different. Yeah. All right, All Japan Women. Major 1820 on September 20th in Niigata. It's Aja Kong and Baitsukamura be Akira Hokuto and Etsukamita. And Sukumanami be Mitsuko Nishiwaki. Then September 21st in Niigata, during 2022, is Yumiko Hota beat Mika Takahashi. Manami, Kamiya, and Manami Toyota over Bull Nakano, Kyoko Inoue, and Erika Watanabe in your main event. JWB saw... That's not Tomoko Watanabe? Tomoko, excuse me. Uh, JWB on uh, September 20th in Iwate saw Rockin' Robin and Izuki Yamasaki of the Jumping Bomb Angels beat Harley Sato and Plum Mariko. Plus Oscar and Shinobu Kandori team where Rumi Kazama beat Scorpion, Luna Vashan, and Devil Masami. And then September 21st, Iwazumi drew 1547 as Robin and Scorpion beat Kandori and Mayumi Ozawa. And Miss A, or Plum Mariko, Miss A, and Hanusaino went double count out with uh, Luna Vashan, Itsuki Yamazaki, and Devil Masami. And for those who don't know, Miss A is Dynamite Kansai. Yeah. So there's some Joshi there. And yeah. Some interesting stuff. You know, All Japan women's still in transition, but you can see uh, some of the pieces are in place. And the original JWP, I, I gotta seek out more of that. And the lineups like this are pretty intriguing. You know? Yeah, it's different. It's different. You got some, you know, a different mix of talent. Is Mayumi Ozawa Ozaki? I think so, yeah. Is that a real name? Um, I don't know if that's that or Dave's, Dave got some confusion there. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I feel like that has to be her, right? Yeah. All right, let's go to Mexico. EMLL. Not CMLL just yet. Conan, Mike Golden, and Eddie Guerrero made their debut in Arena Coliseum. I mean, Mexico on September 14th in Mexico City. In the main event, Conan team with Rayo Delisco Jr. and Ringo Mendoza to be Pedro Aguayo, Cien Carlos, and Mascaño dos Mil. Conan, billed as the Latin America champion, turned Naruto in the match as he refused to tag in, and his partners were pounded three on two the entire match and lost two straight falls. After the match, Conan joined in to make a four on two. Mike Golden debuted in the semifinal, teaming with Fabuloso Blondie, Ken Timms, and Emilio Charles Jr., winning two out of three from Atlantis on the second Lise Mark, when Emilio pinned Atlantis in the middle with a powerbomb when the final fall set up their uh, singles for you for Atlantis' NWA middleweight title. Eddie, who's accompanied in the ringside by Mondo, teamed up with Ilda Santo and Satanico. What a fucking team that is. To beat Los Brazos in 1990 by DQ. That's a fucking match. Brazo de Plata's gotten even fatter than Dave remembers. He doesn't look like a blimp like Buddy Rose, but his guts bigger than just by anybody's in the business. Okay. And then the big one. Anniversario show on September 21st, which aired on September 23rd in Galavision. Most lively show of the year, Dave said. 
in a six-man minis match, Pequeño Cabarde, Mascarita Escarada, and Agarita Salataria beat Piratita Morgan, Espiritrita, and MS, and MSA Half. <laughs> yes, MSA. What is Spanish for half? It's half. By count out in the third <laughs> fall. The minis all were outfits emulating major stars. For example, MS Half dressed up like MSA Uno. Piratita just like Piratita Morgan, Espiritrita, Espiritrita Jr., etc. Dave, they're trying to explain everything here to his readers. Los Brazos with the double count on third fall against Volador, Super Astro, and Azteca. Third fall saw four consecutive dives out of the ring, leaving only Brazo de Plata, who's fatter than Dusty Rhodes in the ring. Plata did dive out of the ring. Actually, Dave seen him do this before. With all five guys outside catching him, and scattered like pool balls being scattered on the break. All the guys shook hands after the match. Mike Golden, Abdul, and Grand Sheik won 203 from Dandy, Satanico, and Solomon Grande. Fast forward material said that it was wild in third fall. First, Satanico turned Naruto on El Dandy, and they started fighting amongst each other. A few minutes later, still in third fall, Golden accidentally punched one of his partners, who were terrible, by the way. And the Arabs turned on Golden, which brought off Fabuloso Blonde. Blondie. Arabs. Yes, what it says. Who <laughs> ran in with the U.S. flag, making a baby face like say. As all this was going on, Abdul squashed Dandy to win the fall. After losing the fall, Satanico continued to attack Dandy, who took a great beating and great bumps outside the ring. If that wasn't crazy enough, then came a six-man with Tecnico's Il de Santo, Rigamendoza, and Lismarck facing Pedro Aguayo, Conan, and Fabuloso Blondi. Even as the Rudos, the fans cheered both Conan and Pedro, big time during their introductions. Then Blondi won the fight some dirt in it, and he wouldn't, and Blondi punched Conan. Ringo and Pedro and Nismark and Blondie drew great heat with some good brawling. Pedro brought in a beer ball used on Santo, but Conan took it away from him. And Pedro was then pinned in the, in the first fall to Santo and Nismark each leaped off the top rope on him. During the second fall, when Blondie tried to attack Conan, Conan spit on him, and then Pedro attacked Conan outside the ring. Second fall turned into a brawl when all five except Conan just stand there before Nismark pinned Blondie with a double arm suplex, making two straight falls. Why are you turning Conan to turn him right back the next week? That is insanity. That's another story. We'll, we'll talk about that as we finish. Atlantis retained the NWA World Midway title to beat Emilio Chavez Jr. in two out of three falls. Emilio won the first fall in 320 when Atlantis went up for a Frankenstein type move, but Emilio caught him in midair and dropped him in a powerbomb for the fall. Atlantis won a 404 by leaping on his shoulders and rolling forward for the pin. And then won the third fall in just nine seconds with his torture act submission. Atlantida. Three star match. But these are two of the best workers in the promotion. Should have been better. As you can see, they were rushing it by this point because the main event, Jalisco Jr. won two or three falls from Cien Carlos in a Mascara Cacha Mascara match where Jalisco also vowed to retire if he lost. Jalisco's father, the original Rajal Jalisco, Matt Stanares, managed his son and was really animated during the main ringside. Super heat. Cien won the first fall by submission with upside down bear hug in 127. Arroyo won the second fall in 233 with a series of headbutts. Third fall saw one inside near fall to another before Arroyo won a 749 with a small package. None of these guys are great workers. They couldn't have done a better match. Even for someone who really doesn't get into Lucha Libre, it was a three and three quarter stars match. Uh, a little bit better than that, Dave. <laughs> uh, Bix, you want to tell what the interesting story about this match after the match was over with? And this was not reported in subsequent weeks in The Observer at all, I take it? Well, I didn't go too far in, okay. too far into it. So this does an overflow crowd of, what's what's the claim, 23,000? Something like that, yeah. It's something like that, I forget what. And um, 
the reason they were able to do that was because enough people stormed the building that the upper decks broke. No one was hurt, but they had to close the upper decks for weeks to fix it. Pretty wild shit. You know, I mean, it's one of the more memorable matches in Lucha history for many reasons. Um, I mean, it's on YouTube, folks. If you want to watch it, go watch it. If you haven't watched it. But uh, it's pretty amazing to watch the, the whole thing. And um, it's, 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 like I said, definitely one of the most memorable matches of the era. Um, you know, the the history between these two guys and you know, also the thing where you got the retirement, you know, that step in there. Um, it kind of, you know, added a little different twist to it because – you didn't know who was going to win. Because, I mean, Cien Carlos is one of those guys where you're like, wow, Cien Carlos is going to lose his mask? Well, especially because he has his brothers, too, and they both still have their masks. Yes. And then, I mean, then you had the whole thing where, you know, Cien, at, at the entrance, Cien smashed a guitar over Rayo's head. I mean, the heat was insane. I mean, just full-on insanity. You know, and CN was so pissed after the match he lost his mask that he, I mean, he had, he did not want to take it off. Um, yeah, they, was it a violent match? No, it's not a violent match with the drama and the psychology and everything. And the, like the, the ending, I mean, CN's just like, I'm not taking my mask off. There's photographers everywhere and they're all over each other. And they start brawling among the photographers, and the photographers are running like hell. I mean, I mean, it's just everything that's involved in this match. It's, it's one of those deals where it's more than just the match itself. It's everything surrounding the match. You know? Yes. That's the, uh, the old thing we you know, that You know, if you remember the uh, best of the 80s when we did Memphis, there's that one fabulous one's Moondogs match. That's like only like a four minute match. Yeah, it's the but one every- that I think Phil Snyder covered in his book that he just talked to Kern about on his podcast. Yeah, I mean it's just a four minute match, but everything around it made it a pick on the list. Right, it's officially a four minute match. Yeah, so it's everything involved in that. So yeah, if, if, definitely seek this one out if you've never seen it. It's on YouTube. I'm sure multiple. Copies. Oh God, yes. Also, look, I'm looking at, like, there are points where the crowd just rushes the ring, and... Oh, yeah, it's crazy. It's the old, the old Arena Mexico setup, too, so... Yeah, it's crazy shit. All right, the TV show and Galavision has proved technically, although the matches are still about the same. Once you understand Lucha Libre, the ballots aren't bad, and some flying moves are incredible. But if you aren't into the style and the personalities, it'd be hard to watch. Lucha eyes, brother. Dave's finally, you know, finally starting to get it. Yes. You know, and he's trying to get other people to get it too. Yes. They have graphics of everyone before their match starts, listing titles held or even lost recently. And on top of it, either says Runo or Technico. Can you imagine a U.S. equivalent before a Flair and Luger match where it would be saying heel and baby face and they show photos of the wrestler? I said, here's the thing Dave doesn't get. He, uh, Rudo and Technico are supposed to be wrestling styles. Yes. It's supposed to be like it's supposed to be scientific wrestler and rule break, basically. Yeah, that's the that's the whole gist of it. Yeah, but 
you know, you could that could be fudged around too. There's a reason that when there's the DQ, because the Rudos are just ganging up on someone, there's a reason that it's called Rudissimo. Because it's about the actions, you know? Yeah. Alright, UWA. No Toreo show during our results, but we have a Nakapan, Reno Nakapan on September 19th. Oh, wait, Mr. this just says Nakapan. It doesn't say what venue. Yeah, it's Reno Nakapan. Okay. Mr. Seed over Mascara de Oro. La Mascara Scorpio Jr. of Aguila de Plata and Danny Boy. Oh, Danny Boy. All right, uh, Los Tortiglos Ninjas, one, two, three, and four, Ninja Turtles, over Ambre Bala, Luis Mariscal, Tony Arce, and Volcano. And then Scorpio Sr. beat Dos Caras to win the double-double-A heavyweight title. So there's that. Okay, so wait, wait, wait. Are these the Turtles that worked Universal in Japan, or is this a different group? Because weren't the ones that worked in Japan Los Tortiglos Karatekas? I... You're going to lose me on now because I don't know which one's which. So I don't know if there's overlap. There's two sets. That one I don't know off the top of my head. Because the, the ones that work Japan are... I think it's Los Arqueros and someone else, right? Yeah. Let me look real quick. If I look for Tortuguia Ninja on Luchawiki... Okay. Uh, do we have a page for the whole group? Okay. Uh, okay, tor- it, it's tor- this has Tortuguio Karateka as the Mexican name and Tortuguio Ninja as the Japanese name. I told you. looking gets- at Rocky Santana's page, yeah. I told you it gets confusing. So, yes. it is what it is. All right, and to close out, WC and Bayamon, only one result, it's a title change on September 15th, that's Super Medicos, Jose Estrada and Jose Estrada Jr., Beat Rick Valentine, Kerry Brown, and Lance Idol to win the WC World Tag Titles. So there is that. Okay. All right. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I found there is a team page. It just wasn't coming up at first. So this is, okay, yeah, start in the UWA. So this is the right group. Maybe it's the wrong one here. And not to be confused with Tortugas Ninjas. So your turtles here are Rocky Santana as one, Robin Hood slash Brazo Cibernetico as two, Gallego is three and Danny Boy is four. All right. Well, let's go to halftime. As uh, we'll play some great 1990 commercials, and then we'll come back to halftime and we'll talk about Patreon. We'll talk about IWTV, VPN, hit the plugs, and then we'll return with, yes, more on Joe Pedicino as he talked to the torch this time, not just the Matt Watch. About Kongi. Yeah, we'll have that. We got Joel Goodhart running a uh, big show in Philly. We'll have that. Promotional war in the Indies in North Carolina. Sports Channel America TV situation, confusion, and all kind of other things going on. And uh, Eddie Gilbert banned from TV in Memphis. All that more after the break. Everybody's different. Completely different. One person works one way, another person works another. I mean, everybody's different. My business is uh, is built around my style, around my personality. I am the whole business. I am it. It's mine, and I don't think you're going to find another company like it. There's no business exactly like yours. 
So at IBM, we offer thousands of customized software programs and seminars for all kinds of businesses, all designed to help you run things your way. I really like working for myself. Oh, it's the best. Love the game. You don't have anybody else to count on, to, to blame things on when things go wrong. Hope you enjoyed all those great 1990 commercials as we pivot to the halftime segment of the show. We began to talk about Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And yes, we will be recording our new Patreon show very soon as we will discuss the 25th anniversary of the NWO, the formation of the NWO, all the way up until Eric Bischoff joined the group and uh, the then gates opened. Yeah, then every, everybody else joined after that. But we're going to focus on the core six of the group and how everything went there for the first uh, four months. Five months, basically, the NWO. Well, we're, and, right, we're uh, starting at the midpoint when they start adding more people beyond the Outsiders. No, yeah. But, it's the, but we, you know, we'll, I mean, we're starting... Know, I mean, that's the anniversary we're pegging it to, basically. And then, but we're starting from the beginning. I should say. Okay. Um, so anyway, I, I was correcting myself. You don't, well, you don't have to explain it that like that. I mean, it's just the way it is. Okay. All right. So yeah, we're starting when they, when Hall and Nash join up and go from there. All right. So that'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Be on the lookout for that. And of course, we have all the other shows that we've done over the five years, basically of our Patreon, almost full five. So go check that out. Five dollars a month. All the audio there that you can listen to at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Dollar a month allows you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment, which we'll do in a minute. $25 allows you to pick a show for the week. Now, make sure you pick a show that we haven't done already. And if we have done a show, then have a backup show handy in case we, like I said, we've done it or somebody else may have that week's pegged in your calendar. Yes. And by the way, since someone else asked about it, but it was picked already, we might as well mention, I forget if we had formally announced this in the past but yes in a few weeks everyone we are covering the week of heroes and rest uh, heroes of wrestling uh as requested by kyle rieger as a patreon pick there you go so that'll be coming soon but yeah so so make sure that at the show you want to do then then uh yeah get with us we'll make sure that everything works out all right of course we got the 30-day rule in effect 
Get that information before 30 days to picks on the Patreon website. Follow that protocol. 10 year rules in effect. Nothing uh, past 2011 or 2012 if you have a show for 2022. Uh, Wednesday to Tuesday on the timeline and this, that, and the other. So do that and you should be okay. $50 I should just send in for a segment of the show and 100 for the whole show. That's if you choose to. At patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Vix, who are our new and or returning patrons? All right, we would like to thank Zach Truitt. Thanks, Zach. John Geyer. Thanks, John. Both returning patrons, I believe. Brent Clark. Not to be confused with Brett Hitman Clark. <laughs> Thanks, Brent. Ash Preston. Thanks, Ash. Adam, it's K-L-U-G. I'm not sure if it's Klug or Klug. Thanks, Adam. And Chris Samsa. Thanks, Chris. Thank you guys for being uh, with us, whether you knew or coming back. And we thank all of you new and or returning patrons that have uh, been with us since the beginning, come along the way, left, came back, whatever. And we thank uh, all of you for your support at patreon.com slash sheets. All right, IWTV, Bix, what's caught your eye this week? Not necessarily as much on the on-demand, although there's one thing we'll talk about. Um, you know, at least as far as the stuff that normally kind of catches our interest. But it looks like I think more title uh, wrestling from the UK archival went up a bunch of it. And hold on, navigating to the wrong tab. You know, and some other stuff went up, including the... AIW show from, I believe it was last Friday, so Friday before last when this show goes up, where there was some kind of overheating issue, so the live stream for, I think, the first time ever on IWTV went down because of any kind of hardware failure, but because they had the smart work video crew shooting as usual, everything was being reported to the cameras and the show was up, edited and uploaded ASAP. Which it is. So I have not checked that out yet, but that show includes, you know, Kaplan versus Rhino and the designated Haas fight, uh, Gringo Loco versus Alex Zane versus Chase Oliver versus Matt Cross, Tom Lawler versus Mance Warner, Lee Moriarty versus Anthony Green, uh, main event of PME defending the tag titles against the Rip City Shooters, and more from our dear friends at Absolute Defense Wrestling. But the big thing to talk about is probably some of the upcoming events. Probably the biggest of which was announced uh, as it was the weekend before we recorded this, which is that, at least for one match, Matt Tremont is unretiring, and if Matt Tremont's going to be unretiring for one match, you can probably guess what it is, and yes, a... An actual explosion match with Onita at a ballpark, a minor league ballpark, I should say, in Trenton, New Jersey, on Halloween night. With Onita bringing his own pyro people over to show AEW how to do it right. It's finally happening, Chris. <laughs> yeah, it how is. How many years of Onita wanting to bring an explosion match to the U.S.? About 25, almost 25, 30. It's got to be at least... 97's the time, I think, when he really first started talking about it. So, yeah, close to a quarter century. And well, good things come to us to wait, I guess. Yeah. Because I saw some people doubting that he'll show up. I think 
they're missing the context of how this Onita stuff has always worked. If Onita's actually advertised for a booking in the States, I don't think he's ever no-showed, right? Uh, I don't know about all that. If he's actually <laughs> advertised, I'm saying. All the ones yeah. I'm thinking of are where there were never anything announced after an initial appearance and it didn't materialize. You know, ECW, XBW, that kind of thing. Whenever he's been advertised these last few years, he's always there. So that that should not be anyone's concern. And, you know, it's he obviously he's had his knee replacements a couple of years ago, but it's Onita. It's Onita doing an explosion match. A ton of it's smoke and mirrors anyway. So I am looking forward to this. I'm going to try to go. And of course, it will be live streamed on independentwrestling.tv on Halloween night. And they've got other big stuff coming up. October 8th, they have, what are they calling that show again? The, uh, the IWTV Purdue show. Untitled. Uh, headlined by a IWTV title match with Wheeler Yuta defending against Al Alex Shelley. Let me check real quick again who else is advertised for that. But also that night is the West Coast Pro Wrestling show No Leaf Clover, headlined by Red Death Daniel Garcia versus Minoru Suzuki. As we go on the uh, Minoru Suzuki indie tour here while he's in the States during the G1 and all that. So there's that. Let me go back to the schedule real quick. I clicked away from that one. I did not mean to. Just skimming real quick. Is there anything we haven't mentioned yet? All oh, right. Uncharted Territory is starting back up on, oh, that week, October 7th. <laughs> there you go. So first uh, full weekend of October is going to be a big one on IWTV, I would say. So. If you have not signed up for IWTV, best way to do it is to use the code BTSPOD because even though you don't get any kind of coupon benefit right now, that's still a referral we get as long as you're a paid subscriber. So please use that if you're subscribing anyway. So again, that's independentwrestling.tv, coupon code BTSPOD, and this stuff is always in the uh, show notes, show description. All of the stuff we mention here at Hextel. All right, Viper VPN. What about him? TarnYearl.com slash BTSVPN. Yes, it's just that it's it's tricky because there's nothing there's nothing like update with it. Don't matter. Okay. I mean that's money. I it's mean money. That, that's a, well it's money. Should a, we just be upfront with this? They give a shockingly high percentage for referral fees. And it's something that's actually useful. Yes. For, for people that, that that could use something like that. You know, I mean, and it's a really good one for Chief. <laughs> exactly. If you if you don't have one already through whatever you use, I mean, I know some uh, antivirus, which North 360 has their VPN. I know that uh, some web browsers have their own VPNs now. So right. So if but you're not still, using one of those. Yeah. Exactly. Then Viper VPN is great for you and. You know, they have features that other VPN services don't, besides, besides all the usual stuff with helping, you know, with anonymous browsing and showing your IP address as a different country to get around geoblocking and stuff. They have an Android TV app. So on Android-based, you know, streaming devices, you can just turn the VPN on on that and then launch the app for whatever streaming service you want to use. 
instead of having to fiddle with your router or anything like that, which is, to me, a very convenient feature. <laughs> you know, that you really don't have to futz around with stuff much to get it to work on your TV. So there's that. They are verified. I believe it's third-party verified that they don't keep logs of their users. And also, they have the kill switch feature, which is opt-in. This is not turned on by default, but for people who are like, super duper privacy conscious or whatever they have this kill switch feature where you can make it so that if the vpn connection drops it doesn't default back to you, your main home internet connection or whatever internet connection you're on maybe you're using it for privacy because you're on you know unprotected wi-fi or whatever it kills the connection on your end until it comes back as a privacy preserving feature which that's something we haven't really mentioned and we should that, you know, when we talk about privacy, we're not talking about just sketching things or whatever, or even living somewhere where internet privacy is a risk. Public Wi-Fi. There's a lot yeah. of risks there. And if you want to eliminate those, just turn on the VPN on whatever device you're using when you're connected to the public Wi-Fi. Exactly. So Yeah, you never know. We never know what you get into with some of these public Wi-Fis. I try not to use them. Like Even if it's a legit one, though, there could very well be someone trying to snoop on it. Exactly. You never know. Yep. So tinyurl.com slash btsvpn. They have various subscription plans, but the best deal is three years for 60 bucks, which comes out to less than $1.67 a month. So, again, that's tinyurl.com slash btsvpn for Viper VPN. All right. It's plug time. Cover to cover dropped uh, last weekend. So if you haven't listened to that already, go do it as we discuss the May 1989 issue of Inside Wrestling Magazine, where our lead story is Hulk Hogan admits, I love Elizabeth like a sister. And has a great cover of a old picture of Hulk Hogan with his hands holding something, and they imposed a picture of Elizabeth in the middle of his hands. Which was, uh, I mean, you look at this, you look at it, it's pretty pretty decent photoshopping work for 1989. So I, I all got, of the composited Aftermath covers look surprisingly good for the time frame and budget. Yeah, whoever they had uh, doing that stuff, it was pretty damn good. Do we think they were just doing it with, a, with scissors and paper and glue? I gotta, we gotta ask after or Bob Smith or whoever about that. Yeah, who knows? Because, you know, uh, there's that, you know, Kamala with Hogan's head on a stick. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a famous one, yeah. Uh, also, we talk about uh, Rick Morton and his heel turn in Memphis. All that's going on there, an interesting interview there. What? Rick Steiner, what? What'd you say? Oh, sorry, I accidentally muted myself. I was saying that. <laughs> was he going by Rick during that run instead of Ricky? Um, either or. Okay. In, in Memphis, he kind of went either or at times. They would call him Rick or Ricky. Well, so. even as a babyface earlier, they called him Rick more than other places. Yeah. Uh, Rick Steiner. Is he the wrestling's new Dusty Rhodes? We'll talk about that. We have Terry Taylor. Jumping the weasel on the rooster. Well, not so, so fast on that one. Plus all the news, results, uh, the roll call of champions is inside of wrestling. And quite the fan letter about Dusty Rhodes by some uh, random woman. And uh, talking about 
being lost in Dusty's eyes and him being a fat ass. So, I mean, what an interesting letter that was and a really fun show. So everybody go listen if you haven't listened to it already on cover to cover on this feed. So check it out. Do you think uh, that's a real letter? Or do you think that's Eddie Elner having fun? Oh, that's, I mean, I said on the show that we know there's real people's names on these letters. Yes. So there's proof that there are there these letters some of these letters are real but you, not all of our because especially the verbiage i mean it's total and we talk about that on this show in particular the verbiage used in these letters sounds like aftermath verbiage like federations and leagues and we get in that discussion about that and just some of the other stuff that's said in in uh rule breakers and just a lot of the a lot of the words you'll see in these letters are words that you would see used by the writers of the magazine. Yeah, but so, some of those I think are just gonna be fans, especially younger fans taking after the writers. It's possible. But I don't know, it's it's a little shady. But anyway, it doesn't matter. You it's, you it's, see it as a like be that as it may, and then from there nonwithstanding medical well, ability kind of thing. It, it, it it's a wrestler magazine, so it's not gonna be a shoot anyway. It's a you know, it is what it is. It's fiction. So we have we have a good time talk about that stuff. So everybody listen to it. Exile on Bad Street. I am in prep work right now, getting ready to uh, do the next Wild Side show. I've been watching some Wild Side, so look up for that in the next couple of weeks as well. As I hook up with uh, Dan and Jeff and get that done. I already started on notes, and this will be quite the show. Um, just to give you a, a quick little glimpse of what we're talking about, um, Wild Side was one of the promotions that ran the Saturday after 9-11. So we'll yeah. talk about that. Well, we've talked and, about that before with Matt. Matt Griffin, yeah. former J.C. Norrie. Yeah, so we'll have Dan and Jeff talking about it. And all kinds of other stuff going on. Really fun time of Wild Side history. And they had the anniversary show as well during that time period. Second anniversary. So we'll talk about that and a whole lot more in a couple of weeks on that. Next week's Between the Sheets. Um, we go back to 1994. We... Don't have a guest locked in yet. We got one on the line, on the hook. It's all just a matter of semantics and uh, everything working out. But uh, we're going to be going back to 1994 and we'll talk about WCW wanting to retire Ric Flair and all the stuff going on there. We got WF and this this is uh, September 94. So, you know, there's all kind of wackiness going on there. So we'll talk about that. But the most important thing on the show... Blackjack Brawl. Yes, Herb Abrams, UWF Blackjack Brawl. One of the legendary bad pay-per-views in wrestling history. So we'll, we'll run that down. And yes, we'll talk more about Steve Rossi and everything else going on that show. Let's hear it for the Jews. and yeah. Well, let's hear it for the Jews. I don't know if let's hear it for the Jews is in the newsletters, is it? Or it... It's, I don't think it's in the notes. Yeah, I'll have to pull out my copy of Have a Nice Day. Because but you have the original source for it. I mean, it, we talked about this on the Herb Abrams Patreon show, which is available on uh, the feed as a free, free. Yes. Uh, well, it was two shows, and we combined them together when the Dark Side came out last year. Um, so so still, I mean, we'll, it's we'll also talk, one we'll, of the reasons we want a guest too. <laughs> yeah, so and we're we're trying to get that done. But anyway, we'll talk about it again for people that have a list to it and everything. So we'll have that. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod. 
Bix at David Bix and uh, Dark Side in the Rain Bix. It started uh, after we recorded this segment. And uh, boy, what a doozy uh, the, the season premiere is, isn't it? Um, having not actually <laughs> seen the finished product or anything yet. <laughs> I was actually going to bring up, like, yeah, by the way, for anyone who was expected us to talk about it either. We hasn't aired yet as we record this. Yes, it's several hours away from airing as we record this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what to expect of the reaction to this uh, plane ride from Hell show. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Because, I mean, the, how do I put this? It seems like a lot of people, even with the lawsuit and the publicity it got at the time, seems like a lot of people know almost the contemporaneous wrestling newsletter version much better than they do the more, I don't know if I'd say mainstream, but still the more public and arguably easy to find lawsuit version. You know? So in so many people's heads, and this is also why it was, in part why it was such a highly requested topic, they think, oh, the, oh, the worst thing that happened is Michael Hayes passed out and got his ponytail cut off and Brock Lesnar and Kurt Hannon grappled into the, uh, into, what was it, the exit door, allegedly? Yeah. When, no, there's more, and it's, it's stuff, though, that was alleged in the lawsuit. And, like, and, and, well, it's about who's involved in it, and their standing among wrestling fans. Well, that too, but I'm saying, I think a lot of people just don't know about the more serious stuff. Yeah, well, and they'll Scott find Law out. We're accused of. They'll find out, and, and Ric Flair's going to be the one, it's going to be interesting to watch, see how that plays out, considering all his future in wrestling and his Car Shield sponsorship, which is also on wrestling program, so... I do not believe there was a car shield to add during the season preview show or the second half of the season preview show last week. So we'll see. But. Yeah, but it should but be yeah, those car shield ads are everywhere. So yeah, there's a lot going All on. Right. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Real quick before we move on, uh, the new NXT picks, what were your thoughts on the new NXT? From what I saw? Because we were recording as it was going on. I had it on because I was curious. So I was watching it. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was entertaining from what I watched. It was different. It wasn't the same old NXT anymore, which, you know, the NXT of the past couple of years or so, not, I mean, it's a lot. Let's see. NXT has had a lot of great wrestling action on their pay per view. I mean, on, on Takeover, Takeover has always been a great wrestling show. But the booking and the week to week television has been inconsistent for a long so, time. So, <laughs> for a long time. And the one thing about the new NXT is they're not trying to be what that NXT was. And was it good all the time? Way it looked. No, it wasn't good, but it was different. And it was, at least it seemed, it seemed like it was NXT being what it probably it should be, developmental. And you see, you saw a lot of new faces on there, like uh, Braun Brecker, Rick Steiner's kid, and uh, I thought it's Breaker. Bond. 
Breaker, Brecker, whatever. Von Wagner, who is uh, allegedly Wayne Bloom's son. I still say he looks like Richard Keel. I really and, don't uh, that. He looks just like his dad. No, he does not. Uh, and then you he have... He looks more uh, like his dad than he looks like Richard Keel. He looks, he looks more like strong Kobayashi than he looks like Wayne Bloom. But, um... I don't get that. why you keep comparing him to someone with gigantism. <laughs> it's like, it's just his, the way his jaw, nose, mouth is done. Okay, just, I think I think I get what you're saying. But um, he was on there, and, and and others, you know. I mean, it seems like it's going to a different direction, and we'll just see what happens, you know. But uh, and and hey, it's more colorful now. It's not oh, black. You know, yeah. So. No matter what anyone thinks of any the rest of it, the, the uh, what you call it, the look of the show just badly needed that overhaul. Yeah, so it looks we'll see nicer, what It looks more like an actual venue. It's brighter, but it's it's and, not like they overdid the colors or anything either. And you know, it made sense to give the belt back to Champa in a way because he never lost it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so even though Dunn re-upped that day with the company, but still, I mean... Well, also, and even though they booked the show, like, Von Wagner would win, because otherwise, why are you doing that substitution? But Well, it, well, it, yeah, I mean, you had Braun beat, uh, you know, L.A. Knight, who was in the match, but it all paid off at the end of the show when Braun and Ciampa had their little uh, stare down there at the end, so it's already building that up, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens there, and of course AEW you know, has uh, more of their stuff going on, and you know these all these big debuts and everything. So uh, yeah, I mean it's going to be interesting how uh, how it goes, you know, especially uh, AEW and Arthur Ashe Stadium, which you know, I mean, I understand doing Omega and Danielson at that show, but I don't. I don't think it needed it because the show was already sold out. I mean, don't you think that that match should have been held for a show that you haven't sold out yet or you haven't sold tickets for yet? I mean, it may, is that just me or I think, I think part of it is that they want to make it clear. This is one of the biggest shows in the history of the company. Yeah, but I don't know. And it, it, it's not a title match, correct? No. And they made that very clear, you know, Basically, the idea is, is that Danielson is like, no, I get it. I have to earn a title shot. But this is not about me wanting a title shot. This is about me, as the first thing I want to do here, proving myself against the best. Let's see who's really the best. Et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now, yeah, obviously, yeah. the you know, the champion is the best, blah, blah, blah. But still, they made it very clear what this is and why. Yeah, so, I mean... Again, I understand why they're doing it, but I don't know. I'm just maybe that's just me and old school wrestling thinking is just let's try to make some money off this when it's up. I mean, and, and put it on something that isn't locked in stone and is already making money anyway on this show. So I don't know. But anyway, uh, Kenny Omega. I mean, I haven't like I said, I don't watch current wrestling like I was. I'll catch videos or whatever. When did he look like a hybrid between uh, Blackjack Mulligan and 2005 Triple H? You mean with the mustache? Well, the facial hair. 
period or whatever it he, is at this point. Yeah, he's got the he's got the dyed black, and now the Triple H uh, owed the Ole Anderson beard. Now, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he also has that, the blue highlights in the hair that you can barely see. Yeah, what's going on? Doesn't really match the facial hair. Yeah. Or or the uh, North American title inspired belt, for that matter. So is Rampage going to two hours every week, or is that I just have no idea. I th- I think for now it's just for the one show. You think it can't get to the point where it's too much? Oh, if they do it weekly? If they go two hours weekly of Rampage. So you have two hours of Dynamite, two hours of Rampage. Dark is what? Well, Dark is now you know, taking the studios. Universal, which I yeah. think is a tremendous, tremendous idea. So there's that elevation. And it's also good just to have it even have a different look from. The yeah, Ele- elevation is what one hour. Let me look at their YouTube real quick. Yeah, the dark and the moods of Universal Studios. I, th- I mean, again, that's a fantastic idea. And yeah, I love it. Although I haven't watched that one yet, but they take a lot of interesting matches on that show. A lot of names that people know. A lot of people that was in NXT and. Have been indie darlings like Kurt Stallion, Anthony Henry, Anthony Green, you know, um Fry Daddy was on there, Russell America's Fry Daddy. Oh, I uh, yeah. yeah, he was in one of the matches. But I mean there's a lot of people on, on that show that on the tapings that have been been around, so interesting. Although, you know, since they're taking Universal Studios in Florida, I was hoping maybe the Southern Posse or Fake Manny Fernandez or Barry Houston would get uh, some bookings, but alas, didn't happen. Kendall. Eddie Jackie, Kenny Kendall. Um, what's the guy that had the hair? Wild uh, Bill. Oh, what was his name? Bill something. Nasty Ned Brady. Nasty Ned Brady, but well, Wild Bill something. He was in WWE. He really at one point in time he in the late nineties he grew his hair out really long. He was a job guy mm-hmm. and worked and worked mainly the Florida stuff. And what was his fucking name? I don't know. But anyway. For what it's worth, this week's elevation. Bill Payne. Bill Payne. Thank you. Okay. I don't think he was wild. And Butch Long. And Butch Long. Yes. Which, great. Long Butch. Um, anyway. This week's elevation, which was taped at the previous week's TV, was about 40 and a half minutes. And regular Dark, which was taped at Universal, was 54 minutes. Okay. So. Back to manageable. All right, so you got two-hour shows, basically. A two-hour di- uh, Dynamite, Rampage, who knows? So, again, I don't want them to be in the situation where it gets way too much. Because God knows we've seen that in, in WWE, we see it in WCW, especially, where you have so much television that just burns out your creative. Just tears them up. And Here's another thing, too. Tony Khan is a is heavily involved in creative, and we got the football season going on now. <laughs> and Jacksonville, you know, is in the news as we talk about this because of all the shit with USC and asking Urban Meyer if he's going to leave that USC job, which he said no chance. But, you know, those rumors will still be going around no matter what. So you got that going on. So, yeah, it's a busy time in the uh, the Khan empire so to speak, with all the wrestling and the Jaguars and everything going on there. So let's just hope that everything, you know, works out and they don't have any uh, 
I don't say overexposure, but overwork. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, I mean, the the I think the way they book in terms of just the flow of the angles and stuff, because it seems like for the most part we're not going to get that much in terms of angles setting up the following week on, not in like a major way on Rampage. I think it could sustain fine, but yeah, it's just it's still a lot more work. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, that's it for this segment. So, uh, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to the independent scenes here and all the stuff going on. And begin with the Purpose of Torch, and they talk to Joe Pedicino. Hey. Joe Pedicino told the Torch that we will have 120 syndicated stations come January. We're going to do it right or not do it at all. Joe also explained the negotiation with Fox ended on this September 14th when Barry and Dillard decided they were not ready to gamble long-term big money on an unproven product, but left the door open for future negotiations. Joe said, to be honest with you, it takes a lot of pressure off us. Now it's a matter of showing we can do syndication correctly. And none of that work is still negotiate with Pedicino. No names are officially being mentioned as being involved in Kongi at this time. Well, this ties into what we talked about earlier in the WWF, where uh, that came up with the Saturday night, not Saturday night event, but the deal to air a primetime special on Fox with WWF, which doesn't happen until 1992. Yeah. But here's the thing with Pedicino and Fox, where, I mean, think what you think. There, there is some, I think there is some validity to all this because Joe Pedicino was, you know, at Channel 36, when Channel 36 became the Fox affiliate in Atlanta, Joe was still a big wig in sales, but he's run the wrestling block. He had a great relationship with National Fox. So WrestleThon got on a Ross Schaefer's show mm-hmm. in 1988. So, and I'm pretty sure that Joe had many dealings with Barry Diller. And Fox over the years when he was at WH. I don't know about Barry Diller, but... I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Barry Diller was dealing... I'm sure that Barry Diller was more hands-on at the beginning when they were trying to, you know, get get the affiliates. Hmm, perhaps. I mean, I mean, I gotta think so. so it's a startup off the ground, basically. So, you know, it's a little bit differently run, but... I'm sure Joe had a lot more connections than people would think of Fox because of his history with Fox. Sure. So that's probably why he thought he could talk to them. You know, he knew there was always some some type of flirtation with wrestling and interest in doing a wrestling show. And, uh, I mean, he thought that he had something that they could, could work with. Why, why start, you know, why get with WF when you can start brand new with a new promotion from the ground up. Basically treated like you treated all these new TV shows that you put out there when you launch your network. Sure. But we all know what happens here. Yes. And Joe still doesn't know yet that Kongi is uh, not a thing. So there's that too. Well, I'm trying to remember, was the parent company also supposed to be called Kongi? It was, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The Nigerian parent company, not just the American company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, for more on this, listen to the global Patreon shows, which, although 
The one that has the bulk of stuff about this is uh, the one that we also have available for free, part one. Yep. There you go. So you, the the beginning of the Global Wrestling Federation, the uh, early days, so to speak. Well, the show that covers everything that happened before they ever ran a show. Yes. So there you go. We talk more in depth about all this stuff there. All right, let's go to the WWA. Larry Sharp promoted the show in Elizabeth, New Jersey on September 21st. Announced a paid attendance of one and a gate of $10. Actually, the show was sold for $10,000 to a guy named Rocky, who beat Iron Mike Sharp at a minute event by countout. <laughs> His wife, four months pregnant, was the valet of one, and she was kicked out of during the main event for attacking heel manager Hubie Marks, or as you may know him as, Carmine Desperado. The Lords of Darkness won the WWE Tag Titles, beating Big Boss, not Big Boss Man, not the boss, but Big Boss, and Chief Thunder Mountain, Chris Candido, kept the junior title being Ray Odyssey, Mark Flyer, probably Mark Fryer, beat Jungle Jim McPherson, and the Spider went to a draw with Johnny Favorite, and the actual crowd was about 125 fans. Okay. Um, the Spider is a singles as Glenn Ruth, right? Yes. Okay. And something I, I notice here is, boy, can you tell the difference between a WWA show where Dennis is involved and one where it's just Larry? Well, yes, yeah, all guys of... That Larry Bresky train or, you know, uh, people like that. Yes. Affiliates or whatever. Yes. You're not seeing the major, I wouldn't say major, but you're not seeing any, like, old WWF names and stuff like that, really. Hanging around. Yeah. So he just sold the show to a guy? Yeah, who won the main event of Iron Mike Sharp. My count out. My count out. But still. <laughs> Fantasy camp, I guess? Hey, why not? I mean, if you got a guy that's going to buy it, you know, he bought the show. Also, knowing what sold shows for, went for in that in those days, boy, did he rip off this guy. <laughs> well, Larry Sharp is a shrewd businessman. What can you say? I mean, I know it's like a more expensive part of the country because Elizabeth is fairly close to New York City. But, like, you know, you could get, think of, you know, like Chris... Chris Adam, wait, no, is it Chris Adam? No, Gary Harden, like, I'm guessing maybe Chris Adams, too, were charging, like, five grand for shows that had a bunch of named Texas guys. I gotta think Jerry Gray was charging something similar in Florida. But this is New York, New Jersey, though, Bix. It everything, is. Everything the, costs more up there. But without any talent costs. Really? Well, the, guy, the guy really wanted to be in the main event. Obviously, he's a big fucking mar for himself, and yeah. he wanted to be in the main event, and he paid the money. See, this and, Larry, and, Larry, and, Larry, and Larry probably knew that when he was talking to the guy about putting on the show. He's like, oh, this fucking guy, he wants to be man advanced. So I'm going to tell him 10 grand. And the dude took it. Probably. He probably didn't necessarily even think he would pay it. Yeah. That was the case. Exactly. So he's like, well, shit, the guy's going to pay it. Fuck, here you go. So anyway, let's stay in the Northeast. And let's go to Joel Goodhart's Tri-State promotion, which drew 1,500 fans and a $22,000 gate in Philadelphia on September 15th for what many are calling the best indie show in the United States this year. And by the way, as always, remember when we give results of a, and the gate of a major Tri-State show, 
that the talent budget on a lot of these was $30,000 or more. Yes. And this would have been at McGonagall Hall in Philadelphia, I would guess. Pennsylvania Hall, whatever it was called, yeah. Yeah. All right. Eddie Gilbert. Pit Katniss Jack with the hot shot in the opening match, which is interesting considering what happens a year later. One star. Disappointing. Hmm. And also, exactly. this has to be the very end of him being Cactus Jack Manson, right? Yes. Exotic Adrian Street pinned Jimmy Valiant when Miss Linden appeared. Negative one star. Valiant has lost tons of weight and looks terrible. Tony Stetson beat Johnny Hotbody in the Harris Hair match with the heels attacked Stetson and went to shave his head. But they turned off the razor when they ran it through his hair, so nobody had their head shaved. But nobody really cared anyway. Half a star. Okay. Why? The Sandman, or excuse me, Mr. Sandman, beat J.T. Smith when referee Ron Shaw, yes, Ron Shaw of the Davis San Martino match fame, turned heel. Half a star. Kevin Von Erica, Chris Adams, fresh from uh, World Class's debut. Went to a double count out with Austin Island Al Perez. Fans cheered the heels and booed Von Eric. Ring work wasn't much, but Island did a great job on the house mic. Star and a half. DC Drake, who may have broken his ankle during this match. We'll more have more about that in a minute. Uh, won the Tri-State title beating, yes, the Rockin' Rebel. When Rebel's manager, Baby Doll, yes, that Baby Doll, threw powder in Rebel's face. Drake looked good. Woman at ringside with Drake. So he had woman against baby doll here, who was cheered even though he was a heel. And woman was his manager semi-regularly in this era. At yes. least in Tri-State and I think some other places. Two stars on that. Abdul the Butcher was scheduled to do against Rageable Manny Fernandez, but Fernandez hadn't arrived since he early that night in Kingston, Pennsylvania against Brian Blair. No results of that show. Abby went against Cactus Jack. And Katniss did a heavy juice job when Manny showed up and all three brawled and all three juice all over the building. Sounds hot. And then our main event saw Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler in a match of which highlights apparently will eventually air in Memphis. Funk got rid of two referees when Andy Gilbert came out the referee and the two began double teaming Lawler before finally Gilbert counted as Funk pin Lawler. Bulldog Brower, yes, the one-man riot squad, a big name here in the 60s, early 70s, managed Funk, did a hard way juice job banging himself to the guardrail. After the match, Idol went to save, made the save for Lawler. But twice they teased Idol turning on Lawler as well. Funk played heel, but the crowd cheered him above Lawler. So Lawler both stalled and brawled, and three and a half star matches mainly because of Funk's one man show. You know what's really interesting about that? What? We're teasing what's about to happen in Memphis on a non USWA show. Because Idol turns heel at the title tournament. Yeah, and it talks about this is going to be airing on a, you know, airing on Memphis Television. So there's that too. I don't think it did though, did it? I don't remember it. Maybe it aired in the syndicated show. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But anyway, all right. There are some injuries on this show. Terry Funk uh, suffered severe lacerations, which had not been closed. Next day, this is from Matt Watch. Funk refused hospital attention. D.C. Drake was diagnosed with a severely sprained ankle in order to take a two-week layoff. And J.T. Smith was also treated for a fractured jaw. J.T. Smith has the worst luck, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, with jaws. Because didn't he have a jaw injury in ECW? Where he was wired shut? I don't know about that, but the 
the slingshot topay that went wrong. And hand injuries. That's what that, he had some hand injuries. Well, meaning. no, but the the slingshot topay where his toes caught the toes of his boots caught the ropes that led to the you fucked up chance. He landed flat on his face and his mouth was swollen up bad. Yeah, that yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. That. Yeah, that's the one that, and that's what led to the FBI, because he had, you know, he, he he became Italian in his mind. So, all right, there's a promotional war going on in the Carolinas between Bobby Fulton and Greg Price, who were partners. Price is using a guy called Jimmy Hines, which is Bobby Fulton's real name, as an open and match squash guy. Price has seven shows booked between now and the first week of November. Let's just say that in a war between Bobby Fulton and Greg Price, I'm probably going to side with Bobby Fulton. Yeah, but I think the winner was Greg Price. Because Greg Price ran shows for many, 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 many years. Uh, in the Carolinas, yes. And Bobby turned his attention more to just running Ohio. And all yeah, that. so there you go. <laughs> there you go. All right, uh, speaking of the Carolinas... The NAWA, George Scott's promotion, is now doing TV tapings in a studio, so small crowds made it hard to create a right arena atmosphere for the TV shows. I'll say. Yeah, they tried to tape their TV in the old Crockett buildings. <laughs> yeah. What was the really big building they ran for the title tournament? Oh. Um, Where they drew just a few hundred people? Was it Rock Hill, South Carolina? Did they run the Winthrop Coliseum? I don't remember. It was a pretty big building, though. Yeah, I mean they they ran you know Spartanburg Memorial Auditorium, um, they oh they ran Lawrence Joel Memorial Coliseum in Winston Salem. That's where Wake Forest plays basketball. That's right. Ugh. Yeah, that's like a sixteen thousand seat building. And they drew what like it was like one hundred fifty, right? Yes, but they they take TV. I think they take TV at Dorton Arena one time. I mean, yeah, it, they. <laughs> I guess they thought that you know. We're bringing wrestling back to the Carolinas, wrestling the way it used to be, you know, and all this other stuff. And we got these guys that people know, and and there's good, you know, some good names at the, at that time. But uh, yeah, I mean, you'll see here as we read off the results and stuff. We talk about this that there's people there, but not to draw that type of crowd. No, well, they still have got Steamboat at this point. Yeah, even not he's for on long. Show, even though he's on the show we're talking about, you know, Matt Bourne, another guy whose name's not going to be on this, this show yeah. we talk about, but they got people, Bob Horton Jr. Yes. And for those who don't know, this is what would become South Atlantic once they scaled down. Correct. The American Bulldogs, who were trained by Larry Sharp and worked for George Scott, now are claiming they signed a contract where Sharp was to receive a percentage of their earnings in exchange for managing and training under duress, and they want out. Sharp has similar legal problems with Bam Bam Bigelow and the Soul Taker, who was here as Baron Samiti. Godfather. Bigelow case will be the precedent. If Sharp wins, he'll probably win the other two cases, because circumstances are similar. If he loses, then it might prove to be a waste of money to try and collect percentage from guys who really haven't earned much to begin with. This is something else, isn't it, Biggs? I mean, we knew about the Bigelow thing, but how about that? Yeah. Charles Wright and the pit, the future Pitbulls. And also, like, I don't like this lifetime percentage shit, but it's interesting when you think about it that Larry got all of those, all four of those guys into New Japan very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, he was well, earning 10% of their lifetime earnings? No. Was he working to try to earn their, to earn his keep to be able to get a percentage? Yes. But, 
what was Vern wanting in his deal? Wasn't it twenty five percent or twenty percent? I think his was ten too. So obviously Larry heard about that. Possibly. Now, I I think Larry was the last one who did this on any kind of scale, right? Definitely in a scale of this type, yes, I'm yeah, sure. I don't think I don't think Roland ever did this, right? With APW guys. I don't think Bassman ever did it with the UPW guys or anything. Well, because Bassman also had his other finders fee stuff with the with WWF. Yeah. I, I, I gotta think Bassman would have done it in a different situation. Um, hmm. Trying to think of anyone else that feels like they might ha have. And maybe, I, I'm guessing maybe others have pulled it or tried to pull it and just didn't bother trying to enforce it, too. Yeah, it's just it's just shady. Flair, he's trying to pull that. Sh Vern tried to pull that shit on Flair. That didn't work. He tried to pull it at Super Clash '85. Yeah, he wanted back pay. <laughs> That's such That's an perfect. arrogant thing, too. Like, again, if you are working to earn your keep, like at least Larry was actually trying to manage their careers. Yeah. Like at least Larry. Like again, like. I don't like it, but Larry, like, when he said, like, it says managing and training, and he was doing actual career management for them. Yeah. You know, and he had a good track record of getting guys into New Japan and stuff, so, like, his is less egregious than others. Certainly less egregious than Vern, but still, it's still bullshit. Yes, it is bullshit. So, anyway, well, they tried. Alright, uh, Civic Center in Greenwood, South Carolina. Another one of the old haunts of, uh, Crocker Promotions. They, they ran this card. Ranger Ross against Trent Knight. Chris Chavis against Tommy Landell. Curtis Thompson against Vince Torelli. Ken Shamrock. Ass. Ass. Yeah, Ken's wearing the white tights at this time, too, bitch. Well, how so. about that ass? Yes, it's a, that is a match right there for, uh, for certain people. No doubt. Uh, NAWA tag titles, the American Bulldogs, Pitbulls, defending against the Gladiator and Thunderfoot. Which Gladiator would this be? So probably probably, be probably Gary, Royal. Gary Royal and Joel Deaton. Yeah. And NAWA heavyweight title, Robert Fuller defending against number one Paul Jones. And I, since I don't think that uh, Paul Jones won the title at any point, your winner is likely. You have the biggest dick I've ever seen on a man. Oh, there was some type of screw job finish. Who knows? Paul could have won by DQ. Well, potentially, yes. And also, for those who don't know, uh, Showdown in Little Tokyo is now on HBO Max. Oh, there you go. If you would like to see uh, that fine Brandon Lee's Dolph Lundgren vehicle. All right. IWA Florida. And we've got a Matt Watch. The IWA hopes to have another crack at Sports Channel America in the winter, or even sooner, if Herb Abrams UWF does not fulfill their deal with Sports Channel America. For more on this, listen to the Herb Abram shows and the AWA. Well, no, we, I don't think it was on the AWA shows by that point. But. The thing about the, the thing about our week is, is that all the Herb stuff involving the taping was the day before our week started. Which so taping? We, the first Rosita taping? Yeah, so. The one that happened or the one that got canceled? The one that happened, I think. So, but anyway, we talked about that on the previous show. So and is that the, that's and that's the one where. Um, Mike Sampson or whatever the referee's name is get, gets get, allegedly gets into a fight with Doc or whatever. Whatever, yeah. All right. 
let's stay in Florida. Florida Championship Wrestling, the Steve Kern promotion. They ran on September 20th at Tampa, where uh, we had Sergeant Rock beat the Coconut Kid, Debbie Drake, Dave Malenko, right? Yes. Over AJ Watson. The Terminator, Martin Laurinaitis over Ron Slinker by disqualification. That's Florida as hell. Dick Slater over Bodyguard Mark. <laughs> and then our main event, Steve Kern over Johnny Ace. When Dick Slater was handcuffed to Ace's manager, Johnny G. Lyons, and Slater hit Ace with the handcuffs to lead to the pin. Yeah. Why? It's Steve Kern's you know, promotion, so that's why. All right, staying in Florida. Angel Luna Vachon and Tom the Punisher Nash were married Friday in Pompano Beach, Florida. This would be the 14th or 21st. Luna was leaving the next one to tour Japan, which had to be the 14th then because we had real results. Uh, there was a brawl at the reception when Nash headbutting some guys who got out of control. <laughs> Sounds like Tom Nash. Oh, my goodness. Um, yes. Where did the whole thing of her name being Angel or Angel come from now that it's, everyone seems pretty clear on the fact that her name was, was Trudy? I think she probably did that. She told people that because of the the clash with the Luna persona, probably. I guess, or just to pop people, or she just you know fucking. It's possible it was a nickname or something too. I guess it's possible. I mean, it's wrestling, you know. Look at all the people they gave fake names over the years. So, not as gimmick names either. Just gave a fake fake real name. So, it happens. Yes, and. uh, Looking forward to the Luna episode of Dark Side, too, coming up in the next few weeks. I forget which date that is. Yeah, all that stuff's coming up, isn't it? Yep. And uh, have not seen the finished episode, but apparently David Heath is fantastic in it, kind of guiding everyone through their relationship and stuff. Well, that's good. Yeah. And it's weird to think about, you know, with her mental illness and stuff, could you imagine just how bad things would have been? And I don't say this as an indictment of Tom Nash. I'll explain in a second. How much, how bad things could have been if she and Nash stayed together longer? Given, like, whatever, like, he was on the run from a few years later. Yeah, it wouldn't have been good, would it? So. Yeah, I still need to listen to the podcast. It was uh, Bowdrin and Barry that did the podcast with him, right? Yes. I still need to listen to that because I've always been curious what the actual story was of why he disappeared for so many years. Yeah. All right, let's go to the USWA. And we start with Matt Watch. A one-night tournament to determine a new USWA champion will be held at the Mid-South Coliseum on October the 8th. The tournament to fill the vacancy left when Snowman, built in a promotion in dispute over a proposed program to drop the belt, will feature several outside stars. The Memphis group is trying to sign Terry Funk, Austin Idol, Mark Callis, and Paul Lorner to work the event. Eddie Gilbert and four-time, former four-time USWA champion Jerry Lawler are the co-favorites, but some insiders say Funk may be given the belt on a short-term basis if he agrees to work the tournament. And it ends up being Lawler, but he jo- drops it shortly thereafter to Funk. Correct. Which, do you think Terry just hadn't agreed yet, maybe? It's possible. Um... Because otherwise, I feel like the right result, unless they felt like they just needed to do a babyface win, is to have Funk go over. 
Yeah. It may, I mean, we know who's giving Steve all this information. That's what we're about to get into more. You mean Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr., the booker of the promotion? Not yet. Well, he's the soon to be booker. <laughs> Negotiations are close to bringing Ricky Steamboat to Memphis for the tournament. Talks are going on with Bonnie Steamboat for a possible two-week swing in the Mid-South area. Of course they are. And the week after this is the announcement that Ricky Steamboat would not be working in the tournament. So. <laughs> but yes, Bonnie Steamboat made that decision. What a Bonnie Steamboat she is for that. <laughs> um, Could you imagine Ricky Steamboat in Memphis? Also, do you think that Eddie maybe thought that he was in better with Ricky than he really was? I guess he thought that whole tag thing was a shoot. <laughs> well, wow. cause I mean, well, because like if you ask Ricky about it, he doesn't like he doesn't have any bad words to say about Eddie. But he was like, I I didn't understand this. Like, why why is he, why is he the one that's the catalyst for me coming in? Like, I guess he felt like Eddie really wasn't enough of a pushed act or anything which eddie had just come back so it it did kind of come out of nowhere eddie was feuding with rick and barry and he needed a partner and that feud came out of nowhere <laughs> yes you know so <sighs> hey i mean things were changing what can you say dusty that wasn't dusty's plans and dusty's gone so it was uh Jim Hurd's plan, and then, of course, George Scott. So. Well, yes. All right. Uh, in the case where David Ashford Smith, a.k.a. Chris Champion, Kawabunga here at the time, made the sexual advances allegedly on a 12-year-old girl, Smith was indicted this past week for sexual battery, confinement, and child molestation, and the trial date was set for December 26th. Smith's lawyers think he'll probably get off, because the girl has changed her story several times. Don't use the words get off. <laughs> I feel like I'm making a Norm McDonald joke here. But only Norm could get away with stuff like that. Rest in peace, Norm. We love you. <sighs> something, something, turtle, something, something, cock. <laughs> well, no, just anything about <laughs> regarding that stuff. I mean, well, Norm I, mean, I know, I know, I know. It's not good, but Norm is the type of person who would have gotten away with it. Yeah, it's Norm, and there's something sexual involved. So of course it would have him saying, in that Norm way, cock. <laughs> the thing, the the thing I saw. We're recording this on the day of Norm's death, yeah. and um, everybody's been reminiscing about Norm today, and you know all the stuff going on, and uh, Sean O'Connor, who uh, worked with Norm. And stuff was t telling the story on Twitter about, you know, you ever heard about, you ever heard of Mangrate? M A N G R A T E. You never heard of that? Mm -mm. All right, Mangrate is a, um, it's a grill. It's like an iron grill or something like that. They, okay. th they're all over the place. You can get them on Amazon, whatever. And they were advertising on Norm's show. Um, it's a podcast. So Norm lost him as a sponsor because of how he did his ad reads. O'Connor uh, tweeted out that they wrote a man great ad about how famed child murderer cannibal Albert Fish would have loved cooking on a man great. 
like and they and they pulled their ass where they ever got to film it. <laughs> Sean said it was so needlessly dark and it fucking ruled. No, only Norm. <laughs> but anyway, back to uh, David Ashford Smith, Chris Champion. Um, yeah, talk. Uh, what happens here, Bix? You're you're the guy that knows all this stuff more than me. Okay, let me refresh my memory as I look through search results for Chris Champion in the uh, in the paper of the Evansville Courier and Press. Um, okay, not work release. Let's see. Uh, I mean, he ends up being convicted, but let me see. So the trial you said is in December-ish, or uh, or is this trying to find? Okay, here we go. No, it's a, it, the trial's not for a year. So let's see, what's the right one to click on here? Do we have the verdict here, or is that the next one? Uh, okay, so here we go. This is Wednesday, September 25th, 1991. Pro wrestler found guilty of molesting 11-year-old girl by Eileen Dempsey. A uh, professional wrestler who wore his karate turtle costume into a Vandenberg circuit courtroom on Tuesday. You'll understand why. Was found James guilty. Van no. Uh, of molesting an 11-year-old girl. Christopher Ashford Smith. That's right. It's Christopher David Ashford Smith. Yes. Yes. Uh, who with the, Which, yeah, at first I searched for David Ashford Smith and I couldn't find anything. So had to do a limited uh, Chris Champion search. But who already said wrestles under the name of Chris Champion and Cowabunga the Karate Turtle. <laughs> was on trials of child molesting, sexual battery, and confinement. He was found guilty of child molesting, which carries a maximum penalty of eight years. Uh, found innocent on other charges was stemmed from an incident that occurred after a wrestling match September 5th, 1990 at the Coliseum. Deputy Prosecutor Michael Clay said Ashford Smith asked the girl to meet him in a balcony that was close to the public. Clay said the girl went to the balcony where Ashford Smith put her on it Okay, well, okay, this isn't actually that graphic, so I don't know if I need to give a... I mean, that's your warning, but it's not super graphic or anything. Uh, Put her on his lap, kissed her, asked for her telephone number, and held her when she tried to leave. The wrestler's attorney, Emil Baker Jr., said the girl did climb into his client's lap, and Ashford Smith did kiss her and put his arm around her. But Becker said the incident happened at a table where patrons can buy pictures of the wrestlers that his client was wearing the turtle costume and headgear when he kissed the girl. If that's what they consider child molesting, Christmas is going to be gritty, pretty grim around here because that's what Santa Claus does at the mall every day, Becker said. The defense attorney said his client wore his costume in court to demonstrate what a long and difficult process he must go through to remove it. He would have had to remove knee pads, padded hands, front and back shell, t-shirt and mask before he could kiss the girl, Becker said. According to the girl's testimony, Ashford Smith followed her up to the balcony within 70 seconds. Uh, Becker said after trial, the disrobing process in front of the jury took Ashford Smith about four and a half minutes, he said. It would be physically impossible to get the face mask off in 70 seconds, Becker said. After the trial, Clay said the strongest point of his case came when Ashford Smith showed up wearing his costume. I think, and I'm dead serious on this, that the guy came in here dressed in his turtle suit and tried to make a mockery of this court and the proceedings here, to me, that just destroyed all of his credibility. Sentencing will be at 1.30 p.m. October 23rd, with Judge Richard Young presiding. 
Becker said he's not sure at this point if his client will appeal. Ashford Smith returned to his home in Nashville after the trial Tuesday. So, wait, he was convicted on what and acquitted on what? So, so I guess the charge, uh, wait, child molesting, sexual battery, and confinement. So I guess it's the first one that he's convicted of and the second two that he's acquitted of. Okay. I feel like we're missing something, though. Feels like they didn't give enough of the facts that explain why he was convicted. Well, I mean, so read the charge he was convicted of again. It was child molestation, and then, okay, from the day before... Okay, so it was a one-day trial. Let's see if there's anything else. But what... I mean, so it's child, child molestation, but, again, what was... What did what, he actually accuse him of? What were the allegations of child molestation? Okay. Just holding and kissing? Because and, that, and that she was in his lap. That kind of child molestation is kind of, I mean, it's not good. Obviously, hell no, it's not good. But that seems like a that's a that's, when you hear child molestation, you're thinking of you know the worst, the absolute worst. Well, also, I'm trying to figure out how this ties into the other one where the so oh okay the. <sighs> Okay, I need to figure out the chronology on all this. Because he was previously charged with, with child molestation for, it says, allegedly having sex with a 14-year-old fan in Evansville in December at 1989 and ended in a mistrial and the charges were dismissed. Okay, so there's okay, there's that one. Not, now, now we're getting somewhere with that charge, if that's what it w- was, but, but it was dismissed. After a mistrial, but I'm not sure what the mistrial was over. Let's see as we go back more. And they said last year? So wait, when was... Uh, okay, so just, I didn't even click on it. This is just the thumbnail for... Yeah, so followed a balcony, allegedly, where asked her, placed her in his lap, although she tried to walk away. The wrestler kissed her twice on the cheek and asked for fun. So is it the sitting on his lap and there are specifics that were not hearing as far as why that would be molestation i don't know it's all weird it's very weird i feel like the coverage here is not good because it really doesn't give a good idea of why he would be convicted of that here i mean that and that can happen too you know the coverage could not be telling the the actual facts of what's going on right i mean i also think back to that original jamie dundee shoot interview where he explains his understanding of the charges being something like like having being something probably that was named something like sexual arousal of blah 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 which i don't think it was but like his understanding was like no you could not you cannot grope someone through the turtle suit or grope him i guess through the turtle suit because he had worn the turtle suit but that he also knew that chris was guilty of doing things with that girl so i I don't know. It seems like everyone in rest, everyone in the territory thought he was guilty of something. Well, Chris Champion was not a good dude. I mean, no. I mean, as far there, the story, I mean, there are a lot of stories of him as a professional and all and stuff in the wrestling. Yeah. But as far as outside the ring, yeah, he, <laughs> he was very questionable. In a lot no, of I things. mean, he was kind of questionable in the ring too, with how he just straight up kicked people in the face. Yeah, but I talked to a lot of people that worked with a guy, too, that talked about, you know, as far as, wor- you know, working on a show and whatever, yeah. you know, how he handled himself, that he was always good. Yeah. Okay, so mistrial, 
Uh, okay, so this is in May. Why did it say last year? Um, the jury trial had barely begun when Circuit Court Magistrate Robert S. Matthews Sr. Uh, ruled that a question from defense attorney, same one, Emil Becker Jr., about the girl's prior, prior sexual activity would prejudice the jury. Deputy Prosecutor Mike Clave moved for a mistrial, and Matthews granted it. Uh, Matthews told the jury, there has been, in the opinion of this court, an error of law that has occurred in this case, and there's no way of getting around. The trial rescheduled for June 17th. In the opening story, Wednesday, Becker told the jury the girl, now 15, and made the story up to impress her friends. What you're really going to hear is a vicious little woman, he said. So, okay, now let me go to the next day, because I'm curious why... In the next couple of days, because I'm curious why the charges end up being dropped. Because that sounds like... That just sounds like the um, the defense attorney just kind of fucking around in an obvious way. Right? Yeah. That doesn't sound like something that would lead to prosecutors to dropping the charges. Especially without a deal or anything. So, uh, okay, so what did they say? So this is... A couple days later, oh, judge delays his ruling, or is this the separate case? Uh, oh, no, it's put off a ruling on whether def the defense attorney should pay for the cost of seating a jury. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I don't understand, I don't understand any of this, especially with the, you know, the, the rep that all of this has, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying I believe he didn't do anything either. It's just this coverage is very not good. We, we don't know the full story. And we're not we saying that to defend Chris Champion. We're saying that the coverage is so bad story. that we clearly don't know the full story. <laughs> yes. No matter what, we just don't know the full story. So um, Let's see. I'm just checking real quick. Like May 14th. The, okay, the attorney got the bill for the mistrial. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What, the, what kind of nonsense is this? Really? Yeah. Like, they were kind of bullshit. Oh, the Evansville Press had coverage, too. Let me just see what this is in July. So this was Wrestler Phil still faces charges. The prosecutor... Okay, the prosecutor dismissed the December 89 thing after a review of the case file. Uh, and then the other... And then the prosecutor felt the case with the 11-year-old girl was the stronger of the two. And I'm just curious to see how they covered this when at first, like, what is their initial he has been arrested coverage? Yeah, there's just not enough details about any of this. Yeah, it's, yeah. All, va it's all very vague. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, honestly, what this feels like just from this coverage. And so this could be very wrong, though. It almost kind of feels like um, like the prosecutor knowing for sure for various other reasons that he's guilty of something and just having to make, try to make something stick. Yeah. But cause it seems like everyone agrees he did something. So I, this is very weird. I, I'm almost curious to see if the court still has anything or the police or anything, because this, this is strange that the new, like it's probably also shows how far things have come with coverage of this type of thing because you would not you would not see this variety of bad coverage today i don't think about this kind of topic yeah all right they ran a surprise angle september 14th in portageville missouri at a spot show they brought a beta camera that filmed it 
aired on TV the next morning, say it was filmed from a fan who had brought a home video camera into the building. Lawler was wrestling Doug Gilbert in the main event, something for Eddie, who missed the entire week selling his eye injury, with Greg Wayne as the referee. Fish is Fiki's husband, although they aren't acknowledging that, but they did acknowledge him as Kim Wayne's brother. Whenever Lawler had Doug pinned, Wayne refused to count. Finally, Eddie and Dirty White Boy interfered and tried to break Lawler's leg with the heels holding the dress room door shut. Finally, Brickhouse Brown, who's been getting a huge red face push in case any more racial noise comes up from Snowman, got wow. in, and White Boy hung him over the top rope. Eddie Marlin ran in and knocked down Greg Wayne, which caused Buddy Wayne, Greg's father and old-time wrestler, to attack Law Marlin. Because of this, Eddie was banned for television, but he showed up anyway, and Sam Bass proclaimed, uh, Sam Bass Lowe, proclaimed Eddie as a new king. Eddie and Lawler's interviews continue to be great in this feud. All right, so we're going to go to the clip, which shows all this happening. So let's uh, go to the clip from TV. You know, there have been some things going on around the USWA all over the territory in recent weeks involving uh, hot stuff Eddie Gilbert and this man coming right here. The one and only King Jerry Lawler. Boy, look at the greeting from the fans as the King heads around this way. Want to get him uh, over here to talk just a bit about the situation with Eddie Gilbert. We got some videotape we want to show you, too, about some of the action. He'll have some things to say about that. We'll both talk about some action that happened. We've even got some kind of fan video to show you. Jerry, just talking a little bit about the situation that's been going on with Gilbert the last few weeks. Well, I want to tell you, it is really, it is really starting to get out of hand now. I don't know if you could, uh, you know, I try, sometimes try to hide it as best I can, but I don't know how much more my legs are going to be able to take of this situation. Now, you know, everybody saw uh, what happened a couple of weeks ago with the, with the, with the car in the parking lot. Yeah. Uh, now, I thought maybe that that would be the, the end of this guy's devious stunts, but it seems that there is, there is no end to what uh, Eddie Gilbert will try to pull. Now, last week we had a match uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, where, uh, and, and this was his idea. He wanted to have this match where uh, an, an ambulance was going to be brought to ringside and somebody was going to have to go. I mean, the match was going to continue until somebody had to be put in the ambulance. It's the only way you're going to have to leave the ring. Now, uh, we're going to show just a little bit of the video of what happened in this, but I want everybody to realize just what Eddie Gilbert had in mind in this match. I mean, he, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he tries to run, he runs over me in a car, and this week he goes out in this, in this match with fully, with the full intentions of trying to put something in my eyes that was going to either, either uh, permanently blind somebody or do some serious damage to their vision, to their vision. Fortunately for me, that uh, it, it backfired on him, but just watch this piece of video, and then I want to tell you what he pulled after this. It's All right. ridiculous. Let's watch this tape from... Uh... Lawler fires Gilbert right over the railing into the table. Lawler, picking Gilbert back up, runs his head right into that metal ring pole. Lawler setting him up for a DDT on a chair. Lawler wants to end this match early. Nails him with it. Picks him up. Gotta go for it. It just runs its head right down into the mat and hard. Hell is the commentary team of David Wolf. Any wrestling way beyond winning any match. They're into hurting people. Oh, come on, man. And Gilbert nails Lawler with one of Sam Bass's boots. 
Gilbert. Wanting the ambulance. Caught in for Lawler. As Gilbert picks Lawler up. Setting him up for the pile driver. Ramps his head down into the mat. Gilbert fires a vicious left. Gilbert is boxing with Lawler. Firing in with left and right. Lawler pulls the strat down. Saying, come on, Gilbert, take your best shot. And here's mine. But Gilbert just runs Lawler right into Calhoun. Lawler's head just nailed Calhoun, both of them down. Sam Lowe crawling up in here. Pulling something out of his pocket, I can't tell what. Lawler being held up by Gilbert now. Sam Lowe just squirts. Hutched up Eddie Gilbert in the eyes. now. Sam Lowe going to go out with him. Well, there they go, but as the, ring, as the announcer said, I, I think it's going way beyond a wrestling match now. Well, without a doubt. You know, I also want to thank the people from Medic Ambulance for supplying him uh, with that uh, courteous ride there. Uh, but then, you know, as you said, things just things just keep on happening. It's like this guy is obsessed. I, I mentioned this once before. Like sometimes there are obsessed fans uh, who, you know, you've seen some of the things that they've done out in Hollywood where these people are so obsessed that they want to try to take the life of the person that they that they really are a fan of. Well, it's like Eddie Gilbert has followed my career and he seems like he's trying to pattern himself after me. But also, it's like he seems bent on destroying or getting me out of the way. I mean, here he comes with this jerk, Sam Lowe, and he's trying to take the name of my former manager, Sam Bass, and, and, and say that now that that's his manager, Sam Bass, and things like that. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with the guy. After, after what took place in, in uh, Memphis, I was supposed to wrestle him on the, on the following Tuesday in, in Trenton, Tennessee. I go to Trenton, Tennessee. Uh, they bring out Eddie Gilbert. He has, uh, he has patches over his eyes, the sunglasses on. They said he can't wrestle. He was, his vision is, uh, you know, they said he's blinded from the stuff that he tried to pour in my eyes. So he wasn't able to wrestle. So then last night I go to a Missouri, a city up in Missouri, and I'm supposed to wrestle, uh, Eddie Gilbert again there in the, in the small town of Missouri. And the same situation. Eddie Gilbert comes out to the ring. He's got the patches on his eyes. He's got the sunglasses on. They said he's unable to wrestle, so they substitute his brother, Doug. Now, I went in there to wrestle uh, Doug Gilbert, and um, because we got another little... I wanted to show everybody here what took place. This was just happened last night in, uh, I think it was called Portageville, Missouri. Now, now another unusual situation, because this thing really gets wild and hairy at the end. Uh, Jerry Calhoun was refereeing the match, but uh, and the, or was supposed to referee the match. The match before that, uh, he was kind of knocked out of commission there. And Greg Wayne, Ken Wayne's brother, Buddy Wayne's son, right. who has refereed before, he comes in and he's refereeing this match. And there's something a little shaky between he and Eddie Gilbert there at the end because I had Doug Gilbert pinned and this jerk wouldn't count. 
And so uh, the, everything got out of hand. We'll, we'll just go ahead and roll this film, and we'll explain it as we go. Yeah, along. we'll talk about it as we go along. Let's take a look at it. I might say too that as now, this a was res- last night in Missouri. Watch this, Portageville, Missouri. Yeah. All right, uh, uh, there you Sam are. Sam Bass or Sam Lowe had given Doug Gilbert a chain at this point, and um, if we can have, do we have any sound? Is there any sound like this? There's Pause. Some sound on the video, the crowd noise or whatever. Supposed to be fan shot, huh? Boy, that fan was right there ringside uh, on the ring apron, basically, who's filming this, wasn't they? <laughs> well, no guardrails. <laughs> Jesus. All right, continue. What a well-lit building, too, by the way. But anyway, as you can see, yeah, uh, uh, I had I had him going my way with the chain at this point. Now, look, there's Greg Wayne. I got the guy covered, and he won't count. Got at least a three count, maybe an eight there. So now, as you can see, here comes Eddie Gilbert. He's taking the patches off his eyes. Oh. He's taking off the sunglasses. He comes in the ring with a chair, and, uh, and there's the Sam Lowe or Sam Bass, whatever they want to call it. And this is where these guys, uh, and it's, it's obvious, he said it right here, he said, I'm going to re-break his leg. So, I mean, you know, the guys now, he's trying to, you know, he's tr- he knows I've had a leg broken before. He knows it was hurt again with the car. So now he's going to, going to work on my leg, and you're going to see the number that he does here with the, uh, with the chair in just a minute. But the interesting situation about this, there were a couple of guys back in the dressing room that could have helped me, but Brian Lee and Don Harris and downtown Bruno came out of the other dressing room and they're blocking the they're blocking the doorway over here so that these guys can't get out to come and help me well then uh danny davis was back there who could have helped me uh, but then they let brickhouse brown through now brickhouse was able to come in and help me for a second but as you can see they had a reason for the, uh, you know they had a reason for letting him through because now dirty white boy comes out and he's got like a hangman's noose he's got this rope tied into a hangman's noose and 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 uh there's you can see he puts it around Brickhouse's neck and throws him over the top rope and just literally tries to hang the guy out there you know so uh, you know I mean it, it just got worse you know they ripped the tights they're banging on my leg uh, with the Sam Low holding yeah, and that's that's Eddie Gilbert with a uh, with a chair there yeah and watch you know here's this little jerk uh, Greg Wayne just standing over in the corner there just watching uh, see look at this yeah you're he's right he just backed out of it right. as a spectator uh and, 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 you know, Eddie Marlin was there. Jerry Calhoun, I think, comes out here and ju- comes out here in just a minute. Yeah, okay. Jerry Calhoun comes out and stops, tries to stop. Now, watch, watch, look at this punk, Greg Wayne. Pulls he's Calhoun out of the way. He's Calhoun around. I mean, you know, I, this, I, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the, de- look, there's, now this, this jerk, Greg Wayne, is hitting on a Calhoun. You're going to see Eddie Marlin is going to try to come in here and get this thing stopped in a minute. And, and it, it, I mean, it was the wildest situation, the craziest thing I've ever been involved in. Because then not only does, uh, once Eddie Marlin comes in uh, to stop this Greg Wayne, his father, Greg Wayne's father, Buddy Wayne, is there. And then he's going to come in and jump on it on, on Eddie Marlin. It was, it was the craziest thing. And all I can tell you is that the more, you know, the more I think about it last night, this had to be the whole thing Eddie Gilbert had to get with every one of these guys and have this thing set up from the minute we got there. I mean, you know, he said he had to tell him, look, we're going to jump this guy as soon as as soon as soon we get him in the position we want him in. I'm going to go out there with my patches. I mean, hey, look at this buddy Wayne comes yeah. in punching Eddie Marlin because he said, don't put your hands on my son, right? So, uh, I mean, you know, it was just, it was a real, real bad situation. It was. As, as is the whole thing with Eddie Gilbert. And, and uh, what finally resulted from this, one good thing that resulted from this was Eddie Marlin told Eddie Gilbert last night 
that he was not allowed in the studio today. So exactly right. He's not allowed out here. Exactly. So, uh, and, and hopefully that'll continue. And, you know, if he wants to have his piece, he'll have to send in an interview or whatever. And that's exactly what he deserves to have happen to him. Well, it is because he interferes every time he's around, and, and not only interferes, but as you say, he tries to hurt you. Well, all I all I can say is, I, I mean, you know, that's 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 as you can see. Uh, you know, they left Eddie Marlin, Jerry Calhoun, myself, and Brickhouse Brown all basically laying in the ring. It's one of their, you know, another one of their plots. Well, let me just tell you something, Eddie Gilbert. I'll make this short and sweet. I got friends, too. I see that you had, you got back in the dress room and you got all your cronies together and you masterminded a little plot and it worked pretty well. You won the battle, but as I've been said a lot of times before, you haven't won the war because I'm still able to walk out here and I'm going to be able to walk into that ring with you this week. And I'm telling you this right now, Eddie Gilbert. I'm going at you this week with one intention in mind, the same thing that you've been trying to do to me, and that's cripple somebody and put them out of wrestling for good where I can get you out of my hair and I don't have to worry about you anymore because I have had it up to here with you, Eddie Gilbert, and your whole stinking family. You know, I think it was a deal somewhere down the line where Eddie Gilbert had aided him because his father, Tommy, never quite lived up to the potential that he thought he had. And now maybe, Eddie Gilbert, you're not able, you and your little punk brother aren't quite able to live up to the potential that you think you have. Well, I don't care if you th what kind of potential you think you have. You're not going to take it out on me, the fact that you've got shortcomings. What's going to happen from now on is, punk, every time I get within arm's reach of you, I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to hurt you bad, and I'm going to start on it this week, and that's the promise. There's a man who can back up what he says no matter where he goes and uh, who he's going against. So look out, Eddie Gilbert, wherever you are, for the king. USWA ring girls uh, headed this way. It's stepping into the ring right now, Chris Frazier, as we are just about set to go with a one oh. ten minute time limit match. This sure is going to be kill. a single match. Got, uh, got a new wrestler called the Night Stalker coming in right now. Oh, so much even better. Him. But uh, we'll find out here from the USWA ring girls <laughs> once again. And they are escorting the Night Stalker. And there he is under the well, mask. That's not as he, uh, no, who is the that? Ring. Well, he's kind of strutting a little bit as he uh, looks over Chris Frazier, who's waiting for him there. One fall, 10-minute time limit. Oh. Jerry Calhoun, the referee, says, let's get it going. And we do just that. That is 1990 WMC, so who knows? The Night Stalker taking control early, grabbing Chris Frey off, oh, kind of a bulldog. Oh, All right, oh, here's, oh, here we go, keep it going. You, you are, yeah, oh, is you, this what the next clip was going to be anyway? Don't even worry about the You're not supposed to be here. No, it's not the next clip. You're not even, no, we're not going to do an interview. we got a match going on. You're not supposed to be here. Eddie Marlin says you are not supposed to be here. Have you got a short memory? You remember what happened in Portageville? Sam, I don't care. He's not... I can't talk to you because there's a match going on. I'm telling you, Eddie Marlin says we're not talking Eddie to you today. Sam, come on, Eddie, get out of here. He's not even supposed to be in the building here. That's not the king. That's not the king. Chris Frazier to that DDT. I saw the video and for that reason, he is not even supposed to be in the building any moment. He is up there and he's just thrown Chris Frazier and the Night Stalker out of the ring. We have a match going on and he, don't call him King. I don't want to do the interview, but I don't guess I've got uh, much of a choice, as a matter of fact. You are not even supposed to be in the building, but since you're here, say your piece and then get out. No, I'll talk as long as I want to about anything I want to and just so happens. Jerry Lawler, you can come out here and say it. Everybody can say it's gone beyond wrestling. Well, it sure has. You better remember this, people. You better remember Dave Brown. There's been a lot of men that all throughout 
the Tommy Riches, the Ricky Mortons, the Robert Gibsons, all those people that came through here. They said they were the new king. They said they were going to take your spot. That they were going to take your position. Well, that position today belongs to me. Boy, listen to me and listen good. I hate your stinking gut. I'm not obsessed being you. I'm obsessed being the king. And the king is hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. I am the new era. I am the new boss of wrestling. I am what makes this era go round and round. So Wayne, you need me. I'll be there. Thank you, Greg. Dave, one last note. Like I said, we've got a lot of people, Jerry Long. This is hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert talking. My dream, my goal. I know what my life was meant to be. I know what my destiny is. It's to walk out in every arena in this area with a crown on my head, a belt around my waist, and my manager sound bass, and my family being so proud of me. Lawler, you're going out, and I'm taking you out myself. Yeah, I guess we heard the whole thing. Uh, you're not even supposed to be here. Get out of here. And we'll see what happens when the week's over. There they go. Eddie Gilbert, and that's not Sam Bass. That's Sam Lowe. We'll be back here in a moment. Stay with us. Seriously, does Eddie Gilbert own only one shirt? <laughs> He loves that shirt. <laughs> it's, it's the pink and blue striped one, by the way. Yeah, he loves you, that shirt. You, you all know the one. Um, I really like how, I guess it's around this time when it starts, they started doing these occasional uh, spacho angles because spachos are becoming more important to the territory as business is changing. So 
to get business up on spot shows, you need to make things happen on spot shows. Yeah. Simple pro wrestling. Yeah. All right. Now, Nightmare Danny Davis. Speaking of Kim Wayne, he came back, debuted as a baby face. He was working under a hood as a Galaxian for quite a while here. And Eddie comes back out and asks him to join up with their family, but uh, Danny said he's got other plans. So let's go to that clip, shall we? Oh, real quick, I was about to say this and then I forgot. Um, I always found it strange that Washington Buddy Wayne got the name because people thought he looked like the Tennessee Waynes, the Peels, because I never saw the resemblance. He looks more like Greg than he did uh, Ken or Buddy. Yeah. So it's, it must have been people that knew the rest of the family that gave him the name, right? Because I never saw the resemblance to the others, did you? No. And Aubrey looks kind of like that, too. He looks more like Greg than he looks like Buddy or Ken. So, anyway. Yeah. Keith Eric, as we said, is a tough opponent. And Danny, congratulations. Good to have you back. Thank you very much. You know, Dave, it's been a long time since Nightmare Danny Davis has been in the USWA. And since I've been gone... I've had a lot of fans in this area write my fan club want to know what I've been doing. Well, for the past five years, I've been in the southeastern part of the United States. I've traveled overseas, Japan, the West Indies, and I've made a name for myself. I got my start right here, and I owe it all to the fans. Because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be who I am or where I am today. So thank you very much. You know, I got a call from a friend of mine, Jerry Lawler. I heard some disturbing news. He called me and said that some guy up here ran him down in a car. Yeah, indeed. Oh, well, let me tell you something. Jerry, you've got a lot of friends behind you that are watching your back. You can add one more to the list because I'm here, and any time you need me, I don't care who it's against, I'll be there for you because I used to manage you. I know how you think. I know how you are. I consider you a personal friend. At any time, anybody gets run over, that's not, that's not my style. Well, it is. Look, look. Coming right here, Eddie Gilbert. Eddie? Hi, Eddie. How you doing? Hi there. How you doing, Eddie? It's all right, guys. It's really it's all right. It's all right. See, I don't know if uh, we forgot to tell you anything, but Jerry Lawler failed to mention there's a new man on the block now here. If you're going to watch anybody's back, Danny, it ought to be mine. See, I want to tell you something. i got to say you are one of the greatest wrestlers I've ever seen. You and myself and Ken Wayne, as a matter of fact, about five years ago, used to ride up and down the road together. We were best of friends. I always thought your wrestling then was great. You knew how to win matches. You won at any cost. That's what I admire about you, your treacherous old past. That's the Danny Davis I know. That's the Danny Davis I want to know again, Danny. And I think what you should do, because they've got you, look, Look what they got you doing. They got you as a special referee in a tag title match. Like, you're refereeing against good guys like Don Harris and Brian Lee and Bruno. I think what you ought to do is forget all those guys and come on back with Eddie and let's make those trips again. And you can even be a part of my group with Sound Bass and my brother. And we can go again. I think you're one of the best. And I think you can do me a lot of good. You're a great asset. Well, I appreciate your comments. I'm glad you think high of me. Yeah. But you know... Last night was my first night in the USWA. I like I, seeing you there, too. And I was Good in match. a... match. You won. Yeah, I did win, but I was in the Missouri town, Portersville, Missouri, and uh, something happened. I came out to help Jerry Lawler, 
and uh, downtown Bruno's team, the Dream Team, kind of detained me. And if I'm not mistaken, you were on the other side over there. Now, if I had come out to the ring, you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have thought I was such a nice guy. Well, let me tell you something. Like I told Jerry Lawler, I'm here for one reason. I'm here to watch Jerry Lawler's back because as far as I'm concerned, Jerry Lawler is still the man and he will always be the man, not you, Eddie Gilbert. Honey, big words from a guy that just got back here. We'll see how long he's here. I will see about that indeed. Danny Davis refusing Eddie Gilbert. We'll be back with more USWA action. It's funny, real quick, before uh, I'll talk about this whole thing. I was watching a 1977 Canadian, Canadian Football League game the other day. Yes, I know. And one of the bumper songs they'd use going to the break was that. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. The same the section time. of the song and everything? Um, No, part of the song. Okay. It's but I was like, holy song, shit. Right? Huh? It's a disco song, right? Or, or am I thinking? Yeah, yes. I, I mean, it was using 1977 Canadian Football League games, but that that, that popped me when I was watching it. Um, this is why Memphis is so fucking awesome because you got these guys like Danny Davis, Ken Wayne, Eddie Gilbert. These guys that they're they're they've been in the territory on and off forever. They have their families in the territory. You can always do your callbacks. These all these guys started around the same time together, and Danny Davis, at one point in time, was Jerry Lawler's manager in 1982 during the Andy Kaufman feud. He was Jerry Lawler's manager. Yes, yes. So you have all this stuff that you can play off of with these people, and um, yeah, Memphis. That's why Memphis is so fucking awesome. One of the reasons why is you have all this stuff you you have in your back pocket that you can use, and also. And all- I don't know why I'm hearing myself all of a sudden. Now it seems fine. I don't know if that was Skype or your head. You're not echoing on me, so... I was echoing on my end for okay. a second. Now it's fine. Um, trying to think. Let's just keep going, I guess. Um, I love... You know, it's a Memphis thing, but it's also an Eddie thing. Just they're three-dimensional characters. He's not this conniving... Like, super conniving, evil mustache twirler when he's going up to Danny. You know... He's he's talking to his old friend and trying hey. to, get him to join up with him. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, interesting stuff there. All right, they they used a tag team on TV called the Scorpions as jobbers as an inside rib sting. Well, and the Black Scorpion. Yeah, and during a tag match with uh, Brian Lee and Don Harris, Jeff Jarrett and Jeff Gaylord came in and filled the ring with flour. And threw the flower all over the heels. Yes. Downtown Bruno especially got it. So there you go. All right. Uh, another small crowd on September 17th in Memphis saw Joey Maggs beat Sam Bass Lowe by DQ and Doug Gilbert and Fear. Rex King beat the New York Brawler, Lou Fabiano. Calvonga uh, beat the Galaxian, Danny Davis. Dirty White Girl beat Vicious Vicky in a loser must eat dog food match due to outside friends with Dirty White Boy. However, Bill Dundee came in, and somehow Vicky didn't have to eat the dog food. Oh, yeah, it's got to love the screwing over the steps. Uh, Jeff Jarrett and Jeff Gaylord Bix, also known as... The Dream Team. Or... The Super Team. Or... Jeff and Jeff. Or... 
just the, the Jeffs. Yeah. Uh, regained the SWA tag t- titles, beating Br- Brian Lee and Don Harris. Uh, Brickhouse and Bill Dundee beat uh, Doug Gilbert and Dirty White Boy and Lawler over Eddie. But the main event was a blindfold battle royal won by Eddie. As stipulated, Eddie got the pick from two covered up cars. Kind of like, let's make a deal. Door number one, door number two, etc. And Eddie picked the wrong one and got a lemon. He wound up beating on the car after the match. Amazing. <laughs> what? Only in Memphis, folks. Only in Memphis. <laughs> you think Memphis, that if let's make a deal or wrestling's let's make a deal? You think if Continental was, was still around, that 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 idea would have been stolen and ran in Continental? <laughs> it seems like something that would something that would have happened. All right. So the day later in Louisville, of course, they're a week behind. Saw Mazda Ritz King, Carbon over Galaxy, Andy Marlon over Sam Bass by forfeit with Sab, though showed. Dundee over Dirty White Boy in a first blood match. Brickhouse over Doug Gilbert by DQ when Dirty White Boy interfered. Vicky over White Girl by DQ when Dirty White Boy interfered. Frank Merle over Downtown Bruno. Brian Lee and Don Harris regained the tag titles, beating Jeff and Jeff when Lee threw powder in Jarrett's eyes. And Lawler beat Gilbert by DQ when Doug interfered. Now, here's the situation with the tag titles. Basically, this group does live TV in Memphis on Saturdays. Then sends the tape for airing in other markets, Louisville, Nashville, Evansville, one week later. The idea that the card held on Monday in Memphis will generally be held eight days later in Louisville, six days later in Nashville, and nine days later in Evansville. Although for various reasons, this isn't the case, and the results are repeated. Thus, in some cases, such as this tag title change, they're on last week's angles in Louisville and Evansville, where Lee and Harris win the belts. So next week, in those same cities, Jarrett and Gaylord will regain the belts. So Jerry and Gaylord are actually the champions, even though Lee and Harris won the belts after they regained the belts. Third base. But that's how it is. I mean, yes. the, e- the easiest way to explain it was Louisville and Evansville and Nashville were a week behind. Yes. So if, with title changes, they would happen in Memphis, and then a week later, the title change would happen in the other markets. Exactly. That's the easy way to explain all of it. Yes. So there you go. The Jeffs. All At right. least the super team is the <laughs> Yes, Jeff and Jeff. All right, Matt Watch. How's this for competition? Effective starting September 15th in Memphis. The 11 a.m. hour, the live SWA show on WMC, faced the head-on challenge of NWA Pro on WPTY, the Fox affiliate, and WF Superstars on the number two indie. Isn't that all fucking counterproductive? <laughs> they have I mean, three wrestlers at the same 19, well, okay. time. You're going against the famously high rated and still highly rated in 1990 WMC wrestling show? Yeah. I mean, what the hell? What the hell? <laughs> some programming executives, huh? Yeah, I'm trying to find. I know I tweeted it at some point. The Torch had in 1990, there was some. Maybe they had a quarterly average or something. They had a they had a rating and share for the thing. Uh, the thing for the for the WMC show, but I can't find it right now. All right, well let's move on then. Any Sharkies PWA drew a few thousand fans to an outdoor show, a free show for the homeless on September fifteenth in Minneapolis. Does that mean the homeless was there, or was this show for the benefit? in some way like canned food i don't know yeah was this a benefit or was it just for the homeless fans to watch i don't know 
Dave didn't explain. Well, top match of the show saw Larry Cabaret and Derek Dukes. Now, that's a dream team. Beat Randy Gusto and Tony DiNucci. Oh. oh. Ricky Rice went to a double DQ with Jerry Lynn. Interesting match. The Lightning Kid, Waltman, teamed with Johnny Love and Matt Derringer to beat Rhett Royal. You sure he's not in NXT? Red Tyler. Ass. And, and Tommy Ferreira. And Charlie Norris went to a draw with Tommy Jammer. But Rhett Royal does have the Von Wagner ring to it, yes. <laughs> And as we're recording this, as NXT is going on, uh, again, like I said on Twitter, Von Wagner does not look like the son of Wayne the Train Bloom. He looks like the son of Richard Keel, Jaws from uh, Moonraker. He or... looks like Wayne Bloom. What are you Bullshit! No, he doesn't. He does Especially not like Wayne the way he looks now that he's been on the Performance Center training program and he has his the hair, the hair and everything. Yeah, but his face does not. He looks like Richard Keel, Jaws. He does not look like Richard Keel. He does. Happy Gilmore's Richard Keel. He kind of looks like Brodus Clay somewhat, too, like facially, the the, the, uh, the jawline and nose, the well, definition. At the rate they're going, if maybe, maybe they'll think he's him and they'll never fire him. <laughs> NWA World Television Champion Brodus Clay. Uh, uh, NWA World Television Champion managed by Austin Idol Brodus Clay. Yep. What a bunch of nonsense. Hey, that belt's on Fox News every day, so they're getting the free publicity on the n- number one cable network. <laughs> sure, sure. All right, Portland. Sports Arena on September 15th. We have Scott Norton over Moondog Moretti. Say his full name, Chris. Scott Flash Norton. No, Scott Flapjack Norton. It's yeah, Flapjack. Yeah, you're right. Brad Anderson. Zampanzer over Bart Sawyer. That's a match. Steve Dahl over Doug Masters. Whoa. John Rambo over the Equalizer. Dave Sullivan by his qualification. Larry Oliver and Rip Oliver, father and son. Rip the father, Larry the son, over the Latin Connection. Alberto Madrill and Ricky Santana. Also father and son. <laughs> and a Lumberjack match, Scotty the Body over the Grappler. That's definitely a 1990 Portland show. Yeah, it is. Not, not any coverage of any angles during our week. Sur- now, the show's surrounding it had coverage, but all we have here is just results. So yes. they- also, something this reminds me of, I had completely forgotten until it came up with some of his GCW bookings that Buddy Wayne, this Buddy Wayne, you know, Northwest Buddy Wayne, was married to uh, Ed Moretti's sister. So that Nick Wayne is a third generation wrestler. That's the, only, the news you only get on between the sheets. <laughs> well, it was that they were calling him a third generation wrestler and like talking about his father and grandfather. And first I'm thinking, wait, they, they don't have the Waynes confused, do they? And then I realized, no, it's that his grandfather is Ed Moretti. How about that? All right, let's close out with the National Wrestling Alliance. Well, World Championship Wrestling featuring the stars of the National Wrestling Alliance. Whatever. All right, so Matt Watts was the impetus for this story. And then I went and snooped around to other things, and I found some more information from the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and... uh, one other uh, newspaper I can't remember on top of my head. But this is a, a big story in the power structure at TBS, mm-hmm. which really doesn't have any effect on wrestling, but it's something that 
We talk so much about the power structure of TBS over the years, especially you know when it comes to the Patreon show, uh, the 2001 WCW, and everything going on there. So this is an interesting story, and I feel like I put it in here. So the first graph here is Matt Watch, and then the rest will be switching between the various newspapers? Uh, the, the Matt Watch is about basically the first sentence. Oh, and then the rest is LA Times, and then we kind of switch back and forth? Yeah. Okay. All right, so Jerry Hogan. That's G-E-R-O-Y, who was the top-ranking executive at TBS below Ted Turner, resigned on September 17th. Hogan resigned to become a vice chairman at Whittle Communications. Hogan was the president of Turner Entertainment Network, and his duties were divided up between Terrence McGuirk and Scott Sassa. McGuirk remained president of TBS Sports, president of Network and Scene and International Sales, and director of operations for the Atlanta Braves and Atlanta Hawks, but he will also become the executive vice president of TBS Incorporated, heading the advertising sales division, and in charge of corporate research, public relations, marketing, and advertising. Sasa, formerly executive vice president of network television, was named the new president of the Turner Entertainment Network. By temperament, I'm more of a builder than a manager, Hogan told the Los Angeles Times about his reasons for going to Whittle, and lately, I've spent more time managing our mature businesses that we have here, and less time on startups and development. He said he was also attracted to Whittle's vision of where he sees media going in the next 10 years. The private company, with revenue topping $230 million as of the fiscal year ending June 30th, is trying to broaden the use of private media, which targets advertising to a narrow audience. Hogan, who maintained there was no blow-up with management, said Turner was pretty disappointed bad about his leaving. Hogan made $500,000 last year, plus another $113,000 bonus, while 175000 to 200000 shares of Turner stock are valued at $2.2 million to $2.6 million. Hogan would not comment about his new salary, other than to note, I've rarely gone down. Like other executives at Turner, Hogan did not have a contract. BC currently is negotiating a multi-year deal with Whittle. Hogan was among four executives who were lured away largely by much higher salaries. But at least two said Turner Broadcasting's 51-year-old chairman, Ted Turner, has refused to hand down much real power. It's like the slaves on the plantation. They get more and more authority, but they're still the slaves, said a board member who asked not to be identified. At the same time, the two executives said, Mr. Turner can be found at companies like Atlanta headquarters much less. And as a result, the old excitement and vision is gone. When Ted was around, everyone's juices flowed, the former executive said, but it's a different place when he's not there as much. Mr. Hogan joined Whittle Communications as vice chairman, reportedly increasing his compensation to well over a million dollars for the $700,000 a year under Turner. Farrell Reynolds, the former head of advertising sales for Turner, has also joined Whittle as head of Channel One, Whittle's advertiser-supported television channel for schools. God knows I used to watch Channel One every day. Robert Wessler, Turner's former executive vice president, and Arthur Sando, former head of marketing communications, joined Communications Satellite Corporation, reportedly also for higher salaries. Even the characteristically ebullient Mr. Turner bristles at Whittle's success in hiring Mr. Hogan. Christopher Whittle, the chairman of Whittle, and Mr. Turner have been rivals since Turner Broadcast began its own television serving for, for classrooms, CNN Newsroom. Mr. Turner said yesterday he thought Mr. Whittle was hiring away his people, partly vindictively, because we undercut his price on the educational programs for schools. 
I think he's mad at us, Mr. Turner said. Mr. Whittle said he hired the men because of their records at Turner Broadcasting. For the first half of this year, Turner Broadcasting lost $4 million, in contrast net income of $5.1 million a year earlier. The loss was attributable to a $31 million charge to offset anticipated additional losses on the 1990 Goodwill Games. Six-month revenues rose to $613.6 million, up from $496.5 million a year earlier. Last year was the first in which the company's annual revenues exceeded $1 billion. In approaching its problems, Turner Broadcasting has a different personality from its swashbuckling reputation of the 80s. When the company started CNN, bought MGM Entertainment, and made a takeover bid for CBS. Now it's focusing on extending its existing products. Among its plans, new regional networks to offer sports programming and introducing Turner Network Television in South America. Sasa agrees the culture is different. We were like pirates before, he said. We used to concentrate on buying CBS or movie studio. We are still kind of like pirates, but we have all these responsibilities. We don't do the crazy things we used to do. We don't have the capital and other debt funds available. McGuirt defines Turner's strategy as somewhat opportunistic. We look for logical ways to take advantage of opportunities. And then when the business presents itself, go for it, he said. So that's an interesting look at what's going on at Turner Broadcasting at this time here in 1990. And... uh yeah, losing that, that's a lot of money they had lost in the in the first half of 1990, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, I'm looking at, to see how the trades covered this. I just found something interesting in broadcasting, which would become broadcasting and cable a few years later. Um, the move leaves Turner Cable Sports President Terry McGurk as the only senior-level executive from a group that once included Robert Wessler, now President and Chief Executive Officer of ComSat Video Enterprises, Bill Bevins, Turner's former Chief Financial Officer, and Farrell Reynolds, Turner's top advertising executive in New York, who reported directly to Turner, and who was also left to join Little. Quote, under Ted, you learn a lot that makes you a, of, excuse me, that makes you very valuable outside, said Wessler. But, quote, Ted is not willing to match those outside opportunities, end quote. Mary Kukowski, an analyst with Bear Stearns, cited Hogan's success with TNT, where they mentioned earlier in the article that he brought it from debut to 50 million households in two years, um, and has said his departure was, quote, a real loss for the company. Um, and they set up a search committee to find a successor and or divide up his duties. The committee, McGurk, Turner, Bill Shaw, vice president of personnel, and Jack Petrick, vice president syndication, is the same one that tapped former LA Times chairman Tom Johnson for the presidency of CNN, except that Hogan was in Petrick's slot. So that's another thing people forget that we need to stress more. Petrick and Bill Shaw had other duties all the time. Well, let me let me circle back. Four years. Okay. October 6, 1986. Where are you pulling this from? K- UPI. Cable television magnate Ted Turner has turned over daily operations of Turner Broadcasting System to a five-member executive committee who will continue to run the show, as was said Monday. Turner named five vice presidents to executive committee in formalization of the company's operations, says Arthur Sando, vice president of corporate communications. The executive committee has been operating for a month, he said. It's not reorganization. It's basically formalizing what has been an informal structure. For the global expansion of CBN, CNN and the acquisition of the MGM on the West Coast, 
Ted's travel schedule has been rather hectic. With the workload increasing, Ted thought he wanted to put a structure in place that would help day-to-day operations of the company, Sando said. He wanted fewer people reporting to him, and he wanted the day-to-day operations taken off his back. The five vice presidents named to the executive committee were Robert Wessler, executive vice president, PBS. Jack Petrick, vice president, TV programming. Jerry Hogan, vice president, broadcasting sales. Terrence McGuark, vice president, social projects. Bill Bevins, Vice President of Finance, they will retain their titles. The Executive Committee's decisions are still subject to terms of approval, said Sando. Ted ultimately still runs the show. He said he's involved in decision-making and retains the title of President and Chairman of the Board at TBS. The move does not affect the operations of CNN, said the company official. Bert Reinhardt, President of CNN, will continue to report directly to Turner, said Sando. So, I mean... I mean, this, is a, this power structure has been there for years, and... It's gone kablooey in, with one company in particular headhunting from them. Yes. That's interesting. Um, also, Robert Whistler, a few months ago when we were talking about that whole Comsat WCW story, he was the one at the center of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also from the broadcasting article, Hogan said he was first approached by Whittle four months ago. While the salary offer, higher than the $500,000 he made at Turner last year, according to proxy statements... First got Hogan's attention, he said his decision to move came after reevaluating his future returner. Quote, I had done a lot of things here more than once, he said. The new challenges, uh, he said, and the new challenges Whittle offered, the syntax is weird on this, really what it came, quote, really what it came down to, the next spot in the company is Ted's job, and he's not going anywhere, and he shouldn't, said Hogan. My personality is much better suited to building things than it is operating things. Yeah. So... Yeah, interesting look at what's going on in the world of Turner Broadcasting, which, you know, you, WCW, you think about it. What's one, I mean, what's one reason why WF was able to maintain a steady basis? Because Vincent Mann was always in charge. You know, Titan Sports pretty much stayed on the level and everything. And, and, and you had like level heads the power of turner is changing all the time it seems like there's different people in charge there's this that and the other going on it's, it seems like a total clusterfuck you know it's amazing that wcb lasts as long as it did yeah and also just i'm not going to read it but ad week had profiled hogan just a few months earlier in april and i gotta read this before we move on because this is so on-brand for on-brand between the sheets. So we go to the October 1st issue of Multi-Channel News with a story by Marianne Peskowski, and it's not long. But the headline is something I'm sure you'll love. Reading between the lines of Turner Broadcasting. Industry gossips have plenty of juicy theories these days, which have not appeared in any published reports, as to why Jerry Hogan, president of Turner Entertainment Networks and a 19-year veteran of Turner Broadcasting System, Inc., just jumped ship. The official TBS company line, of course, is that Hogan got an offer from Whittle Communications that was just too good to refuse, that after nearly two decades sent with Turner, he was ripe for a new challenge. That line would sound perfectly rational to most ears, but what made the Hogan headline such a shocker in the cable industry was that he was the fourth key executive in the course of a year to bail out of Turner's Atlanta-based empire, signaling that perhaps all is not well in paradise. For some reason, most cable executives are simply not buying into the TBS party line about challenge and change and are tossing out more subterranean theories of their own regarding Hogan's job switch. 
the most Machiavellian theory on Hogan's departure circulated among industry executives who converged on Manhattan last week to attend the National Academy of Cable Programming Luncheon and the Walter, Kath, uh, Walter Kate's Foundation uh, Awards Dinner. More than the usual, quote-unquote, several industry sources were speculating that Time Warner, which has a 50% stake in Will Communications, deliberately spirited away Hogan for one reason only, to further weaken the basic core of TBS. Those sources insist that by emptying out Turner's chief executive wing, the giant Time Warner media conglomerate could more easily get control of what it ultimately wants, cable network news. As far-fetched as that theory may sound, industry executives point out that just a year ago, Whittle hired away Farrell Reynolds, who handled ad sales for Turner. Those same sources maintain that Hogan and Reynolds are being groomed by Time Warner for a much larger mission than their current roles at Whittle Communications would suggest. Yet another theory that industry gossips tossed around was that Hogan had seen the writing on the wall, that somehow he picked up a signal that his counterpart, Terry McGurk, corporate vice president in charge of affiliate sales and TBS Sports, was being singled out for bigger and better, and that he would be left behind treading water. Several Fortune 500 headhunters, however, are suggesting that the industry grapevine is all wet and reading too much between the lines on the Hogan front. The headhunters maintain that Hogan was just plain bored and was looking for more dough. One industry headhunter who does executive searches and cable says Hogan's departure was not at all surprising to him, given the key executives at Turner tend to, quote-unquote, top out financially. Maybe the headhunters are right about Hogan, and it's time for the grapevine to start dissecting the next big story. And maybe the headhunters will be proven wrong when the next big story turns out to be that Time Warner gets control of CNN. Well, that's prescient. Yeah. <laughs> By several years. Yeah. What do you make of that? Yeah. Also, don't think the wrestling newsletters are the other only ones who pull this shit after hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to broadcast on something else. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. Now they got wrestling back. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me see real quick. I'm just curious what this is. One of the other articles that came up for him in this time frame um, was about it, when I searched for Jerry Hogan was one about FNN being potentially for sale. Oh, that's because one of the potential bidders is Whittle. There you <laughs> go. Yeah. And, All right. Yeah. Oh, boy. Hogan's name also came up in Turner lashing out while it can. Uh, is there any line about Oh, okay. Every company is made a little differently, Turner said. There's no one way to run a company. We are an international company and a national company, and I have to travel a lot. He's talking about his insistence on signing off for so much stuff, even though he's rarely at CNN Center. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to another situation. And in that never-ending controversy regarding Sting's appearance at John and Rezzi's Wrestling Fans Convention a few weeks back. Hey, I was there. Barry Norman, the public relations man for the NWA who set the deal in the first place, was caught in the middle when there was a mix-up and took the heat for it. Disputed to Rezzi's claims in the September 10th Observer, Norman called the Rezzi side half-truths, saying he was asked by Rezzi if the convention could be plugged at the Meadowland show and on WPIX. And he said he would try. But apparently Jim Hurd decided against it because he didn't want the company associated with the outside personal appearance in case something went wrong, which it did. Hurd didn't want to give the public the idea that they were involved in the promotion of the show, so wouldn't allow it to be plugged on, on their TV show or on his Meadowlands card. Norman claimed he simply told a resident those plugs wouldn't be possible. However, when Sting appeared on WPLJ Radio, Sting 
did, that Sting did, plus he'd be appearing at the convention. The backlash of all this is the NWA decided not to let his wrestling appear on shows like this in the future. With the exception of a show in January where Sting will appear with baseball players King Griffey Sr. and Jr. Since contracts for that show were signed before the last show took place. The promotion had doubts about these shows going in, and because of the controversy caused, decided against it. Some of the promotion were against it even before this show because too much is out of control of the promotion and too much can go wrong. In addition, as of midweek, the NWA has also decided not to allow their talent to appear on John Rezzi's wrestling radio show anymore. Several NWA wrestlers have appeared, in particular Paul E. Dangerous, who's been on the show numerous times. Dangerous who booked himself on the show and didn't go to the office, but the company doesn't want him appearing on the show anymore. Although a breakthrough may have finally occurred since mid may have occurred since midweek. Since several have asked about this point, since part of the controversy from this whole incident was because the convention promoters had set up for Steen to charge $6 per autograph, and Steen refused to allow them to charge, citing WCW policy against this wrestler's charging for autographs. Next day, Dangerously was there and charging $4 an autograph. The reason is, Dangerously booked himself to the convention, didn't go through the company. In fact, the company didn't know he was going to appear, and apparently he won't be allowed to charge for autographs in the future. WCW, everybody. <laughs> We talked about this on the last show we did. We we had stuff, more stuff on this that was going on there that week, and you were there. Yeah. So kind of rehash all this. I mean, as far as I remember, Sting was very nice and gracious with the fans. Um, I got my autograph, and yes, it was you know free with admission to the convention. I mean, that's the thing—you had to at least pay to get in. But it seems like WCW botched this up a lot. But uh, under WCW's policy of not charging for autographs, though, that's a fan-friendly policy. It is? But why aren't you telling that to the person who's booking your wrestlers for an autograph signing? Yeah. <laughs> you should. Shouldn't they know that they're going to be at an invention like this, that there will be, uh, you know, that happening? You would think so. Although this is one of the one of the very first conventions of its kind, and really the the first in that we really think of, there were those conventions in like eighty seven and eighty eight in New York and a couple other places. I mean, you're talking about wrestling fans conventions. Yes, yes, specifically Not autograph yes. They were around right, before with baseball and stuff. The baseball cards and stuff; those were already around. Yeah, because this was the era, and I still have this somewhere. I think I burned it to DVD. That was outside the lines, like at the very beginning of outside the lines. Like one of the very, the very first shows that was about the autograph industry. And uh, that was 1990. So, I mean, yeah, that was a big deal back then. Yeah, which, by the way, and I don't know how much credit we give Conrad versus anyone else for this. I do like that to some degree the wrestling convention scene is moving more towards the Comic-Con model than the baseball card show model. In terms of having events and panels and stuff like that, and also the dealer rooms and signings and stuff. Hey, just do, everybody should just do like me. Buy their autographs off eBay. <laughs> I hope you're authenticating those properly. They're already authenticated properly. You just oh, they're P you're, you're only buy, buying stuff authenticated by PSA DNA or whoever. The reputable ones, yes. Yeah. PSA DNA, JSA, Beckett, you know, the, 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 um, now there are the one there are ones that I, I have bought that people had them in their store mm -hmm. with pictures of them in their store right right like right like you know, i'll trust that right there are 
you know, if people have photographic proof from signings and stuff like that, of course. And it's a reputable store, too. Exactly. And you yes. just can't buy, can't buy willy-nilly. Or even if you're buying, like, an item that happens to show up on eBay, but the guy has the picture of him getting it signed as a kid and the picture's not anywhere else online. Yeah. That's it. All right. Um, so most SWAT team quit. It'd been brewing for some time. Was it all three, or was it this just the well, Samu. Samu is gone already. We already That's right, because his... he's in New Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Fatu and Savage. Now, is this and the little bit of international and indie run after this the only time that the brothers team up? No. They team up in Puerto Rico. They team up in Mexico. I'm, but I mean, WC, I mean, New Wild Samoans and then the next couple of years after. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's the only era, yes. Okay. Yes. And just to remind everyone, no, they are not twins. They are not even fraternal twins, but they're less than a year apart in age. Yeah. That, that, that's, I guess, where the confusion was. Yes. All right. Matt Watch. Center stage in Atlanta. Once again, host the TBS wrestling shows come October 9th. Two weeks worth of TBS matches will be taped on alternating Tuesdays. Jim Herr told Matt Watch a key reason for returning to center stage is to give TBS and syndicated shows different looks. So what was the reason they gave up on Center Stage in early 90? Rent. They were just charging them too much? That was a problem they had for a while there, off and on. Yeah. They felt that they were charging too much. And it would go on. I mean, we had this story recently when we did a show from... The I global think, thing within 91, yeah. Yeah, so it's a it's an ongoing issue, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also from Matt Watch, Steve Beverly was told that another NWA announcer rotation may be in the offing, but specifics aren't certain. Bob Cotter will probably revert more to a Gene Okerlund type role, so Matt Watch was told. Yeah. Told by one Paul Heyman. Because <laughs> who becomes an announcer? I was time. thinking maybe Lance told Steve that. No, who's an announcer? Who becomes an announcer in this era? But who stops, with, well, who's about to stop being an announcer in the next few months, though? Yeah, but who, I mean, come on. Is it Who's talking to Steve more here at this time? It's Paul. A friend of Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. Yes. Yeah. Terry Funk was contacted about coming back and doing Funk's Girl segments for syndication. Unlikely for a deal to be made. Dave didn't say impo- it would be impossible, but it's unlikely. I forget. Why did he leave earlier in the year? He won the wrestle. Even though he enjoyed his job as executive producer of syndication. Yeah, but he won the wrestle. And, I mean, him and Chris Cruz both quit at the same time, too. So there's that. Yes. Well, not exactly. Terry quit, and then in the meeting, after seeing how he felt Kevin Sullivan was going to sandbag him on commentary, Cruz quit. Well, it's, you know, part and parcel. Yeah. On the September 21st Braves game, this is a Friday night, the announcers were plugging the power hour, which was the fall of the Braves game. It started late because the game went long. Kept flogging and making fun of a mixed tag match with four people that nobody's ever heard of except the most hardcore fans. Dave says, I mean, have you ever heard of Ringo, Reno Riggins? And if you have, there's a match with Scott Steiner versus Bobby Eaton. Wouldn't you rather plug that? Besides, the mixed tag really gave them something to make fun of. W said, everybody. What in the world? <laughs> so this was what, like an LPWA wrestler and Reno versus Horowitz in an LPWA wrestler? Or something? Or... Um, I gotta think it's, it's Bambi's involved in this, wouldn't you think? Uh, 
Let me see what I can find here. Well, it's probably right. in Matt Watch. Uh, Reno Riggins. Bambi and Reno Riggins beat Peggy Lee Leather and Scrap Iron Bill Ford. I really don't want to know who went over in the hotel after. <laughs> yes. So of all the matches, yeah, that that's... On and the that, show with Scott Steiner versus Bobby Eaton. And that not only aired on the Power Hour, it aired on the uh, Pro show that uh, Saturday before. Okay. So there you go. Aired twice. All right, let's go to WCW. World Championship Wrestling. And uh, September 15th, we have Sting and Black Scorpion. As they continue in that whole deal, the clash was uh, over and done with the week before. So now we're getting the aftermath of that. We have two clips. So let's go to clip number one. Yes. So we're coming off of the two most watched matches in the history of cable television up to this point. Yeah. Thanks very much, Bob Todd. Ladies and gentlemen, here with the world's heavyweight champion, Sting. We're going to see the most current statement from the Black Scorpion in a few moments. Ross, I know, he, he said he's got a new, a new statement. How did their green screen work get so much worse over the next year or two? I have no idea. Just WC everybody. That's all you can say. He's got a new one. Well, okay, he's got a new statement. I want to see that too, but most important, I, I know you above all can get the very first tape, the original tape. I want to see that because there's something about him, something about his voice, something that's kind of, there's a little bit of click there, and I know you can come up with that first tape. The voice that's being again, distorted? I I free this thing out. We'll get that before we go off the air, but right now let's hear the current statement from the Black Scorpion. Sting. I'm making a little present for you. Everybody else wants to take something from you, but I want to give. In a while, I may even show you what it is. But first, I want to give you another clue. Los Angeles, 86. Yes! On the beach. Yes! Think about it. I hope, I hope, as I intend, that you're slowly losing your mind. One thing you must remember, while everybody, including the horsemen, are chasing you, there's a big difference. Sid wants your belt. I want your life. Do we know right. if it was only on camera in those segments? I doubt it. Well, let's go to clip number two. Okay. And we'll hear this later in the show. Oh, so more Black Scorpion. Yes. And then we'll talk about it more. Yeah. We, fi- we finally got to play Sting on the Beach, 1986. Yes. Sting, are you listening? Uh, of course you are. You're too much of a hero and a champion to refuse to hear this tape. I'm going to destroy you. A long time has passed since you last saw me. Oh, yes, you know me. Or at least you did. But don't try to track me down. It won't help. Even if you saw my face in light, you wouldn't recognize me. My face doesn't look the same. 
mysterious. I imagine you are. Of course you are. I want you to be thinking. Be concerned, maybe even a little scared. Soon, I intend for you to be terrified. Think back. He won the replay. All right, there you have it. The original statement made here on World Championship Wrestling by the Black Scorpion. Does anything strike a chord? Can you remember nothing, anything? Nothing, nothing, Jim. I, I, I've looked at it so many times, I can't figure this thing out. It comes so close, and then it just disappears again. I think I'm just, I'm, I'm trying too hard is what I'm doing. I'm under too much pressure to try and figure this thing out because a lot of people are asking me who he is, and I'm under a lot of pressure. I can't figure it out. It's just, it's so close, though. We'll keep our eye on I'm sure that it is. We'll keep our eye on this development, and we'll be back on TBS after this. Hi, I'm Missy Hyatt. Join me and Jim Ross tomorrow on the NWA main event at 6.05. Flying Brian is going to try to run the gauntlet for $15,000, except Dan Spivey is going to be in his way. And now, let's go to the ring. The following contest, it is set for one fall. California, weighing 236 pounds, Rick Ford. And Bob, we All heard right. those comments. Okay. Um, I know it's not as overt as the NWO was at the beginning, but how did Vince not sue them over this? <laughs> the, the obvious point of this is to think that it's the ultimate war. Yeah. For people that maybe, yeah, that would know that story, yes. Yeah, and, you know, but not just California in 1986, but also my face looks much different than when you last saw me. Yeah. You got Sully Anderson. That's some chutzpah right there. (laughs) It's just so fucking hokey. I mean... They had no idea what they were going to do. They had to fly by the seat of their pants. And you, I mean, you could tell it. Yep. Do you think Oli's version is a remotely true? That he just filled in the black scorpion on a booking sheet and heard it was like, that's a great idea, pal. Probably. And he just had to run with it to, in a way that would please Hurd. Because it, it, whatever you want to say about Oli, this does not feel like Oli. Oh, no, this is not an Oli gimmick. It's, it's too progressive for Oli. <laughs> no, he wouldn't do anything like this. Yeah, we got to remember, Oli is a guy who would claim for years that wrestling was still a shoot in his day. Oli, yes. who started wrestling in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Not that pro wrestling was ever entirely a shoot, but you know what I mean. 
Well, I've seen some of his matches, and he kind of act like it was a shoot sometimes. <laughs> some of these job guys. Mm. Anyway, but it's, the whole stained by Scorpion thing is just silly as shit. So now with the Clash. How much of the big rating do you attribute to Flair Luger, and how much do you attribute to the intrigue over the Scorpion thing? I say it's probably equal footing. Hence the two matches doing the exact same numbers? Yeah. I think so. Because, you know, they had done the worldwide match for sweeps in May, but that wasn't exactly a real match. So this is the first real, like, big Flair Luger match on regular TV. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, TV ratings for our weekend, uh, the 14th to the 17th. All-American did a 3.0, Primetime 3.0, Main Event 2.5, WCW 2.1, Power 1.6, All Japan 3.9. Notes, All-American Wrestling, which has been down in ratings for the entire year, rebounded with the second highest rating of the year. This is from Dave, not Matt Watch, by the way. Comeback from a show generally in the low twos each week was a surprise because generally competition in NFL football makes WF ratings fall, not rise. Primetime was up from its 2.6, low for the year the previous week, but still well below average. But against Monday Night Football, a 3.0 is be considered satisfactory. All three NWA shows were below what TBS wants from them. Five shares. First week of the gauntlet matches weren't a draw at all. Power has been weak all summer, but it has to be expected with all the time changes and preemptions. In fact, as reported here and elsewhere, by the end of October, Power will be moved from Friday night to Saturday mornings. WCW had the second lowest rating of the year, while main event was still below the magic five-share mark with a 4.7 share. NWA ratings should improve when this weekend's March come out with Scott Steiner's matches with Bobby Eaton, Ray Flair, and Arn Anderson. And looking at things real quick, um, and Matt Watch has also mentioned that All-American was the highest rating of the year, second highest rating of the year, higher since, high, excuse me, highest since the WrestleMania Day edition, which hit a 3.2. And also, our week was up 36% from the previous week. And they did, as All-American often, often did, a very high share of 8.2. The, the rating and, and homes, though, was identical between All-American and Primetime. Yeah. At uh, 1.26, excuse me, 1.62 million homes. So, do one, so probably, you know, a little less than 2.5 million viewers, at least. Yeah. Whereas WCW, not doing so great, especially outside of main event. No. Yeah. Although World Championship Wrestling did a 4.9 share, so it was just a, just below 5. W, w, WGN show started on Saturday. WGN! Started on the 15th. Didn't see the show, it was told simply it was NWA Pro with Jeff Brickhoff doing some segments talking about Lutez. Show did a 2.2 rating and a 7 share. Prior week, during the first half hour, a movie did a 1.0 and Good Times did a 3.0. So basically, it's about as well as a regular programming did. So Dave guesses that constitutes decent ratings. Hmm. Dave knows that Dave lost NWA Pro in his market as channel as wrestling is off channel thirty six in San Jose. So add that to the list of stations the NWA has lost for the start of the new season. And Steve piggybacks off that NWA has lost an estimated four hours TV time across the state of Florida, which has contributed in part to the move of Starcade to St. Louis from St. Petersburg. By the time the shakeout finishes, the NWA may end up losing as much as 10 hours, 15 hours, excuse me, across the country. Pittsburgh's been lost again, and the Sydney market is very tough. Yeah. Yeah, it was. All right. TV tapings on September 17th. Saw Art Barr debut as the juicer and had some kids painted up to dance with him and look like him. One person did great. Let's say they did fair. 
He's awfully small, 175 pounds for this circuit, but he's good inside the ring, although he doesn't like to sell. And for someone that small in this company, that won't work. Yeah, we all know what happens with our bar here in WCW. And, everything. and rightfully fucking so, because he just pled guilty to rape. Yeah. Or pled guilty, I forget what the exact charge was, but pled, pled guilty in his rape case. Yeah. One of the... Whatever anyone wants to say about any of these stories lately, including one that's probably going to be a big hubbub after we record this, uh, there's still nothing quite like hiring someone a few weeks after they cop to plea for rape. Yeah, and wrestling's wrestling. Yep. You know? Also, if you ask Art Bar, he's not that small. He's the same size as Oli. Oli's just fat, according to Art. <laughs> yeah. Bobby Eaton ran the gauntlet on the tapings, which aired on the 28th and 30th. On Power Hour, he beat Tracy Smothers with Cordette interfered. Not as good as it sounds on paper, but still good. He went to a 15-minute draw with Morton for the WCW show, and then went sudden death and Eaton won when Lane interfered. Best match of the tapings. And finally, he lost to Sid in four minutes with Sid not selling a thing. I watched this when Bobby died, and those first two matches were really good, and I I like the idea of the curveball, at least, of heel versus heel and kind of the surprise quick win. Like, I like the... I like how it helps establish the concept, but what a bad way to handle Bobby. Yes. No wonder Cornette and Lane are about to quit. Oh, and Eaton stays. Eaton's got kids, though. Yeah. Lane has, well, Eaton has kids that he is providing for, we should say. Yes. Unlike yes. Stan, who has kids who he is not providing for. Norman was back on television, but he was only in the stands during the taping and didn't work any matches. Hillbilly Norm. Big trucker. Norm. I'm kidding, because he's doing the Hillbilly Gym thing. Nice trucker Norman here. No, I mean, because he's in the stand. Never mind. I know, but still, he's trucking on. All right, Taylor Penn Lane. Oh, Terry Taylor Penn Stan Lane Bex in the Syndicate TV main event. <laughs> oh, Ric Flair should have been refereeing, or at least announcing. The only the wrestler trained by Ric Flair losing to the only other wrestler who wishes he was the only wrestler trained by Ric Flair. <laughs> An angle was done where Sting and Sid were about to go at it when the Scorpion showed up, and Pillman came out to even the odds. So Pillman will begin a singles push next month, but only to feed the Scorpion. Also, wait a second. Again, with as far as them quitting, Terry Taylor is one of the lowest slotted babyfaces on the roster. Yeah. This black Scorpion was Tony Zane. But it won't be Zane anywhere else, although it was supposed to be. There was some problem that night, and Scorpion this week would be somebody else. It appears to just be a revolving hill character each night. More on that in a minute. The Danger Zone there Sunday with Teddy Long was the last minute impromptu thing. Originally, the Danger Zone was taped with Jim Cornette. And when he and Paul Lee were talking, Cornette told Paul Lee to shut up because he needs to save his wind to blow up his date that night. Anyway, Ross, over these TV shows, told him to do the interview again without that line, and Cornette walked out on the interview. Apparently, Cornette was mad because he'd been asked to come up with an angle to start a program with the Steiners, and he came up with a tar and feather angle where they tar and feathered Rick. But Jim heard Nick's the idea, and as it turned out, the entire program's been Nick's as well. Well, there you go, Bix. <laughs> that adds more to the flame of Jim Cornette there, doesn't it? Yes. 
Especially since I'm pretty sure he had used that joke on TBS a zillion times. It's funny that Jim Ross is the one to uh, be like that. I don't know. I wonder if it was a directive from Herd. Mm, perhaps. All right, Tony Zane. Matt Watch uh, says former, former Georgia All-Star wrestler Tony Zane, who appears as a black scorpion at the tapings, was arrested on charges of marijuana possession and driving out of license after the tapings. Police reports indicated that Zane was picked up by officers after lighting up a joint in the parking lot. <laughs> Line up right in front of the police. Gotta love it. <laughs> yeah, um... <laughs> My God. All right. Most of the games weren't good this week, but Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, on September 19th at a $37,000 house, while Raleigh on September 20th drew 580 fans. Oof. That's Wendell Cooley pinned the world spaghetti eating champion. Italian Stallion, Dud, which that's a shoot. Uh, Brad Armstrong pinned Buddy Landell, star on three quarters. Norman B. Barry Horowitz, one star. Steiner's over the State Patrol, something for the SST, two stars. Mike Rotunda of Iron Sheik, half a star. Freebirds over Midnight's when Stan held Jimmy Garvin. Cornette went to use the racket. Garvin ducked. Cornette hit Lane, who was pinned. Midnight's were cheered, two stars. And Luger beat Sid Clean in 15 minutes, star and a half. Houston, on the 16th, drew 750 fans. As Hector Guerrero drew with a draw with Tom Pritchard. How about that? Dr. Tom working on the Houston show picks. Uh, Southern Boys over the Freebirds. Alperez over Barry Horowitz. Norman over the Sheik. Uh, Susan Sexton over Bambi. Ellie Gante over Dr. X. Randy Colley. Terry Taylor and Ricky Morton beat Butch Reed and Buddy Landell. That's a batch. And Sting over Black Scorpion, who was Wild Bill Irwin. Waco, on the 15th, drew 130 fans. Don Glass, everybody. Hector over Buddy. Norman over the Iron Sheik. Lou Perez, not Al Perez, excuse me, I said earlier Al Perez. Lou Perez beat Barry Horowitz. Eligante over Dr. X. Terry Taylor and Ricky Morton over Butch Reed and Wild Bill Irwin. And the Southern Boys over the Freebirds. Now you see why I drew 130 fans. No Sting. Because Detroit... Same night, drew a thousand fans as Brad Armstrong pinned Dutch Mantel, half a star. Master Blasters beat Tim Horner, Mike Rotund, and a dud. Midnight's over Pillman and Zinc, three stars. Steiner's over the SST when Scott pinned Fatu with a Frankensteiner, three stars. Stan Hansen over Tommy Rich, star and a half. JYD over Arn Anderson in 10 seconds, negative four stars. Luger over Sid by a countout. Luger worked very hard, but Sid was pathetic, one star. And Steve. Over Ric Flair in 16 minutes. Three stars. Good, but not one of their better matches. A fan dressed up as a black scorpion and went to the ringside and fans thought it was part of the show, so it took heat away from the match. That's great. But the real story from Detroit, there's two stories from Detroit. One of the Master Blasters, apparently discontented, took a bus home to Iowa to the Detroit show. He's being replaced by Al Green, the former Blade Hunter. And Ric Flair injured his back Saturday in Detroit. No word on how serious it is, but he did miss the TV tapings in Marriott on the 17th. Okay, um, this would be Corey Pendarvis, who walks out after 10 days, right? That's his name, I think, isn't it? Something like that, yeah. And what does it say about how quick he left? So wait, had he done any TV or is he only on The Clash? I think he only did The Clash. I don't think he did a TV taping. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think he did. I'll double check, but he's gone so quick. That I don't think most people realized until the last several years with Nash doing more shoot interviews and stuff that he ever existed. 
Mm-hmm. Right? I don't remember hearing the name Corey Pendarvis until the last couple of years. Do you? Not really. Have a, have a good way to mess with a guy's head, too, with taking someone that green who's never had a professional match and making their first match on live te- national television. <laughs> yeah. Really? Like, what were they thinking? Besides Oli being like, oh, get cheap talent. Yeah. That's about it, right? Well, he was an Iowa guy. I mean, he's a Midwest guy, so it's using his Midwest guy connections. So. Well, maybe. Um... But yeah, so he had a total of seven matches, and yep, no TV tapings. Clash and six house shows. And Flair, I mean, Flair has these issues. He doesn't, he doesn't work a whole lot here in this time period. He's take, he taking little breaks here and there, so. They put him in the tag feud. It's good he's not a champion anymore, I guess, for his sake. Yeah. Now there is this, and this is closing the show from Dave. The suggestion was made to Flair to take November off and get this. Come back as a Roman gladiator gimmick. Jeez. Let me try to come up with completely stupid gimmicks, and they're better than that. Okay. Are we assuming this Spartacus. is also Spartacus? Okay. Roman gladiator gimmick. Spartacus. Absolutely. Where do you stand on Spartacus these days and that whole story? I thought it was a great move. No, as far as whether or not this Flair story is remotely true. I think I mean it's obviously something to it, because he got the haircut, they gave they got they had that music. Um, there's obviously something to it. Was he going to be Spartacus? No, or a Roman I, gladiator? I think it's going to be a Roman gladiator. Or he was going to be Ric Flair with a Roman gladiator twist. Possibly, yeah. He wasn't going to be Spartacus. Put that way, even though they own the name. It's MGM, so I Wait, guess so. I, so when you when Jim Hurd says that that was never something they seriously considered, do you think he's telling the truth but being specific as to changing his name to Spartacus? Yes. You think it's a careful telling of the truth? Yes. Okay. I think that makes some sense. But here's the other thing, though: the person who tells that story, claiming it's firsthand, the most is Kevin Sullivan, who's not in the company anymore at this time. Yeah. He claims to have been in the meeting. But it seems like this is that meeting. And he's not there. <sighs> Has Cornette ever talked about this? But he's not in the booking team anymore either. I don't, he's talked about it, I know. Uh, is there anything online that he... I think he talked about it in the 1990 timeline with uh, Sean, Sean Oliver. I think. I'm not positive. I would think there'd be a YouTube clip of that isolated, wouldn't there? Who who knows? Just I just don't know what I think of it. I I It was I, obviously something to what was There's going obviously on. something going on. Um He went to cut his hair for nothing. I don't when think. is this from? Okay, last year at some point Cornette did a thing that looks like it talks about the Spartacus or Gladiator thing, but I don't know what he says there. And it's too long to even bother playing, even if we didn't think it would get yeah, into a whole bang with something. Let's just end it where we're at right now. Yeah, I guess so. But what a, what a show. I love doing 1990. I think my favorite period overall to do is like late 88 through 94-ish. Just because you got so much stuff and the newsletters are kind of, in a way, at their peak. Funny you mentioned that. Oh? 
Because next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1994. Hey! Now, I have an invite out for a guest, but he's not committed to it just yet. So, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. We may have a guest, we may not. Who knows? All right, but anyway, World Championship Wrestling. Speaking of Ric Flair, WCW has decided to retire Ric Flair. So, we'll have the news about that. Oh, boy. And uh, all that stuff going on regarding that whole situation. And we have a live main event to talk about. Interactive. Not interactive. Not interactive. Not interactive, no. But we got other TV. We got news on Jerry Funk and Ricky Steamboat leaving WCW. And um, all kind of stuff going on, including the build-up, the the beginning of the build-up to the When Worlds Collide pay-per-view show. Plus other uh, fun stuff in WCW. In New Japan Pro Wrestling, Jushin Thunder Liger breaks his leg. So we'll have uh, news about that. Oh, and his what? ankle or his leg? I always it forget. says, well, it says leg. But Dave Meltzer's not quite sure if this is something that actually happened during the match. We'll have more on that. Uh, and other and all kind of thing is Masachono is just becoming a heel here, beginning his heel run and all kinds of other stuff, including what were the original plans were for Collision in Korea, the original main event. We also have FMW and the first ever no rope barbed wire, let's fight explosive double hell death match inside of a swimming pool. Yes. We'll talk about that and all kinds of other Japanese wrestling news to go, to go on. We got uh, Mexico as they're getting stuff getting hot, uh, getting ready for when worlds collide as well. Two big t- shows in Tijuana, Me- Mexicali, where Dave Meltzer is at Tijuana show. So we'll have more now, on does that. Does he get the name of the state right this time, at least? Oh, um, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll have that when we do the show. Okay. ECW goes to a new market for the first time. We'll have more on that. Um and all kind of other independent news, including more on Jim Cornette's legal situation with Casey O'Connor, including Jim talking to Mike Mooneyham about the subject. And all kinds of, uh, well, two clips from Smoky Mountain Television. One of them being a gangster's promo, so get ready for that. We got USWA stuff to talk about. A couple clips there. Jesse Ventura, latest on him and his situation as being mayor of Brooklyn Park. What's the deal there? Because he has moved. Plus, we got uh, Raw and WWF to talk about. Stuff going on there. Um, other TV tapings. House shows on the Heart Attack Tour. What uh, A new WWF show that's going to replace All-American Wrestling on Sundays. And we got some clips from TV, including a King Kong Bundy vignette, which is amazing. But the main thing on this show... And I can't believe we haven't done it on this show before. Black Jack Brawl from Las Vegas, Nevada. Herb Abrams, everybody. Okay, we have to figure out the right way to do that since we did look at it. Well, we looked at it some, but you had never seen it before when we did the Patreon show. We have to figure out the right way to handle this. Because I, I think even though they're also on the Patreon show and that show is available for free, actually, I feel like we need to give this some kind of special treatment. Anyway, I got Dave's uh, review of the show, and uh, that's why I was trying to have a guest to give a different you know viewpoint on this show. So we'll talk off the air about that. I, I have alternate ideas if this person can do it. Okay. All right. So, yeah, next week should be quite the show. So be ready for that. 
All right, Bix, this is always you're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the peach state of Georgia. Patreon special edition episode number 59. I'm your host Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host David Bixenspan. And Bix, we're going to talk about a topic that we touched on here and there on the Between the Sheets shows, but definitely not like this. And this is the perfect type of concept, this Patreon series, to do a show like this, as this is a... Goes through quite a few years here. This this uh in, this subject in particular. Yeah, pretty much. Let me look at the data. Last thing we have here. Yeah, over four years. Just over four <laughs> years. The show is uncom- encompassing. Yes, and probably could have went longer, but actually, yeah, I'm looking been... at it now. It's about four and a half from when it actually yeah, starts. But... Four four year, a little over four years from. No, excuse me. Five, uh, yeah, four. No, I'm doing it wrong. A little over three from what we used as the anniversary to peg it to over four and a half from when the notes start. Yeah, so uh, long drawn out stuff here, but uh, a very interesting subject as we're going to talk about Superstar Billy Graham versus the World Wrestling Federation, which seemed like it's been going on and off for 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> but we're only going to focus on these years in particular. Yes, and the reason we're going with August ni- August as the anniversary to peg you to is that that's when he announces his lawsuit against the World Wrestling Federation. But we'll get to that later because he doesn't exactly file it right away. Yeah, but it starts back further than that. All right, now, week of July 15th, Arsenio Hall Show. July 16th, Hulk Hogan, during his uh, legendary interview with Arsenio Hall, talked about superstar Billy Graham and Bruno San Martino and uh, all the hubbub they've been drumming up about steroid usage. And, uh, yeah, he's got some stuff to get off his chest. So let's go to the Hulkster. Have you ever heard of this? I, I saw a guy on a program named Billy Graham, not the Reverend, but mm-hmm. a wrestler. What's up with him? Well, superstar Billy Graham apparently um, in the 70s was one of the top wrestlers, one of the top draws. I was a big fan of his. And he just came out during all these drug trials and admitted steroid use and abuse. And basically he's saying that these are all the reasons his body's falling apart. But basically um, Basically. there have been several other wrestlers like Bruno San Martino who didn't have any problem working with Billy Graham at the time. He's on steroids and putting all the money in his pocket that have completely turned into hypocrites and knocked Hulk Hogan and said Hulk Hogan's never seen the inside of a church, and I doubt if he even says his prayers. And there was, there's been all kind of allegations, but Billy Graham was a top draw during the 70s, and, and he apparently was a heavy-duty steroid abuser. Yeah. Um, before we say goodbye, um, I know you called me, and you wanted to come and 
and uh, straighten this thing out yes, and, 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 I appreciate and tell the you truth. Come out here. Yeah, would you like to say anything else to your hulkamaniacs? Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, steroids, like cocaine and a lot of other hard drugs, or class three drugs, if that's what you want to call them, the federal government calls them, is a dead-end street. And basically, basically. Um, as far as kids trying to get into athletics, and this is the 90s, the era of the fitness, stay away from those type of drugs because basically they're all kind of side effects and adverse reactions. And from what I can tell you, I've got a wife and two kids, and I don't want to miss one second or do anything that's going to take one second away from my life to be with my wife and kids. And as far as these kids go, if you work hard, if you train 20 years like I do and start as soon as you can, I mean, you can get what you want out of your body. It just... It's a little more intense. You've got to be a little more uh, dedicated and be a leader. Don't be a follower because that's what this whole thing's all about. And that's what we're trying to bring to the, the front of the WWF and Hulk Hogan. We're a bunch of leaders, not a bunch of followers. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Hey, hey, hey. Um, uh, no, very quickly, and I have to ask you this question. Um, I was so... Okay, we don't need this. This is when Hogan gets flustered when he asks him what should happen to the doctor. But... We don't need to go further than that. Um, what an asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's, the, it's Hogan. We, I mean, this is what it was. And people ate it, you know, ate it all. You know, they, they didn't get any blowback from this from most people. So, you know. Yeah, it's what, it what, but it's what caused uh, Graham to go nuclear on Hogan, though. Well, yeah. Um, but. How many times do you think he said basically there? <laughs> uh, basically, about six, seven times, maybe. Basically. According to Steve Beverly, in the entire interview, he used it 22 times. Yeah. His go-to word, I guess. At John Rezzi's wrestling fans convention in New York over this past weekend, Graham was scheduled to donate his wrestling boots and a custom-made tie-dye tuxedo to an auction. He also donated a frame 11 by 14 inch personal autograph photo of Hulk Hogan himself, which he claimed was one of his prized possessions up until recently. But for auction shows my real disdain for Hulk's appearance in our senior hall show. So in that photo was me, was me doing a symbolic way of showing that I'm washing my hands of him. When I saw the performance in me, it was like a piercing stab in the back. I can't get over that shit. How in the hell did Theodore Densmore think that that was gonna you know because it's the world wrestling federation chris well shit fucking uh eugene densmore would have probably been better attorney in that case well he is a wrestling savant (laughs) it well luckily they didn't have to worry about this spoiler alert (laughs) let's keep going and poor and, and you could tell that billy was you know crushed by hogan doing that thing on Arsenio. But what did you expect? I mean, really, what did you fucking expect? Yeah. You expect that to go out there and, you know, put it all out there for everybody. Yeah, I, I'm, I, Billy's right. Yeah, so what we have next now is the separate Inside Edition story. Um, for a second, I got confused with the other one, but it is a separate one, which and airs sometime in October. I could not pin this down at all, but thankfully there's nothing's directly surrounding it that we have here anyway. So let's move on to that now. And this in part addresses Graham's upsetness with the Arsenio interview. So we start with this clip here, which is so I look at how I have a time this a little under two minutes. The undisputed king of the ring is Hulk Hogan. 
hero to thousands of Hulkamaniacs, as his young fans are called, the Hulkster preaches clean living, prayer, and vitamins as the keys to success. I'm the last great American hero since John Wayne died. Forget the baseball players. Forget the football players. Hulkamania is what tears Madison Square Garden in every major arena down around the country. But some of his former colleagues say that the gospel, according to Hulk Hogan, is not quite kosher. The kids are believing that if they take their vitamins and say their prayers, that they're going to grow up to be some super athlete. Well, I got news for you. You can take your vitamins and you can say your prayers, but you're never going to grow up to be 300 pounds with 24-inch arms unless you take steroids. Dave Schultz is a former professional wrestler with the World Wrestling Federation. So is superstar Billy Graham. They both watched the Arsenio Hall show last July when their old wrestling friend Hulk Hogan appeared and made this statement. But I've trained, I've trained 20 years, two hours a day to look like I do. But the things that I am not is I'm not a steroid abuser and I do not use steroids. But Hulk Hogan's former teammates have a very different story to tell about his past abuse of steroids. I myself personally have injected Hulk Hogan with anabolic steroids. I brought him into my home. I let him sleep in the house. I gave him food. And in return, he gave me steroids. He showed me how to use steroids. Any thoughts on what we just watched? Here's the thing about this stuff is no matter how much of this is probably correct and true, a lot of people would see these two guys as as malcontents and they have an agenda and they're bitter. And that's why it, it, it needed somebody to be in this that didn't have something that had already happened that they come out and say, this is what's going on. Somebody who would have been perceived as someone who had maybe more credibility. You know, Schultz, you know, God knows, been all over the media forever. It says Stossel. And Graham, you know, Graham is Graham. But if there had been somebody else who they could, could have come out and they could have pointed to them and said, you know, this this person right here, they're not like that. They're, they don't have an axe to grind against the World Wrestling Federation or whatever. I think that's what this whole controversy needed to mm-hmm. to get it to that next to that next level of public consciousness, you know. Yeah, I feel like it hurts Schultz at the time more than it does Graham. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's the same old song and dance, you know, the same old malcontent. So these guys, they're bitter because they can't get they can't get work. But they're also them. not going to say anything until they know they have no chance of getting a job anymore. How it always yeah. works. So That's wrestling. Yes. Well, let's go to the part where Graham and the Schultz 2 come back up, and that goes through the end of the segment, and then we'll talk about this more. Billy Graham, World Wrestling Federation champion of 1977, is retired now. He suffers from devastating physical problems caused, he believes, by his years of steroid abuse. He wants people to see the price he paid for his moment in the wrestling spotlight. Billy, what is it that you want from all this? What is it that you want the Hulk to do? I want him to be honest. I want him to tell the American public 
because of the overwhelming evidence of testimonies like people like myself and the common knowledge of all wrestlers who know him for years. He's taken steroids from the late 70s through the whole decade of the 80s. You know, I want him to come clean. He owes it to his fans. You see, he owes it to the children of this country. And as you heard, superstar Billy Graham told us he wants to spread the word about the dangers of steroids. Is that He's now Glass? making appearances in schools so kids oh, can see for themselves um, how he has suffered because of his unhealthy pursuit Nancy of Nancy No, 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 no. That's Nancy O'Dell's on was Entertainment Tonight. But she was on, she I think she was on Inside Edition too. I, I before. know what you're talking about. That's though, Nancy yeah. that's, I think that's Nancy Glass. Let me look make okay. sure. Nancy Glass. Yes, Nancy Glass. Wow, that's a blast in the past. But uh, here's the thing, yeah. especially at the end. Graham's right, in large part because someone who we thought was his friend used his name to lie and shit on him. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of everything like he said about Hogan so far, and the later stuff is a little dirtier, but I, if it was honest, and I do believe it was, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Like... Up to this point, though, he really isn't—he really isn't shooting that many daggers, you know. Uh, well, Ho he wasn't until Hogan did Arsenio. And not the Hogan direct. He's not going that far yet. Yeah, no, not really. Schultz point, is. <laughs> Schultz is, but still, but but Graham, Graham just seems sad. Yeah, exactly. You know, and understandably so. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.